everyone, welcome to Witch Finish Sheets, episode number 343. I'm your host, Chris Zellner. Joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, we got quite the show this week, a big show. And uh, yes, yeah, time to go back in the 2000s again. Indeed. And uh, this could have been a much bigger show from what you were saying if it had been like a day or so in a different direction. Well, that and plus there will, for those, again, we have to preface this. On weeks where we have like a UFC in this time period, and this would have been UFC that I would have liked to talk about, but this show's so fucking big that uh, no UFC this week. So for those of you that may well know why that was, there it is. It's because it serves long enough. We didn't need to, to go that direction. And, and it wasn't too long, but long enough where it was it made a difference. So no UFC this week on Between the Sheets. But yes... We're going back to 2003, and this is a Patreon-requested show. So, yes, if you want to have your own Patreon-requested show, go to patreon.com slash between the sheets. $25 allows you that chance to pick a show for the week. Now, you pick, make sure you pick a show that we haven't done already. Maybe, uh, have a backup choice handy if it's a show that we have done or a show that somebody may have booked on the calendar. That week, that is. Not the show in particular, but the week. So have that handy. Follow the protocol on the Patreon website and how to get the information to Bix. If there's any questions, you can holler at one of us and we'll try to get you straightened out and all that. And there'll be more in the halftime segment. And hopefully there will be a halftime segment this week. There wasn't one last week because the show was long. So maybe there, there may be one this week. There may not. Who knows? We'll see. But um, yes, this is the Patreon request of show. And we are joined by our patron this week who put down the $50 to sit in for this uh, segment of the show. That's the extra perk. You can sit in for a segment for $50. Hunter, you can sit in for the whole show. If you want to, and uh, he's a multi-time pay, uh, Patreon uh, guest here, as we are joined by our friend and uh, great Canadian Tyler Gignac. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris and Bix, thanks for having me back again. Really excited to get to do this. Absolutely. Now, I always like to ask this question. You know, on the pa- when the patron joins us, why did you want us to do this week? Well, this week is a pretty big memory of mine. Uh, The Raw that takes place in Toronto is actually the first television taping that I ever got to attend live. So it was a pretty great night. It started out a little rough, but it turned out to be a pretty great experience. And I was happy to kind of go back and relive that. How does it make you feel to know this has been 19 years ago? That's a little scary to think about that it's been that much time. It feels like it's been about five years, but uh, (laughs) Lord only knows. 19 years That's, it just boggles my mind that we're that far that far ahead in the calendar and the, and just wow it just makes me feel older and older and older as the days go on but yeah 2003 19 years ago wow so let's get started with the show as yes we're going to start with the week that was february 23rd through march the 1st of 2003 and yes we will begin with the World Wrestling Federation, World Wrestling Entertainment, excuse me, this time. They've done change by by now. And let's go to uh, Montreal, as we start in Canada. Even though Montreal has among the richest histories of pro wrestling, from Yvonne Robert to Luthez to Edouard Carpentier to Yukon Eric, to Killer Kowalski, Mad Dog Bashan, the Rougeos, Dino Bravo, Rip Martel, it will always probably be synonymous with Survivor Series 1997. WWE hasn't been back on pay-per-view for nearly six years there. Coming off incredible reaction to Hulk Hogan, the death of WrestleMania last year, still the perfect city for Hogan to have his first match in months. 
along with The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. All preliminary indicators, much larger crowds in recent shows, including the Rumble, at closed circuit sites, seeing the show far more interested in No Way Out than the recent series of below pay-per-views, largely due to those factors, which probably indicates a very strong buy rate. While Hogan and Rock had appeared regularly on SmackDown in recent weeks, although Montreal saw SmackDown doesn't have much penetration, Austin hadn't been seen since he no-showed Atlanta on June the 10th and predictably blew the roof off the Bell Center, the renamed Molson Center, which was the site of wrestling's most famous modern-day screwjob. The attempt to do a similar screwjob in the main event between Hogan and The Rock was evident from the start, since the Hogan-Rock match was to lead to Hogan and Vince. Instead of doing the exact replica, they did an offshoot, with the lights going out and the introduction of a crooked referee. Savon Grandier, a protege of Pat Patterson from Montreal who had trained for months under Rocky Johnson in Florida and had been Rock's training partner, causing The Rock to win. Hogan and Rock failed to come close to recapturing whatever it was they had at WrestleMania. It's probably a combination of the crowd being exhausted after screaming so loud for Austin, and people know Rock's supposed to be heel and boo him, but really don't want to, causing him to get very little reaction coming out, combined with a terrible match, and they showed a bad note. As far as the match went, the two never got together for a practice session and laid things out move for move with Pat Patterson as they did WrestleMania. Hogan looked far worse in the ring than anyone on the show. In part because that was Rock's worst match to preview show since becoming a major star. But the crowd had enough respect for Hogan to overlook it, although not enough to make it come across well. That was hardly the case for Scott Steiner, who the crowd once again turned on 90 seconds to his match at Triple H. Steiner, who's the second worst performer on the show, but gets none of the sympathy Hogan gets for going out there past his prime with a myriad of injuries. There may have been some entertainment value on the crowd cheering Triple H and of the old Ric Flair spot to get over the referee, in this case, Earl Hebner, backfiring. If Triple H was in a position where the ref they were turning babyface was actually more hated than either wrestler. But ultimately, they didn't learn from their mistake in that match, as the, even though it was shorter, 13 minutes in a second, it was too long for a Scott Steiner match. Even stranger was that the longest match on the show was Undertaker versus Big Show, which one would have figured it should be booked as the shortest match because of the show's poor conditioning. And unlike Steiner and Hogan, it was the Bills' main event caliber match. While Show looking as heavy as ever due to his own problems with back injuries, probably making it difficult to impossible to train, and his consistent dietary problems a little worse than usual. Undertaker deserves a lot of credit for carrying the match to where, due to the blood in his combat, the crowd heat was tremendous at the finish. The show stealers once again were Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit in a five-man tag. As late as midweek, the plan was still for Edge to work the match. Of course, Edge gets injured. The other wrestlers said they would take care of him, and he was willing to do it. The plan at that point would be to shoot a major injury angle with him in the SmackDown tapings in London, Ontario, two nights later. However, after word of how serious his injury really was got to the office, they only pulled him from the match with decided against allowing, him, allowing anyone to touch him, hence the phantom injury angle. After the Hardy Cruiserweight title win, they cut backstage where Edge was lying dead on the ground with everyone hovering over him. He never moved. He never saw anything. He was taken to a hospital. Paul Heyman tried to get what was his backup plan into effect, which was putting Rhino in the match leading to a three-way abadia with Team Mango defending against Los Guerreros and Benoit Rhino. They nixed the idea for this show, Graham. Then then about face two nights later and did the sa- basic same angle on SmackDown. Thing is, Paul Heyman's not in charge anymore. That's a whole other story. Generally, it was a strong crowd for the most of the show with a sell of 15114 paying $897,570 Canadian or $595,089 U.S. The big difference at that time between the Canadian dollar and U.S. dollar. Wow. 
Another big question going in. Was the Montreal reaction on the show with Canadian Heels as well as the return of Shawn Michaels? Before the show started, they aired on the video wall the Heat show, which featured a confidential piece for the night before on Kurt Henning. Every time Michaels' face is on the screen, the boos were thunderous. Before the baby started, to turn Chris Jericho hit on the opener, they had him call Montreal a city of ass clowns and had him get into a confrontation where Savant Grandier punked him out in French, forced him to turn him babyface to set up his screw job main event. Still, the fans cheer for Jericho, but they really didn't boo Jeff Hardy during their opener. When Michaels came out for a post-match brawl with Jericho, the reaction at first was booing, but was overwhelmed by louder cheering from people happy to see another superstar live they weren't expecting. There were loud, boring chants in the Triple H Scott Steiner match, as well as audible chants in the Hogan Rock match. The most tasteless sign in a long time, which was Great White Fierce Pyro, was confiscated. But not before being on the air many times early in the show. Bix, you want to explain the context of that? Well, what's the date? How recent is it? I guess it's got to be pretty recent. Uh, it, it, he's talking about the Station Nightclub fire. Yeah, the Station Nightclub fire, which was February 20th. So three days. And West Warwick, Rhode Island. Uh, Great White, they, uh, they were around for a long time. Their big hit was uh, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. That was 89. and some other songs. They were performing at this bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, the station, in uh, February 20th, 2003. 100 people were killed. 230 were injured. The fire was caused when a pyrotechnic set off by a tour manager ignited flammable acoustic foam on the walls and ceilings around the stage. And this was it a building flat- that there was there was no excuse for doing pyro there. Yeah, it reached flash over flash within one minute, causing all combustible materials to burn. Intense black smoke engulfed the club within two minutes. Video footage of the fire shows its ignition, rapid growth, billowing smoke that quickly made escape impossible, and blocked aggressive further hindered evacuation. Um, 132 escaped uninjured. Many of the survivors developed PTSD after the event. Fourth deadliest at a nightclub, fourth deadliest fire in a nightclub in U.S. history. Second deadliest in New England. So, yeah. So, yeah. Wrestling fans uh, doing their thing again. So, there you go. There were notes for signs for Kurt Henning, as well as Jake Roberts, the late Dino Bravo, a huge draw in the scene during the 80s, and four people with Saku letters for Kazushi Sakuraba. Well, there you go. Drew, uh, Dave Stubbs, almost said Drew Stubbs. He played for the Cincinnati Reds. Dave Stubbs of the Montreal Gazette, a former WWE referee who has been attending matches in the city for probably 30 years, said he never seen a crowd leave the building so unhappy. A truly appalling main event, worse than bad. I can't describe the way the arena deflated the finish. Absolute total disgust. The Steiner Hogan match took down well up to the point had been a good show with a hot crowd. But no surprise, Jim Ross was kept off commentary for most of the show, but came complete with the, a themed interest for the Austin debut. While the crowd was going crazy, described as a similar reaction to the biggest wins in Montreal Canadiens history, Ross was over the top screaming to try and make it one of those legendary moments in wrestling history that almost came across as a spoof. Which <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of that latter era Ross stuff, especially involving Austin, came off that way. You know, it came off as him playing Jim Ross and doing this, yeah. you know? But, uh, yeah, what a, what a show we got going on here already from the, from the rundown. So let's get started with the show proper. All right. Uh, heat Ray Mysterio jr. Pin Jimmy Noble in four thirty five with a in the heat match. Very good for the time they were given. Ray did a hurricane run off the apron, which his head came scary close to hitting the floor on the flip. 
Tacit and Nidia could suck the mask off Mysterio's head. <laughs> wow. Lost in your falls ending where Mysterio dropkicked Noble into the idiot and hit the hero Karana. <laughs> Taz with a line that he could not say today on commentary on AEW, that's for sure. <laughs> no. And uh, meanwhile, though, Jamie Noble on the run where if you're paying attention, you start to watch. Excuse me. I phrase that out of order. You can see that he's starting to become one of the best wrestlers in the world. He's getting it all together here. Yes. Care. Yes. Henry. Although he uh, does eventually get fired from this stint with the WWF with possibly the greatest firing in the history. Well, WWE, but still the greatest firing in the history of the World Wrestling Federation, which is what sends him to ROH because he tried to fi- tried to file a medical claim with WWE for an abscess on his butt. Because he got it from shooting steroids to get a bigger push as a wrestler. And they were like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> you put this in a medical so had, report that you used to something that's technically banned? Okay. So he had an abscess on his ass. Yes. He an, called it an his, yes, he, call, he called it a his cyst, though, was how it was referred to in The Observer. That's what that, that's what sort of noble called it well this can turn into an abscess too but um an assist and not like an assist in the nba but yeah so he basically had to lay low for a year when that happened and then came back but he had a hell of a run in roh and new japan and various indies james gibson all right so our opener was chris jericho over jeff hardy in 1259 with the old school boston crab crowd was off for this match but jeff was all over the place early on Jeff did a corkscrew type dive off of a uh, springboard to the floor. Jericho's cut hardway early on. Tons of near falls, including uh, Jeff using a swanton. Jericho getting the foot on the ropes. Jeff did a reverse twist of fate, but missed the second swanton. Finished saw Jericho block a hood record run off the top to a power bomb off the middle ropes, followed by his new version of the walls. Yes, a straight boss of crap. After the match, Jericho went and break the hole. Michaels came out, which led to Christian coming out for the double team. Michaels cleaned house on both and laid out Christian with a super kick. Three and a quarter stars. Tyler, Dave talked about the whole thing here where they were trying to turn, you know, their Canadian heels, heels in Canada. And you're a Canadian. So how do you feel when they tried to go so over the top to get you guys to boo your Canadian heroes? It was always worth a shot, but I mean, we tend to take care of our own pretty well. So it doesn't tend to be very successful very often. Uh, especially in this case with the angle going with Michaels, I would have thought there was absolutely no way you would get Michaels cheered and Jericho booed in Montreal. Yeah, because this is his first appearance in Montreal since the Power Series. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a bold move, Cotton, as the old uh, the old uh, uh, the movie line is. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's it's crazy, you know. Um, I don't know. But no problem in trying, I guess. The match, I mean, uh, and the match was good. I remember that. I remember this match because I was watching pay per views. I wasn't watching SmackDown, but I was watching the pay per views because this is the time where they're still split. Everything split shows, not split. It's all group shows. So you have Raw SmackDown on all the pay per views until coming up where they did split pay per views, which yes. we'll talk about later. And by the way, since I was muted when you said it, uh, you were thinking of Jason Bateman and Dodgeball. That's it. Yes. Um. 
but yeah, so uh, good stuff. All right, uh, next, another Canadian, Lance Storm and William Regal retain the Raw tag titles over Rob Van Dam and Kane in 920. Regal was shaken up early when Kane dropped him hard on the back of his head doing a body slam, causing him to get a legit concussion. Van Dam did a run and flip over the top on both. Regal still shaken up, was out of the way, but Storm broke the fall. Regal finally earned the match. Finished saw Storm pulled Kane's mask around so he couldn't see. Accidentally choked slam Van Dam. Regal pinned Van Dam to win the match. Van Dam walked out on Kane afterwards. Two and a quarter stars. I asked Bix, this is the beginning of the Rob Van Dam Kane angle, which leads to Kane being unmasked. Yes, the bromance that they actually made a good te- good enough team together. But character-wise, RVD was not the right guy to be in that spot when they did the unmasking in the heel turn. No. It just did not fit to have the laid-back stoner be the one that was trying to uh, to convince Kane to come back to the light. It just didn't fit. It just didn't click. It just He he just wasn't the right guy. Who do you think would have been the right guy? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of tough. It would, the, the way wrestling was in that time period, the, who would you think would be that type of person that can get the sympathy or something like that? I don't know. I, I think he probably That's was on the, the main best. roster at the time. He probably was the probably was the best choice, especially that he would have had history with. Yeah, I mean, I guess he kind of had to. I, you could still do the turn. You don't need to do you know the few weeks of segments where RVD is like, "It's okay, Kane." Especially since it turns out you're not hideously scarred. <laughs> yeah, even though we were led to believe that all those years. That is funny how, you know, you get how Kane looks after you mask, and then the next week he went to clean himself up. You know, it's like, hey, what happened to all this stuff that he was supposed to have? Well, okay, so <laughs> I've never heard an explanation, but I was always under the impression that the first week they had some kind of makeup job they planned that did not go well or wiped off or something. Or they thought that the black paint around his eyes looking like scorch marks was somehow enough. Plus the thing they did with his hair. But clearly they heard the reaction and just decided to drop it and go with him having a Dr. Doom complex. But weird. And then also there was the whole thing where for years to keep up the gimmick that's never talked about of him not being able to grow hair on the front half of his head... He kept nearing the top, the front half of his head for the next however many years. So his, the back of his head could look shaved, but the rest of his head didn't. He just wanted to get that damn mask off. We all know how adverse he is to want to wear masks these days. Oh, clearly. Yes. <laughs> um, backstage, Matt Hardy made fun of Jeff for losing his match. Jeff slapped him. Of course, they're on different shows. So there you go. Matt Hardy won the Cruiserweight title from Billy Kidman in 931. This had the least crowd reaction live. Kidman and Scott early. People got into it by the finish. As a kid, Mr. Shooting Star Press and a lot of near falls to the crowd doing their two chants in French. When Shannon Mortis tried to Kidman, Hardy won with a twist of fate off the ropes. Three stars. There you go. Matt Hardy, Cruiserweight champion. Next, Undertaker of a big show with a triangle choke at 1408. Undertaker bladed after three headbutts by show early. Undertaker has taken his Joe Weider supplements of late because he had a new McMahon body. <laughs> show blew up fast. Undertaker had totally carried this. He mostly sold 
That's a big comeback. Ending when Undertaker had showed tapping from the Dragon Sleeper. Paul Heyman shut the referee, so he missed it. Atria hit the ring for the save. Undertaker did a running dive over the top on the both show and train. Finish saw the show do a sloppy choke slam. We went for the cover. Undertaker used triangle. Crowd live really didn't understand the move. A-Train laid out Undertaker after the match with a tree slam. Two stars. Yeah, Tyler, why in the hell are they going this long with these two guys here? I have no idea what they were thinking. Watching this back uh, earlier today, you just uh, it just didn't make any sense. These guys didn't need that much time. No. I mean, it, it, it is, it's like Dave said, Dix, this is not a, a main event match. It's, it's mid-card on the pay-per-view. I mean, what the hell's going on? Besides bad booking? Or it's just... This whole, like, extended on and off feud they had was very strange. Yeah, I mean, and yes, Undertaker had kind of changed. You could tell this change in his body, you know? He wasn't showing it off as much until a year later after, when, with the comeback and the different gear, but yeah. Yeah, because he's still, uh, he's still Booger Red at this point, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, he's still Booger Red Battletaker era. Undertaker. Yes. Also, it just it took me a second after you read it from the previous match, but uh, I believe this run through Canada is the origin of the two chants. Um, I think that's where it really got going, but I think it actually started before. Yeah. Well, there was there's the one show in particular. Maybe it's one later in the year. I don't know. There's a Toronto Raw I remember that was just abysmal, and the crowd is started doing the two chants to entertain themselves and then it caught on. Yeah. Yeah, and then this is yeah, this is where it really catches on, absolutely. Alright, next. Brock Lesnar, Chris Benoit, what a team, over Kurt Angle and Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin in a handicap match. Team Angle. In thirteen nineteen, Angle and Lesnar worked too much together to keep the specialness of their first meeting in Mania intact. Benoit used German suplex on Angle, three more on Benjamin. Benjamin at one point nearly splattered Lesnar's nose with a super kick. Very physical, hard style match. Lesnar made a hot tag game angle and Benjamin Billy by suplexes that put them nearly into orbit. Match into a great series of ankle lock crossface reversals by Benoit Angle. Haas saved Angle from a crossface, but Benoit then locked Haas in the crossface while Lesnar delivered F5 to Angle to stop him from making the save as Haas stabbed. Four stars. Yeah, it's a hell of a match. And Vapor's an interesting point, Tyler, in this. Did Brock and Angle work too much together in this match? I honestly loved it any time Brock and Kurt worked together. Uh, but I do get his point that the first match was supposed to be at WrestleMania, and they did interact a fair amount, but it was great. It was a great tease for what was to come. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, get, I, mean, I totally get what Dave is saying here, Bix. And, you know, Mania is the, their first singles match. You kind of want to, you know, have a uh, specialness factor, and you kind of lose it here when they, you know, have so much interaction in, in this type of situation. Yeah. I mean, I get the idea. I don't think they have them there on opposite sides again until mania, but given that this is, you know, the most anticipated, you know, match in the company at the time, I think realistically, it is a little weird that they're not just waiting on mania to have them even have any kind of match with each other. Yeah, I mean, there's some matches. Yeah, you yeah you can you can do stuff like that, but this is kind of a big fucking deal, you know. And 
I know I wouldn't have had him touch until Mania myself personally. So, but it is what it is. Well, they we shouldn't have touched us at Mania the way things turned out. Eat, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next, we the pay per view starts going downhill. Triple H pinned Scott Steiner at thirteen oh one. Crowd had turned on Steiner after seeing him throw punches for ninety seconds. Crowd started chanting Steiner sucks. Then they started chanting you screw Brett as ref- at referee or Hebner. Steiner took a hard shot into the steps. Then came the loud boring chants. Triple H and Hebner did a spot designed to get the ref over his bay face, but that wasn't the best idea. Triple H took the Harley race bump over the top. Steiner used a fallaway slam off the ropes, but Ric Flair made the save. Steiner put Triple H in the recliner when Rick signaled to the back. Just as a warning to those who don't know history and are doing the repeat it, the time right before the bottom fell at Jim Crow Promotions attendance was when Sting had Flair in the Scorpion and fans, instead of cheering because they were expecting a title change, all turned to the back, figuring the run in before it came. Yep. Randy Orton and Dave Batista came out. The buffer Scott, Scott turned babyface. Well, they accomplished the first part. Triple H nailed Steiner with the belt shot for near fall, then pinned him at their pedigree. Three quarters of a star. All right, let's watch this because this is I'm, I'm interested to watch this. I haven't watched this since it aired live. So let's watch this finish and see how all this played out. I gotta stop just to say because it's already very evident for whatever you want to say about these matches just being bad because of Triple H making them go way too long whether he thought he could show he could carry Steiner and he couldn't or if his job was to expose him either way the degree to which he clearly tried to blow him up and which he succeeded at is incredibly unprofessional <laughs> Because Steiner is dead here. Yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder why. But I I guess it's something, you know, getting his jollies off and doing that, but you're sacrificing yourself to do that because people are going to talk about you too. I I think he did to some degree think, oh, I'm the super worker, I can carry him. You know, worst case, I expose that he's not at this level, but the the fact you're also doing this to someone who has health, these health issues that are already making this run difficult, you know, with the lower back issues and the drop foot, and you're making the guy whose offense is throwing you around get blown up? Like, what? Yeah. And real quick before you, well, real quick before you restart the clip. That's that's coach on play by play with Law. There, because Ross wasn't on Raw, so there you go. Steiner nearly working. Whoa! Oh, oh, it's Randy Orton right over on the top of Big Batista. Of order in this match. Wait, I think he's telling these guys they're being ejected. I think he, he is ejected. 
Batista, here's Flair. No, not Page. Just Batista and Orton. Oh, he's got the guy. Triple H just nailed Big Papa Pump with that World Heavyweight title. As referee Earl Hebner is tossing out Evolution. Looks like that may be his closest honor ever gets to the The crowd's reaction to the false finish is one, two. I think all their plans at this point have been blown up in their face, King. Yeah, something's blown up. Well, they've already gone to plan B and C. What about D? The pedigree. Oh, the pedigree. That's he. He nailed the pedigree. Will this be enough? He remains. Yes. Yes. Triple H still the world heavyweight champion. So he's so smart enough heel to cheat, and then he beats him clean anyway. (laughs) <laughs> smartest man in wrestling yes there's damn bizarro canadian fans tyler how dare y'all uh you know go the opposite way of what you're supposed to do here oh i don't think that had anything to do with being canadian i think you would have got a similar reaction just about anywhere this scott standard <laughs> run was not good he him i mean why I mean, he miscast is is not the word for this I mean, he should he should not have been a babyface. No, it was the complete and total opposite. Like there is nothing likable about this big Papa Pump character, which is not a bad thing if you're a heel. But when you're the main event babyface, it's awful. Absolutely. I mean, big. So I mean, do you remember why? Because I don't remember why they they had him as a babyface. I, I have no idea why they did that. I think it was the kind of we know he's going to be over kind of as a baby face as a new face kind of thing, especially because I believe he was one of the names that got cheered um, two years earlier uh, on the Nitro simulcast. When Vince well, yeah, but, yeah, but, 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 but yeah, you got to also understand that there's those type of heels that fans are going to cheer when they're heels, but when they're baby face, not going to cheer. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that a lot of wrestling people don't get that there is that significance and it's not just in you know big promotion wrestling it's in indie wrestling too i mean there are guys that the fans are going to cheer when they're heels and you think oh well I, i've got to listen to the fans gotta make a baby face that don't always work you make a baby face and the fans are like eh, i don't like this guy no more that's a baby face he's going against what he was about, you know, if you're going to turn a heel baby face like that, you better keep them as close as their persona as you can. God knows look at all the mistakes we've seen over the years. So, yeah, but this, this totally did not work. Absolutely. It did not work. And I kind of, kind of felt bad for Scott Steiner, you know, because he was just set up to fail completely. Because it's a big run in WWE, you know, singles run. He's not with his brother. He's working in the main events against Triple H, who, you know, is the top guy at the time. And, yeah, (laughs) doesn't work out the way, you know, you expect it. That's for sure. But anyway, we'll have more on Scott Steiner to go along, I'm sure. Next, we get Stone Cold Steve Austin bitting Eric Bischoff in 428-6 of a scream-along with JR session. 
Austin looked bigger, as noted a few weeks ago. He basically destroyed Bischoff and beat him up pretty good. The only moment of offense Bischoff got was an eye rake and a kick to the chest, which Austin laughed off. Gave him a stunner, picked him up at two, then did the second time, picked him up. Then the third stunner got a pin. A big part of Austin's routine is gone, the post-match beard deal, due to the terms of his probation in his domestic assault case. By letter to law, Austin is not allowed to drink any alcohol until November 25th. At the time of sentencing, Assistant Bexar County District Attorney Scott, I'm not Nikita Simpson, <laughs> only Dave would make that joke, said that they would likely not enforce it when it came to his beer celebration deal because that would be considered play-acting. Apparently, it had been a change of heart after he did the beer deal at the Raw ended on February 10th in Los Angeles. He was told by court officials that if he continued to do it, that they were considered a probation violation. That screwed up on their part. Also, they actually use near beer as opposed to real beer in Los Angeles, but the court has to not do it at all because domestic sins. He left the ring, came back to watch the curtain call light responses, two and a quarter stars. Yeah, I, I get it, though. It's a glorif- yeah, but you, It's glorifying the thing he's supposed to not be doing that clearly contributed to the domestic violence. But here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Don't, don't tell him he could do it to begin with. No, I agree. I mean, well, yeah, that's 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 the thing. I got yeah. over. I, I agree with you, but if you tell him it's okay, and you're like, oh, we change our mind. No, that, that's no. I don't like that. No, you know, I don't, right, well, I don't like them flip flopping like that. Um, I realized though, we were gonna play the clip of the finish. We should probably play the return pop. Yeah, first because yeah, yeah, you're right. They had right. done the thing where kind of teased that he wasn't going to be there but only in a way where you knew that he was going to really be there to make the pop bigger if that makes sense yeah so yeah you can hear me back then we still have time to do the right thing and i will forfeit this match to you right now It's also so fucking awesome this time period. The smarm. Oh, God. But, oh, yeah. Ross. <laughs> Ross and so by fun. God, he come here and kick some ass. Let's kick somebody's ass. <laughs> All right, let's go to the finish. We get the full thing. 
evening. And I missed that mean streak, didn't you, JR? You damn right. And so these Austin fans, isn't wearing the fans the here, but he's definitely on something. Austin is as nasty and as evil as any human being. Meanwhile, Kevin Dunn is having a seizure. Man, the Texas rattlesnake is back! The Texas rattlesnake is back here! I know! We're not going to get him to sit down! We're not going to get him to sit down, and that's okay! We're 16,000 standing! We're going to help him out here! Let us stand up with you! Bischoff got what he deserved! He got exactly what he deserved! Classic, but us uh, us Canadians led to some some Steve Austin, didn't they, Tyler? Oh yeah, he was always over huge here. And I mean, I thought that match was perfect and everything that it needed to be. Yes, yeah. I mean, he went and beat the shit out of him. I mean, that's exactly what you want. So that 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 was a uh, was great booking there. The the previous match notwithstanding <laughs> that was great booking right be that as it may and then from there <laughs> yeah nevertheless <laughs> but um so yeah there you go still cool steve austin back and then we get the rock beating hulk hogan at 12 20 rock got very little reaction coming out part of it also may have been his new music but even when he came out, people didn't know whether to cheer or boo, even though he had ring presence like nobody's business. Hogan tried the bump. Rock went for a rock bottom right away. Hogan barely off the ground. His knees and back are shot. No matter how much his tan and physique despite disguise his condition. People were always at, react to him, though. Like, it's like watching The Crusher and Mad Dog Vachon in the 80s. Rock did a people's elbow, struggling little response. Did a second one, pausing to do a Hogan pose. Hogan kicked out, hulked up. Also surprised a little reaction. Well, let's go to the clip. This question ain't right, don't mean it didn't work. And here comes a rock bottom, courtesy of the rock. Oh, oh look out, that was Buster. And this is or was the most electrifying move in sports entertainment today. After tonight, they may have to rename the People's Elbow. Surprised they didn't throw that elbow pad back at the rock. How about the I'm in love with myself elbow? <laughs> Uh-oh, here we go, people's elbow direct to the heart of Hogan, the Rock. What's this? He's just having fun to rock. What the hell? Oh, mocking Hogan as he delivers another elbow. The cover, that's it. leg on Hogan. It's two with oh. Hogan, kicks out, powers out. The Hulk's just hulking up. Hulkamania. Do 
something else. The right hand's having little effect. Many have tried before to hoax his feet with it. Listen to this crowd. Hulkamania lives in Montreal. Oh, just, at least for now. Oh, he just brings the people right into it. That's going to be pretty good. I do not remember the crowd getting so defensive. Lock ripped across the ring by The end is there. You know what's next, my man. Big Dick Hulk Hogan. Light drop in the house. Hogan off the ropes. Yeah. Sylvan Granier. <laughs> well, you know, Sasaki. <laughs> oh my goodness! All right, let me read this and then we'll uh, talk about it. it. Says uh, when the lights came back on, everyone was laid out in the chair in the ring. Vince strutted down the ring. Gran- Granier sh- shoved the chair to the rock. Who clapped Hogan with it? Hogan played it. Rocket the rock bottom. 
Grenier popped up an arm and count three. Vince took off his shirt, looking like a guy a month away from competing in the Mr. Olympia over 55 contest. They really used to have something similar to that until a few years ago. Dud. Yeah, I like how Vince took off his shirt and all this to celebrate. But uh, Tyler, yeah, we're in Montreal. So you know we got to do it again. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know you're going Hogan-Vince at WrestleMania, so it's not like you have to keep Hogan strong to fight the non-wrestler. The Rock's going to go over Austin in a month. I mean, why not just have this go over clean? Or why not just do a finish that's not playing off the Montreal screw job? But, I mean, they had – I think it's something just they had to do. It has to be done. You know? Well, also – Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Never getting that win back, brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also, you know, I mean, they tried to babyface Earl Hebner earlier in the show, so you had that, and then you have this. So, I mean, they can't help themselves, and they kept recreating this stuff years later after this in Montreal too. Yep, it's they just can't they can't help themselves. Amazing. Fix any thoughts? I love Vince doing the Hogan shtick. With the Hogan shirt on, too. <laughs> yes. And good lord, is he uh, jacked there. Yeah, that's what Dave, I mean, Dave was saying. Because, <laughs> I mean, let's look at... Alright, yeah, Vince, right at this point in time here, this is 2003. I mean, Vince, he's 58 years old. He doesn't look like a real person. No. He's 58. <laughs> oh, a low angle camera shot to make him look even bigger. <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, and now we've got. <laughs> well, we're doing a most it. muscular to close the show. Close the show. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's go to the torch. The screw job of Hogan at the Montreal Preview was filmed with a special night vision camera. That picked up what happened when the lights were off, i.e. signals between Rock and the referee and the ref's fake collapse. The idea was Hogan could use the footage to prove the McMahon, Rock, and the ref were all in on the screw job. Not sure when or even if they're going to use the footage. It's possible it did turn out well. Well, also, they have him obviously slide the chair to Rock anyway. Yeah, that was in broad daylight. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they use this though, right? Uh, I don't remember it, Tyler. You, I don't remember this happening. No, I don't ever remember seeing it. And they seem to do a pretty good job of explaining it as they went. I wouldn't think you'd need something extra. Yeah, I don't think so either. So, hmm. They, they were a little extra and didn't even need it. How about that? All right, well, let's go to Raw. The Rock is the smartest man in wrestling. What well, he used to used to refer to SmackDown as the Rock Show. Raw on February 24th in Toronto in front of 10,000 fans became The Rock's true one-man show. He, Triple H wanted to stay backstage so as not get a stage because everyone, including Hogan on SmackDown, did on this night. All right, so Bischoff came out after losing a horrible fight with a makeup girl with fake bruising and swelling, arm in a sling, and limping badly to sell the beating from Austin on pay-per-view. At least somebody here gets that. Rock came out and did the most amazing interview and in then he played with the crowd and got all his frustrations out. He made fun of them for chanting his name. He made fun of them when they popped because he mentioned Toronto. He made fun of them for booing him at WrestleMania. They even chanted, you sold out at him without prompting, causing him to make fun of them even more. Very entertaining. 
Yeah, did he try to get across for Austin is that he was man Austin was better as rest of the decade. Was it that a fixed election? <laughs> we're not playing this because it's so fucking long. Tyler, I mean, you were there live for this. Des- describe the, you know, the whole experience of Rock doing this promo and the crowd's reaction, everything here. This was absolutely amazing to be there for live because The Rock wasn't advertised for the show. So we were very surprised that he was actually there. So to have him come out and cut a promo like this and the way he played with the audience and made you dislike him. Like this run for me by far is my favorite three month run that The Rock ever had. It's like they did everything right with The Rock here that they did wrong with Steve Austin's heel turn a couple of years earlier. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Hollywood Rock was, you know, was a, such an easy character to hate, and he was fantastic in doing it. Absolutely. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing is too is that he's a heel, but he's got legit grievances with this because of how everything went the year earlier in Toronto, a mania. And also you know, with how the crowd reacted at Nassau at SummerSlam too. He's speaking his truth. Yes. We also should mention, since it hasn't come up yet, that as awesome as the Hollywood rock intro with the helicopter and the long intro and the different music and stuff, as great as that was, he he had an even longer and more pretentious version for pay-per-view. Oh, yes. Yes. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah, this is... This is tremendous rock stuff right here. Great time. All right. Jazz beat Jacqueline at 224 with the STF. Real bad. Jacqueline's missing everything. Trish Stratus came out for a pull up with Jazz after the match. Victoria did commentary, but didn't say much. Jacqueline's got to be close to the end here, right? Because she's gone. And gotta be gone in I'm not sure I even knew she was in the company by this point. I know. It shocked me when I read it. Good lord, wow. And I'm still here. I'm googling to see when she's done. Let's see. As I pull up Wikipedia, the number one source for wrestling information. Uh, Turned WWF slash entertainment through 2004. Okay, here's here's what they say about later in her run. In 2002, Moore became a referee with her debut match being women's championship bout between Jazz and Trish Stratus at the Rumble. Later in the year, she and Trish do a uh, feud with Victoria in a three-way feud. Then they have a four-way feud with Jazz added in. Seldom appeared throughout late 2003, early 2004. Um, Oh, God, the Cruiserweight Championship thing was until 04. Oh, Jesus. And she lost the title a few weeks before she got released. Well, yeah, I would guess so. Wow. Man, she lasted way longer than we thought. So she had a... She had an almost six-year run. Full-time. Yeah. Yeah, good for her. Tess pushed out much fun yet picking the girls for the Girls Gone Wild pay-per-view. We actually don't have any to talk about that during our week proper. It is surrounding our week, but Vix, uh, you want to elaborate on the Girls Gone Wild WWE shared deal here? Eric Bischoff made some kind of deal where WWF would do a live Girls Gone Wild pay-per-view, and it was this disaster where, like, 
despite it being a Girls Gone Wild pay-per-view, they were insisting on no nudity. Or something, <laughs> or close to it, something like that. And it resulted in a show that not only didn't do well, but also uh, had a negative reception even among those who would just be buying it as a Girls Gone Wild show. Yeah. Wasn't there, isn't, like, I don't remember if this is actually sourced from any of the newsletters, but the urban legend that people repeat these days is that they were worried that it would hurt the sales of whichever Playboy was coming out. I think Tori Wilson. Will, yeah, we'll be talking about that, yes. Uh-huh. Then why even do it? Well, why even do it then? I don't know. You know, I mean, why even, you know, go with this if you're if you're worried that this is going to happen didn't kevin dunn end up missing tvs over it too yes well that wasn't a bad thing so i guess something good came out of it you should go back and look at those tvs that he wasn't there at and see compared to when he, when he is there see how much of a difference it made but anyway uh they aired a tape goldust interview where he debuted his tourette syndrome gimmick the crowd live laughed at him as he did it and cheered the promo when it was over. They thought it was a pretty bad taste. Oh, I guess we got to play this. Yeah. Because this will come up later on the show. So, all right, Bix. You getting, you got, you getting it ready or got yeah, it ready? I got it. Screen chair should be working now, right? Yeah. All right. So, let's go to uh, Goldust and his uh, impediment. So, Goldust, let's get right to the heart of the matter. How are you feeling these days? This is earlier this week at the WWE Studios in beautiful Stanford, Connecticut, by the way. Mm-hmm. Question is, after last week's beating, how are you feeling, JR? Well, uh, I'll, I'll be all right, but I'm a whole lot more concerned about you. And Give us an update. Well, I was electrocuted, you know. There's, you either die or you live. And uh, happily, I lived. And, and hopefully soon, I'll be back. Your good friend Booker T said that uh, on a recent interview that Good old Goldie wasn't quite right. Uh, there's also been rumors abounding that uh, you have some neurological challenges you're trying to overcome. How do you address those rumors? Well, there's been a, a lot of rumors for a lot of years about Goldust not being right. And as far as Booker T's concerned, he's my best friend. He's been my supporter. The fans have su- <laughs> supported me through thick and thin. Excuse me? They've supported me. I feel good. I feel as good as I feel uh, uh, as good as gold. I'm coming back. Ah, G- gold us. I'm. I don't think I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that uh, there's something wrong here. Well, I, I think there's something wrong too. You know, the doctors don't mm-mm, don't don't mm, don't don't really know what's wrong with me. You know, uh, as, but they say as long as I take take my medication that 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 uh you know everything will, ah, will work work itself out so you know that's, ah, that's all i can say if you had the opportunity to say something to the two men that did this to you randy orton and batista what would it be randy orton and batista you don't know what it feels like to be on the edge of death but when this is all over said and done you will Never forget the name of Gold Dust. 
Okay, he does it. I mean, he does it, but it's not as what it would be. No, in the as... next week or two. It would get much more over the top. Yeah. Like, here they <laughs> even have the restraint of not having him doing do it at the end when he goes into serious problems. Yeah, because I was expecting that, because I haven't watched this Oh, forever. yeah, me too. I was expecting it to be, like, remember name of... Cold, bah, 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 or whatever the hell stupid fake Tourette's he would do, you know, like, yeah, <coughs> excuse me, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty tame. But so, Tyler, you were in the crowd. Uh, what are your memories of the how the crowd reacted to this? Were they laughing, as I said here? Yeah, they went right along with it. They seemed to actually be pretty into it. And it always made me wonder, like, when it went so over the top moving forward, if it actually could have worked, if they could have kept the restraint and kept it at this level. It would have been, you know, better than what it was, I guess. <laughs> because, good Lord, I mean, it got way over the top. But that's WWE. I mean, they'll take something and they will go over the top, beat into the ground and all that stuff. You know? That's what they do. But uh, there you go. Gold dust. Came pin last storm clean at Tucho Sanson 223. After the match, they teased the cinch between Kane and Van Dam. Scott Steiner and Booker beat Randy Orton and Batista in 746 when Booker pinned Orton at the rolling throw on a crossbite up top. Booker did a hell of a job working almost the entire match. He was the first guy to make Batista look good so far. Really good action when Orton was in. Crowd boots Steiner and he was in, which is very little. JR claimed it was because Steiner was wearing a U.S. flag on his ring outfit. But they didn't say anyone ever noticed it. Well, Tyler, was was that stuff that people noticed? Or they just booing Steiner because they wanted to boo him? Oh, they just wanted to boo him. He still looked tired for the match the night before. He did not <laughs> look like a guy that should be out there. And I think they... I don't know if this was the night they made the decision or not, but you could tell based on the rumble and the no way out. And then this performance, he got out of the WrestleMania plans really quick. Yeah. And Bix, it was for, you know, sucks for Scott Steiner, but it, it was the right decision. Yeah. And you know what? He was up to it. It's also not entirely his fault that they put him in this kind of position. No, set him up to fail to such a degree either. He wasn't. Yeah, he, he, he's not booking. You know, and, and and it's their fault for not knowing how to work around his limitations. You know, he could still do a, a job. As I mean, look, look at him at TNA. His TNA run was far superior to WWE. So, anyway, all right. During a commercial break. They had Jericho and Christian cut an anti-Canada promo live, talking about how they left Canada and moved to Tampa, Florida. So then on camera, when they came out, everyone cheered them anyway. Tested Stacey Keebler beat Jericho and Christian by DQ in 116. Bishop put this together because Tess and Stacey laughed at him at the pay-per-view. Jericho hit Tess from the referee with a chair right away. Christian laid Tess out with the prettier. They handcuffed Tess and Rose, and Jericho abused Stacey, putting her in the, the walls while Tess couldn't break free. Actually, a hell of a deal. Jeff Hardy ran in, but they made him look like a goof. Jericho had stationed the crap for so long, the Toronto fans popped huge for Shawn Michaels, who they were waiting to boo when he made the save. Michaels laid out Christian with a super kit while Jericho escaped. Good angle. Yeah. I'm, that, that, it actually worked, Tyler. I mean, that actually worked. And where Shawn in Toronto is getting a big ovation here. 
it took so long live that it was getting uncomfortable how long that crab was on, and everyone was looking to the back like somebody missed a cue and there was a problem somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know something's going to happen, it doesn't happen, you're like, okay, well, all right, need day now. And then when it does happen, they, you know, they eventually pop, and it was Sean, of all people. I also like but, the yeah. baby face against the Canadians who are bragging about moving to Superior, Florida, is a Canadian who moved to Florida. <laughs> Test. <laughs> yes. That is funny. And here it is again, Tyler. We talked about trying to get the Canadian heels to uh, turn heel in Canada with promos. Bash in Canada. They always gave it a try, and I know specifically with Jericho, all the shows that I went to after this, it just never seemed to work for him. No matter what they did, he would get cheered no matter what. You would think they would just figure it out. It's, it's just ain't going to work. <laughs> you would think they would, but they kept trying. Jeff Hardy pinned Chris Nowinski at 14 seconds after a swanton. Did he get beat it on the whiskey afterwards? Referee reversed the decision. They're putting Jeff through a loser streak gimmick. Have you ever noticed that wrestlers who are putting embarrassing gimmicks usually don't recover well from them? Sean Stasiak comes to mind of play. Yeah, I mean, Jeff eventually, you know, he gets out of it and everything, but uh, Jeff had other problems fixed that would have prohibited him from doing things. Well, yeah, I was going to say the the losing streak is probably to send him a message. Yeah. He, he had much more serious issues to worry about than being booked to do jobs. All right, well, now let's go to The Rock. He's, uh, he's playing guitar. It's time to sing along with The Rock. But the hurricane shows up. So let's go to the clip. Yeah, that's right. You heard what The Rock said. The Rock said that. You watch the show earlier? Yeah, The Rock said. Hey, listen, the fact of the matter is this. If Stone Cold Steve Austin doesn't like what The Rock said, then Stone Cold Steve Austin can march his candy ass Right there to Nassau Coliseum, The Rock's home away from home. Get right in the middle of the ring and tell The Rock face-to-face he didn't like it. It's just that simple. It's really easy. You know that, baby. Yeah. That pie ready. (laughs) All right. And stop bothering me at work. You know that, baby. The loving's going to have to wait till the business is done. Damn, I got a big match tonight. All right, baby. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Be concerned about Stone Cold. Hell is this, King? Uh oh. Dealing with the Stone Cold Stone. Oh, a Rock go back to Hollywood sign because definitely the best sign to bring against The Rock is to tell him to go back somewhere. Because that always (laughs) works out well when you say that to people of color. (laughs) Well. Still, not the verbiage I want to use. No, I'm saying you can tweak it. No, 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 no. My point is, that's the kind of thing where I say you just tweak it a little and it sounds, and it's fine. Yeah, but you're you're reaching. No, you get what I'm saying, though. (laughs) Kind of. You used to be an idol, an icon, loved by millions and millions. Yet tonight you come out. And you trash the people. What's up with that? I forgot how much less he exaggerated the voice and accent at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're over a year into the gimmick, too. Mm Mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> Who in the green hell are you? Oh, no, no, you know, don't answer that. The Rock knows who you are. Oh, yeah, The Rock knows exactly who you are. Is it green shirt, H on your chest, green mask? Oh, you're the Hamburglar. Yeah, you're that cat that works for McDonald's. Go get me a cheeseburger. Go get The Rock a cheeseburger. No ketchup. As a matter of fact, no, no, don't go nowhere. The Rock knows exactly who you are. Yeah, yeah, you're the resident superhero, the hurricane. The Rock knows who you are, my man. Yeah, don't you ever bust in the Rock store like that again. You hear? Hey, but what's more importantly than that, The Rock remind you of something. You ain't nothing. You understand that? Every superhero can whip that ass, every single one of them. Every single one of them. Superman, Batman, Aquaman. Oh, yeah, Aquaman, the dude that talks to the fish, he'll whip that little candy ass just like that. Well, I know one superhero who I could definitely beat. <laughs> this is a joke. Who? The Scorpion King. Oh, no, you... You're, no, 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 there is no way you can beat the Scorpion King. You know, Brandon Fraser beat the Scorpion King. But that, 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 he did not. <laughs> that was a special effect for the movie, for Christ. The Scorpion King Let is the most powerful. You one question, Rock. Just one more. Can the Rock fly? You're just smoking them funny cigarettes. The Rock can fly and whip that candy ass. The Rock We're good. Because tonight the hurricane is going to send your candy ass flying over the top rope in that battle royal. There's a special effect for the movie. Oh. I don't know if I believe what I just saw. What is Hurricane thinking? The best part of all of these segments they do together is that every time at the end, The Rock it reacts with his eyes and his head movement like Hurricane is actually flying away. <laughs> and it gets more exaggerated every week. <laughs> like, here it's more subtle. In a month, it, like, his head looks like it's going to spin around. <laughs> and God bless the Rock here for making Hurricane look as strong in these segments as he did. You know, Hurricane got over just about every time in the segments. Not when so, I'm through with him. <laughs> there's your difference there between one Triple H and the Rock, that's for sure. And the crowd was loving it. So, yeah, did a lot for Hurricane. All right, you, since you heard Lawler's music, Lawler pinned Chief Morley, another Canadian heel in 446. When Dudley's laid Morley out in the 3D, Lawler pinned him after a fist drop. Dave noted Morley has taken a lot of vitamins in recent weeks. <laughs> well, he's the uh, MILF hunter. It's good for performance. <laughs> also, talk During about the, the MILF hunter versus not the MILF hunter. <laughs> During the commercial break before the match, his fans were chanting, you screw Brett at referee Earl Hebner. Lawler asked Earl if he was going to screw him. During the break after the match, Hebner took even more heat. He went to Jerome Williams, a.k.a. the Junkyard Dog. And at, the, not, you know, another version of Junkyard Dog. And asked him if, asked if he screwed Brett, and Jerome said he didn't. Crowd started booing their hometown basketball star for that one. Had to grab a sign that read Brett screwed Brett, and the crowd turned on a bat after that one. Gee, I wonder, wonder if more... that was Bahari whose sign that was. <laughs> wonder how many more years this goes on. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, just you wait, Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah, J- Jerome Williams, the junkyard doll, played for the Toronto Raptors. And, uh, you know, obviously a big wrestling fan. He's there. And uh, Tyler, yeah, this this wasn't on TV. So what are your memories of, of this thing here with uh, Hebner and J- Jerome Williams? It was a little weird to see JYD get booed in Toronto like that. He was, even though we had Vince Carter, JYD was the most popular player on the Raptors at the time. Yes, he was. And you don't usually see the hometown sports hero get booed, but he got booed pretty hard. Because he agreed with Rohan. <laughs> oh, man. That is hilarious. All right. Um. So next... Uh... We have the uh, show Battle Royal ending to see who gets uh, the shot shot Triple H at Mania. Yes, that's how they determined who would wrestle Triple H at WrestleMania, a Battle Royal. So anyway, they claimed the last Battle Royal Raw was in 1995 and won by Owen Hart. Dave, sure, that's not true. Several point out 1996 Battle Royal won by Ahmed Johnson. And Dave seemed to recall before the Rumble that had what amounted to being a Battle Royal but called an overtop elimination match. That's what it was called. One of the over top, over the top challenge, something like that. And they were, they also had the uh, the corporate rumble as well in '99. Yeah, yes. Tess won the crew because Jericho, but Jericho tossed him out right away. When Tess came back, Jericho jumped over the top voluntarily and ran away from him. Rock ended up leaving the ring and announcing and basically stealing the show. Match came down to Kane, Booker, Steiner, Christian, and The Rock. Kane threw out Steiner. Rock came back from the broadcast position through our Christian and Kane. Rock worked a few spots to Booker until Booker tossed him over at 1225. And then to show that Rock learned from Hogan, he Hoganed Booker. He put him over, sound the crowd, and clapped for him. Somehow Hogan outsmarted Jim Helwig in the same city 13 years earlier, thereby getting credit for everyone for putting a guy over while in reality stealing the scene from the guy who needed to focus on him at that moment. Rock had even more fun at the show. He goofed off Vince Carter and Jerome Williams of the Raptors, who at ringside looked like they were getting up to leave. He had Booker do a spin-a-rooney, and then he did a not-so-hot version of himself. Booker laid him out with the, with the rock bottom. Then Rock turned total bay face in the crowd, saying he would always be Toronto's champion, found a mentally challenged kid, had him do the can-you-smell catchphrase, making him ultimate baby face, and leaving him to a standing ovation. Now that was something. He insulted the crowd in every way possible, and every time they tried to cheer for him, he made more fun of them. And when it was over, he still got a standing ovation. A lot of fans were upset also once it there. They didn't get mad during the show. Some people at home saw the bumpers for Austin return to Nassau Coliseum. The people live in the building only saw bumpers for Austin with a Nassau part cut off the screen. Uh. So they were happy to get the again. Bishop off announced for the show Austin was banned from the building, which meant people expect him that much more. Austin was never announced locally, so people just assumed. But he was advertising newspaper TV listings as being on the show. Triple H was advertised everywhere as being on the show and wasn't, but nobody seemed to care about that. <laughs> All right, well, let's take, let's take Rock here first. Um, I mean, that's amazing, Tyler, how The Rock, you know, put on this virtuoso performance in front of y'all that night. Oh, it was excellent. As soon as the TV cameras went off, he turned into a completely different guy and straight to babyface and did about the worst spinneroonie I've ever seen. It was awesome. Yeah, I mean... You know, and the cameras are off, so, I mean, if you're going to do something like that, that's when you do it, you know? Yes. Now, as for the other thing, I don't think that's Rock trying to one-up Booker. I think that's just that they had a decent amount of time left in the show, and you couldn't just have Booker stand there celebrating the whole time. 
Yeah, I mean that was a Hogan Warrior. I don't no. think it was. That was totally different. The the applauding right. is a li- the applauding and not doing it sarcastically is a little out of character for this version of The Rock. But other than that, yeah. All right, the Austin deal. This is you know interesting to talk about. So, were you guys fully expecting Austin to be at this show, even though it wasn't announced locally? Well, this is one of those things where uh, Dave actually has this wrong. Okay. Uh, so yes, I actually bought tickets to this show expecting to see Austin not necessarily wrestle, but at least cut a promo with him returning the pay-per-view the night before. Um, definitely expected to see him on this show. And there were two things that I wanted when we got tickets and that I was really looking forward to. I had never got to see RVD wrestle live, so I was really excited about that. And I was hoping to see Steve Austin. And right when I thought the heat taping was ending about 15 minutes before regular showtime, they flashed the graphic on the screen that said Steve Austin returns to Raw next week at the Nassau Coliseum. So at that point, I said, screw it. And I got up to go to the bathroom before the show starts. And as soon as I got into the men's room, that's when RVD's music hit. And I got just back to the entrance to see the five-star frog splash on Stevie Richards for Sunday Night Heat. (laughs) So basically, the two things that I had gone to see didn't happen. And I was a little perturbed about the whole thing, thinking, oh, man, what's the rest of this going to be like? Took my seat, and the show started with The Rock, who we weren't expecting. And it turned out to be a great experience. So people in the building knew that Austin was going to be back in Nassau. Yeah, we saw the same graphic that played on TV okay. while they were taping the Sunday Night Heat matches, but they did not show it to us during the show proper. Okay, but okay. did they show an yeah. altered graphic during the show, or did they just not show the graphic at all during the live run? I couldn't see the screen from my seat. Okay. So I couldn't okay. tell you so what was on the screen. walking in, but gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Interesting. And uh, Triple H was it? Y'all weren't upset that he wasn't there, right? He wasn't missed at all. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm like I said. I'm sure that you weren't alone in that because you know normally you would have got a 20 minute Triple H promo up in the show, and that would have went lovely. Well, the thing is, the the show flowed so well, and The Rock was so good at what he did that, honestly, it wasn't until I got home that I realized that Triple H didn't even show anywhere. Yeah. And and think about that. I mean, Triple H is the focus of Raw, and he doesn't show up, and nobody misses him. Funny. All right, Raw did a 4.0 rating for The Rock Show. 3.9 first hour, 4.1 second hour. Considering his death, the pay-per-view would also return. If he would expect Austin to appear as the he's banned from the arena, is what people expect to say. He's really showing up at the last segment. And Rock was all over the show. They just think it's cause for your celebration. He's presuming most fans figured Austin would end the show in a conversation with Rock. Now, Austin's not appearing on Raw in Toronto. was a decision made for long-term ratings. The feeling was that ep- that episode would do well on its own, coming after the show, where once again everyone assumed he'd be on. And that Rock would be there to build the angle. Then they would theoretically get another good rating next week for Austin returning to confront The Rock. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, and and you know, having Austin and Rock do the angle in Nassau probably is better for the heat. The heat that you want, I think. Although we heard what Montreal reacted for Austin, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is what it is. All right, SmackDown, taped on, airing on February 27th, was taped on February 25th in London, Ontario. 
Saw a son of eight thousand eight fifty four paying three twenty one two oh two Canadian. Very good show, even with the, without the Heyman influence. Hot crowd and the new deals on near falls to champ two. There you go, Bex. Uh, after the behavior of the Montreal crowd. Well, there you go. You, I guess that was really the beginning of it. Vince came out to a huge reaction. He said Raw chose to jump to Raw, and he respects his wishes. He said Hogan also wasn't there. Hogan was advertised heavily locally as being there, including a front-page article in the local newspaper, so the fans hated this. He says due to a family emergency regarding his son, but they'd be on SmackDown next week. It really says something to fake a serious illness of a young child to explain a no-show. But then again, in the 70s, they can't remember how many mother-on-her-deathbed stories he used to hear when guys no-showed. <laughs> we'll have more on the Hogan deal after we talk about SmackDown. But uh, yeah, Tyler, imagine those London, Ontario fans where Hogan's advertised heavily of being there and he's not there. Oh, that would have been awful. He was so, so popular uh, in Ontario anytime he was here. So to not get a chance to see him when you're expecting to see him, they would not have been happy at all. Ooh. You know, when Dave mentioned that mother of the deathbed, I really never heard of that happening, but obviously it did happen. So uh, I wonder which wrestlers use that excuse back in the day. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear more about that, too. Um, <laughs> and we don't have a reason why Hogan's not there. We Well... Vince said family emergency. We'll have the reason in the notes. The okay, reason. we have the reason later. Yeah, as so I said, after SmackDown, we'll is have the Is it a legitimate reason. reason? Um, Let's just say kind of. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. It's it's not... It's right. not uh, Nick, Nick asked me why I wasn't home yet, brother, so... Uh, I don't like that. Okay. No, it's it's not Nick. It's his other child. Well, we'll talk about that as we go along. Alright, uh, Tori Wilson and Funaki beat Nidia and Jamie Noble when N Wilson pinned Nidia. Stephanie Nick comes out and teased that she was going to pose for Playboy. And even teased like she was going to strip but instead announced Tori Wilson was posing for Playboy. The way the seven was laid out, it was to say that while Tori is sexy, seeing Stephanie naked is a bigger prize people got to wait for. You know, that, that, I guess that's that is the the thing here, would, would you say that, Bix, that that's that's what the gist of this was? I guess. You're teasing one thing and the other story. <laughs> so, all right, so we have, we have that going on, and then Brian Kendrick shows up. So let's go to that. Yes, let's, let's see what happens here with this skit. Eagles love Stephanie. Hey, Tori. Are you serious? I'm really going to be in Playboy? You're really going to be in Playboy. Oh, but um, don't worry. It will not interfere at all with your appearance on Girls Gone Wild. Oh, good. Because speaking of going wild, next week, you're going to be shooting the cover for Playboy. <laughs> the cover of Playboy the magazine. Cover. Oh, my God. All right, God. congratulations. You really Thank deserve you it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stephanie, I don't know if you remember me or not, but uh, I met a couple weeks ago. Brian Kendrick. Naked boy. Yeah, I'm kind of. I'm sorry about all that streaking, but I just thought it helped me get a job. I was just trying to prove to you and everybody that I'd do anything to get a job here at SmackDown. You did. But I got an idea you might like a little bit better. Okay. Well, I was I was thinking just to prove how badly I want a job here. I take on WWE Champion Kurt Angle tonight. 
Thanks, no, Brian. No, Stephanie, please, please. I'm serious. You're serious. I'm serious. You really want to have a match with the WWE Champion, Kurt Angle? Yes, please. I'll tell you what, Brian. If you can last five minutes in the ring with Kurt, then you'll be the newest addition to the SmackDown roster. Are you serious, Steph? Good luck. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Kurt Angle, WWE Champion. By the way, Stephanie, have you ever read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? <laughs> the way Kendrick looks there and the way Stephanie looks there, it seems like that, that scene should have been directed by Mick Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what, it seems, that's what it seems like. It looks so porno. <laughs> it looked like it'd been on a, an Adam the Adam and Eve uh, movie or something like that. You well, know, have I mean, we talked about the conspiracy people that some people who used to work in the company have about Kevin Dunn's production style for, for well, I, backstage segments? Well, let's just—I mean, I'll, I'll just say this: KD is a heavy connoisseur of the pornography. But go ahead. That the theory is that like that's all he watches and not actually yes. TV and movies. So that's all he knows how to emulate. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so. And also what? just, okay, wait. So age-wise, he is 23 here. Yes. And Stephanie, whose look and voice are changing at this time. Uh, She's 26. Okay. So. And, and I will say this for this era, Stephanie. Uh, this was, let's see, I guess, was it this time? Was it a year before was the one where Triple H gave her the pedigree and, and her breast and fell it, out? Yes, at the SmackDown taping. Yeah. It was, it was when they did the split in early 02. Yeah. yeah. You talk about pictures going around, you know, all over the internet. That was one of them. People wanted to see that. <laughs> yes, it so was. was a, it was viral. There was a demand for Steffi McMahon in, in that era. So there you go. And then the, the older Stephanie got, the more she looked like the uh, milk porn star. So there you go. All right. Uh, well, anyway. milk hunters in the company at the time, even if he's on. The <laughs> well, that's about later, like like in you know you know these past recent years. Oh, like when she dressed as Precious, uh, not Precious. When he, she dressed as Baby Doll, managing Ric Flair, and. The, no, no, what's no, her no. face from uh, oh you don't mean the Wrestlemania costumes okay no I mean like just coming out on, on television every week she like she should have been you know in movies with India Summer you know something like that you know those type of deals but anyway well it's the I hair don't. and the makeup that's not her fault <laughs> no it's just the way I mean just the way she's aged and she has that look but anyway yeah. alright so um, Eddie Guerrero beat Nunzio in a decent match FBI beat down on Eddie until Rikishi made the save. What a weird sentence that is. Chris Benoit brought Lesnar cut a promo where Benoit said he knew Team Angle injured Edge. They announced Edge's neck surgery and he'd be out for one year. Benoit teased the mission partner to get back at Team Angle. So this is led to Benoit and Rhino beating Shannon Moore and uh, Matt Hardy. Lots of chance for Rhino's was ECW chance. Rhino pinned Hardy after a gore. Rhino got a hell of a reaction from someone who hadn't been mentioned on television in months. 
Rhino always got those types of pops, you know? Yep. He was always over. Yeah, he'd be missing for a while. Here's Rhino. Yay! <laughs> I forget. Is this his return for the next surgery, or is the next surgery after this run? Well, Rhino? I think yeah. I think this is his return from the, from the neck. Okay. Next, Undertaker challenged the A-Train. Show and A-Train were double-teamed Undertaker. When Nathan Jones made the save, and the It's Lucky This Is Smackdown moment of the month, Nathan Jones threw a kick, tripped, missed completely, even though it was sold, Fell on his ass. The crowd started laughing. Undertaker and Nathan cleaned house. A ref came out with message backstage to do it again. So they did the whole thing all over again. And this time went off a lot better. The Nathan Jones debut blew my mind. The only thing the guy has going for him is his size. So his first appearance was standing next to Big Show. Undertaker. And the deceptively gigantic A-Train. So he actually looks skinny and not all that tall in that company. Well, we got a treat, folks. Nix found the raw feed of this, the version of the raw feed on Reddit. So we're going to be able to see the raw feed of Nathan Jones falling on his ass. Yes, and so. this does not appear to be sourced from VHS either. Yeah. And so I don't remember let's... anyone getting satellite feeds like direct-to-DVD or anything in this era, so I'm curious what the source on this version is. But yeah, let's let's go to the clip. Let's go to this. What the hell is the big show going to do here? Wait a minute! Oh, hey! It's Nathan Jones! Nathan Jones! What the hell is he doing out here? It's Big Kid A-Train! A-Train went for that derailleur! Nathan Jones went for that spin kick, and A-Train thought better of it! A-Train wanted to uh, survey the situation with... Now, they stall for a few minutes. Now, I have a question, though, too. Um, was he supposed to hit the uh, kick? Yeah, and obviously he didn't fall on his ass. Well, he did. You didn't notice? He I mean, but he didn't really... Not exactly. Um, but... I know it's like, going to be yeah. redoing the seventh to fix the botch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, someone the who's either, I can't tell, that's either Brian Hebner or Mike Sparks, the referee who's consulting with Mark Eaton and Undertaker. And now here come Heyman in the heels. Yeah, they had already came back went to the back. But if the kick was supposed to hit, that's Halbert's fault. That's not Nathan Jones's fault, because he very clearly gets out of the way of it. Well, maybe it was it's supposed to kick. I don't know. I don't know. This is crazy to watch. You want to go? You want to go? Okay, well, he wasn't supposed to know. He was supposed to chase him. The best part of that was Nathan Jones' other utter confusion as he's trying to understand that they're getting in at a different part of the ring so it matches. <laughs> because he... I don't know what instructions they gave him, but no one was like, find a way to get out of the ring and come back in the ring on that side. So... The other guys, you know, Albert and, uh, why am I blanking all of a sudden? Who's the other guy? Big show. Big show. Big show. Um, they have to come, go further around the ring so that it matches to some degree the angle when they cut the two shots together. 
So that's one of those rare moments when you actually see something from SmackDown that was a redone. Yes. Well, the the videos were a lot more common in this era. We're we're getting towards the point where we don't really get them anymore. But it wasn't out of the ordinary. And there was a gif of him messing this up for years. Going yeah. back to when it first happened. But they start to become less plentiful over the next year or so. And the next big thing I really... Well, no. Wait a second. I'm wrong. No, the next big satellite feed thing is June 04 with the Paul Bearer rehearsal of the murder of Paul Bearer with the cement. Yeah. Which actually leaked out before the show. <laughs> Tyler, what do you think about seeing that there? Uh, you were at Ross. Everything's live there. They can't do this. Seeing them uh, doing a retake. Well, they tried to cover it as best they could, but even when I watched this on the show uh, earlier today to get ready for this, have you ever seen a big guy like that debut and the instruction is to go out and not kick the mid-carder? Yeah, weird. I mean, you would think you want you know, him to come out looking strong, you know? And but, I wanted I wanted to bring this up when we were talking about the pay-per-view, but now's as good a time as any. The big show is four months away four months ago had given Brock Lesnar his first loss and now we're here. Yeah. yeah. Let's see how they there ended this, are. by the way. They actually made it seamless. They did that a lot. You know, that's what they they, they could do. Actually, let's see what the sound on. Let's see how, if it's just a scene. Oh, hey, big show with it. Wait, wait a minute. Hey, that's Nathan Jones. Throws Hellas. Oh, wait for the delivery. Nathan Jones in A-Train. Good job. They knew how to do it. Yeah. You know, they use the sweetening the right way, just enough to make the clips match. They didn't overdo it. You know, even on headphones, just watching this now. So good work. If if Absolutely. you did not know about the first try, you'd have no idea. I mean, Katie, for all his faults, I mean, he does some amazing work. That's the thing. It's, that's why it gets frustrating. You know what he can do. <laughs> it's just when he does the stupid shit he does. Well, know? also, they're probably... They're a lot more experienced at digital editing by O3, I would think, than they would have been uh, early in the digital era when they had a lot more clumsy edits. Yeah, well, I'm talking just about all the bullshit they do now. So, well. yeah. All right, well, John Cena's next, and uh, Dave notes he continues to be on the path to winning best on interviews in 2008. Seven in the Wrestling Observer Awards. Boy, what what Dave doesn't know is coming ahead. So let's go to a young John Cena here. Rock, I sit here glued to the screen, punching these keys, watching everything you do on live internet feeds. I downloaded high speed all the files that I need to make your hard drive crash and to make your face bleed. You can't erase me. I'm going to make you taste me. I'm a virus. I kill you the next time you face me. You jealous. You stole my shot at the brass ring. Everybody knows I'm the next big thing. You all bark and no bite. You stole my spotlight. I'm the great white hope. You're the great white hype. If you an animal, then I'm going on safari. 
I'm rocking PlayStation 2. You can't figure out Atari. Look in these eyes, Brock. Don't think that I won't shoot you. I leave you worthless like a nerd with no computer. Show the world that you can't even walk in my shoe. Your finish is the F5. Well, mine's the FU. Whoa, man. Tonight, Brock Lesnar in a oh, two-on-one yeah. handicap match against Team Angle. If Lesnar wins, he gets any member of Team Angle inside a steel cage on SmackDown next week. And what about what about this goal? If Brady right. Kendrick can last five minutes. That, I mean, that's why the, the, the FU is named the FU. Yep. And, oh, yeah, you, you could see it here. You also, he's actually cutting promos in the raps here, which he yes. wouldn't always do. Yeah, you could see that, that this dude, he's got it. It's a matter of time to when everything gets put together. He did. He would explode. So there you go. John Cena. All right. So next, we get Kurt Angle and Brian Kendrick. Five-minute challenge. Hottest match on the show. Angle mainly destroyed him and gave him host spots, and there was a huge pop for a near fall. Fans were counting down as Kendrick was lasting, but Angle hit the Angle slam. And, uh, yeah, so let's we'll go to that, and let's see how all this played out. Would would Kendrick last the five minutes? Would he not? Well, let's see. There's one minute left! Is Angle stuck? Look at the Angle! forget about no way out now it's time and it's on to wrestlemania which brings me to this guy here stand up kid oh you are standing i'm sorry oh what's your name ryan kendrick sir 
Brian, let me tell you something. You got guts, kid. You're not going to make it in this business, but you got guts. And that goes a long way with me. Hey, people, give this kid a hand. Yeah, I'll give him a hand. What, what a gutsy performance. That kid's, kid's courageous. Yeah, well, he didn't, he didn't you know, beat the clock, so thanks for coming, kid. And Brock Lesnar, this one's for you. Oh, what the hell was that for? Angle's going a little too far now, Cole. Kurt Angle trying to send a message to Brock Lesnar. Kurt Angle has no coot. You don't send a message to Lesnar to this kid who isn't even employed by the company. Brian Kendrick isn't even a superstar here, and Kurt Angle is going to send it, set an example of Kendrick. Uh oh. Uh oh. Like Kendrick got shot out of a cannon. Just completely overmatched. Kurt Angle with a vicious assault. You know what? Well, this kid didn't sign off for this. Man, mitch me. Angle's making mitch me. I just, I just hope for the company's sake this kid, this kid signed a whole harmless release. I mean, Kurt Angle is beating the hell out of Brian Kendrick. And for what? For what? And he's proud of it. Kurt Angle's proud of this. I remember Kurt Angle saying, this one's for you, Brock. Yeah, but is it just for Brock, or, or is it because Kurt Angle was embarrassed by the fact that Brian Kendrick almost oh, lasted a full five minutes, whoa, 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 whoa. and not again? Wait, Cole, what's this? He's a position. Wait a minute. F5, F5. No! Kurt Angle just F5 Brian Kendrick. At least now we realize that Kendrick feels that way because he thinks he was subjugated by Paul Heyman. <laughs> Dave said this is an excellent piece of television. You know, they're putting that undersized role, which means he's limited to getting over. As SmackDown Spike Dudley, he is one talented and charismatic wrestler, the latter of which is lacking for so many of the newer guys. Well, I mean, he got, he would get put with Paul London and they did fairly well, but. And we have some of the the Brian Kendrick run. Yeah. So Kendrick, he did he did he did fine for himself, considering. Yes, and you know, uh, recently uh, reconsidered personal feelings about him aside, because I I mean I was we were, we were both huge fans of him. Like he he doesn't get enough credit for how good he got how quickly. I feel like Danielson gets most of it, but. <sighs> Kendrick was almost, like, for those first few years, Kendrick was almost every bit as good as Danielson. I mean, he's a hell of a damn talent. Uh, per Person-wise, not so much, but as a talent, 
It's a hell of a fucking talent. Always has been. Yes. But, uh, Although, I was never a fan of the stuff where he's booked as a serious heel, though. It didn't feel like a good fit. I, I wasn't no, that big on no. the Brian Kendrick stuff. Well, let's, like I mean, the, explain serious. Yeah. Didn't like the 205 Live heel stuff. I didn't watch the NXT UK stuff, which I heard was better, but it's NXT UK, so it you can't really watch a wrestling brand that doesn't exist. Um but otherwise, like especially in this era, though, well, like you watch impact, so... don't you? well, maybe. Um, and and, 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 and I mean, really, what what wrestling brands? You know, I mean, there's still a lot of wrestling brands that don't run shows in front of people. So you know. Well, but anyway, um, he was just such a breath of fresh air at the time too, because they didn't have anyone else yeah. like him. Yeah, exactly. All right, we got. Yeah, here's some else I forgot to happen, so we're going to get the end of this ready. Lesnar beat Haas and Benjamin in a handicap match with the F5 on Shelton. Disappointing match. Earlier in the show's announced if Lesnar won on next week's SmackDown, he get a cage match with a member of Tink Angle of his choice. Everyone expected him to ask for a cage match with Kurt. That's what they were teasing. Well, Brock has somebody else in mind. So let's go to the big reveal, shall we? Okay, so how far from the end of the show should I go here? Because it seems like they may already have done it by... No, maybe not yet. Is it before or after they get finished? Just keep going back. Keep going back. Let's okay. Go back. I didn't realize there was this much time left in the show when they did it. All right. All right. This? Yeah. Yeah, just yeah, that's to finish the match. Yeah. Boys, once again, Kurt. I just beat Team Angle, and by beating Angle. Team Angle, that sets me up, Kurt. That sets me up for next week. I get to pick any member of your team to step in a steel cage with me. 
Hey, Kurt! It's me and you at WrestleMania. One-on-one -on -one for the WWE title. Don't forget that, Kurt. But next week, the team member that I picked tonight to wrestle next week in a steel cage, that member is... You. He basically did I mean, a police that's... squad as Angle and, I mean, excuse me, as Haas and Benjamin walked by him. Yeah, Dave was talking about how uh, the finish where Lester led everyone to believe he would choose an angle for the cage match shows him it was tremendous television as far as timing, particularly the facials by both Angle and Heyman. Yeah, Angle was great. He was like smiling, <laughs> half cock smile. Thank, like, thank God it's not me. And uh, yeah, so. Um, that that yeah that that was that was a very damn very damn good ending there and uh tyler is funny watching babyface brock here in 2003 and now we have babyface brock again in 2022 against paul Heyman. well 2022 he's definitely more ready for it because in 2003 he did not look comfortable as a face at all oh yeah he's slapping hands with the, the fans here in this era and all that stuff oh yeah he's definitely on it no, right now, right now is by far the most at ease he's ever looked at as, as a babyface. Yes. And part of that, especially from, you know, we see now he's willing to do interviews and open up on them. You get the impression that he has chilled out a lot in the last year or two as a person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so. like when I saw that thing, I think it was as we're recording earlier today from the Pat McAfee interview where he's talking about his anxiety and stage fright and stuff that like that's Brock Lesnar saying that you do not expect him to say that. So good for him. Yeah. Good for him that he's, uh, way, he's overcome that, I guess now, because he looks way more comfortable now than he ever has looked. Absolutely. All right. Now there were some things edited off SmackDown because of time. One, they had a Guerrero's vignette where they stole some women from some nerdy looking guys. And there was an angle where Rikisha was injured by the FBI. So those were edited off the show. All right. Uh, let's talk about Kurt Angle and Brian Kendrick. And we have uh, some in-depth uh, backstage knowledge on this. The match was laid out by Michael Hayes, who worked as the agent for the bout. Hayes had a spot where Kendrick would kick out of the angle slam. Dave's not sure if this was the last spot to bell, and Kendrick was the first book the last five minutes, or that he inserted the spot early in the match. Get ready, Bix. Terry Taylor was talking to Angle about the match. And said he thought it wasn't a good idea for Kendra to kick out of the move. Angle went to Vince, who agreed with Angle. Hayes wasn't happy, particularly finding out it was Taylor who brought up the Angle. It was always supposed to be a pinfall by Angle with seconds left. 
Hayes did suggest Kendrick kicking out the angle slam, but Angle didn't agree to it. The match itself was laid out by Angle. First 10 minutes were planned out. Next 10 minutes were changed because Angle gave Kendrick more offense than was originally planned because he felt the crowd was getting with him more than expected. And the last minute was exactly as planned. It did end up with heat between Michael Hayes and Terry Taylor over the Angle slam spot. Ah, uh, Bix, the Terry Taylor alert! <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that uh, it all got smoothed over and they just started commiserating about their shared hobbies. Um, did you, did you see the new meme that popped up on Twitter over the weekend regarding you and Terry Taylor? No. You know, the, the history channel aliens guy, the guy with the, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So someone, someone did the, uh, me and nobody speak as that saying Terry Taylor. Yes. Okay. I need to see this. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) Yes. Justin did it. (laughs) Yeah. So didn't yeah. we unblock each other? That, so why didn't I see it? Wait a second. I don't even remember what forgot, his username is now, though. I forgot to DM it to you, but yes, that was. I saw that. I about died laughing. <laughs> so, so wait, did they uh, just the take my face? Did he just take my face and put it on the aliens guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I almost feel like it would have been better if he just took the whole screenshot and made and retrofitted it. And, well, I don't know if he's it was. It was the face swapper deal, but yeah, it was hilarious. Okay. All right. SmackDown on February 27th, you're a 3.5 rating, 3.98 realistic rating, 5.6 million viewers. The show finished fifth out of six network shows in a time slot with sweeps over. CSI did a, did a 14.6 and must see TV. Friends, 11.3. Scrubs, 8.7. Will and Grace, 8.6. Good Morning Miami, 8.0. Went in the rerun, so the competition was easier than it's been. And as we always have to say when we get into this era, when Dave says realistic rating, he really should explain this more than very occasionally. But he didn't. It's He means if you did it based on the markets that actually had UPN, as if you were doing a cable rating, then that's what yeah. it would be. Because, and it's probably fair to do that because... You know, broadcast TV national ratings are, you know, for network TV are based on the assumption that the networks are in just about every home, but that's not the case if for UPN carrying, and WB. They're carrying the same, yeah, they're carrying the same thing at the same time. Which, right. Whereas, again, but plenty of markets yeah. don't have WB or UPN, or at some point, well, not Fox. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was a slippery slope, so to speak. Right. Plus, uh, I don't know if UPN had one. No, I don't think they did. UPN also, yeah, they didn't have a they didn't have the cable feed for smaller markets that didn't have a UPN station either. Fox and WB had those, and Fox and CW. I th- CW definitely still has one. I'm not sure if Fox does because Fox got much bigger. But that was yeah, that was also probably one of the reasons that UP, that UPN generally lagged behind outside of SmackDown was that they didn't have the small market cable coverage that WB had. Yeah. All right, the show drew 6.1 in New York, 5.8 in Los Angeles, 5.3 in Chicago, 4.7 in Philly, 2.5 in San Francisco, 5.4 in Dallas, 3.1 in D.C., 3.9 in Detroit, 5.4 in Atlanta, and a 6.4 in Houston, which, as we've known in this show before, Houston, strong TV ratings for SmackDown. 
they definitely were into their SmackDown. So and six six point one in New York's pretty damn impressive too. Yeah, it is. Especially when you consider a share is almost inevitably higher, so I gotta think six rating. That's gotta be at least what, a ten share? Yeah. So strong numbers in the major markets. Yeah. Alright, Hulk Hogan not appearing on SmackDown and London Ontario was not because his son was ill. Shocking. His daughter Brooke, age 14, who said to be very talented at singing and dancing, had some sort of a talent competition at Universal Studios, which actually took place on February 26th and not the night of the show. But he must be preparing her for it. Dave doesn't know who was at fault for this, as Hogan claimed to friends he had told W two weeks earlier he wasn't going to be available that night. But it's really bad getting signals crossed like this when it comes to advertising a major name. This is so WCW-like. The London Free Press had an article on Hogan no showing, but didn't have any answers as to why. Well, I mean, the competition's the next day. He wanted to get back, he wanted to get back home to, like, like Dave said, prepare for it. So, and if Hogan said he told him two weeks early, that's on them. And on him. If he actually told them. Yeah. And I could see him doing that, though, considering what this is. This is Brooke. That's his main thing. So. Yeah. Because, I mean, think, he's worked Sunday. He wouldn't be working Monday. So why not just go home? Right. Were there any Monday house shows at this point? Uh, I don't don't think so. It might have been, but I don't think so. Anyway, so there you go. A legitimate excuse. All right, for reports backstage at SmackDown, Vincent Mann and Gerald Briscoe, who are producing announcers for the show, were going crazy backstage to perform with Michael Cole. Much of the commentary was probably redone in studio, but the two were yelling at him for saying things they thought didn't make sense. Those who saw the live feed just remarked that Cole miscalled a few moves, but otherwise it didn't seem out of the ordinary. They knows a lot of the stuff was done in studio, but he thought the commentary, as it turned out, was fine. Taz is really good, and Cole is usually good as well. Do they ever listen to Ernest Miller? He's actually so bad he's entertaining, but not enough to make Dave watch more than five minutes of velocity in a week. <laughs> Velocity at this point is Ernest Miller and Josh Matthews? Yes. Which would... Okay, so who replaced Cat? That wasn't Amat, right? Velocity, I think, is later. Yeah. But that makes also makes some sense of why the, the editing of the Nathan Jones thing was seamless on commentary, because it was probably done live in studio. So there well, you go. I'm sure. Um, also, I don't think I realized that Briscoe produced the announcers sometimes. Yeah, there you go. Well, the reasons for the Heyman demotion are probably more a combination of deadline problems and his disagreements as far as direction with Vince McMahon and have little nothing to do with Kevin Dunn. There was an issue between the two. Heyman was against the, the Guerrero vignettes, which were Dunn's ideas. Heyman expected the vignettes to portray the Guerreros in a Mexican setting, similar to the vignettes Eddie did in WCW, and the videos Conan did in WCW. Instead, they portrayed them as pickpockets in Beverly Hills. And he also complained to McMahon about similar issues. Gee, I'm shocked that Kevin Dunn would have racial stereotypes towards Mexicans. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> I'll say this, even though the optics and everything are bad, I can see why if you're doing the light sheet and steel and they're going to be picking people's pockets anyway... Since they are supposed to be baby faces, just ones who have gotten, or are they explicitly, are they baby faces yet? Or at least they're de facto he's, baby faces. If he, he's doing nothing with the FBI. Right, right, right. Okay. So if they're baby faces, 
I could see someone, maybe not Kevin Dunn, but I could see someone saying, if they're baby faces, isn't it better for them to punch up and steal from people that are assumed to be rich and probably white? I mean... Isn't it kind of more punching up that way? I mean, that the Guerrero's characters are punching up. Like, I'm not saying it was a good idea, but I can see why someone might argue in that direction. Even though that, I'm guessing that's not what it was. Mm, yeah, I'm gonna go with uh, racism. Go, yeah, go with my thought. But Tyler, I mean, whatever that you can say about it, they, the gimmick got damn over. I mean, they, the fans loved that gimmick. No, it worked out okay in the end, but uh, that seems like an odd thing to get fired over. Well, it well, it wasn't what he got fired. It was just an issue that was one of the issues at hand, so to speak. Yeah, there were other issues as well. We. We, believe, I told Bix that next we'll probably do it next year because it's twentieth anniversary. We're gonna do we're gonna do a twentieth anniversary on this because there is so much information about Paul Heyman. Shocking, isn't it? There's so much information about Paul Heyman. So much information about Paul Heyman getting demoted in both newsletters. I was like, oh my god. So, yeah. So we'll probably do a Patreon show or something next year. February 2003, I mean, February 2023, will be the Patreon show of Paul Heyman being demoted on SmackDown. So there you go. It's already planned out. We still need to figure out when we do his World Wrestling Network, too. Well, we don't worry about that. So there you go. That's already booked. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's crazy. All right. Um, Torch Hulk Hogan. Worth no way up interview without a contract, but is expected to sign a one-year deal soon, if he hasn't already in recent days. One of Hogan's requests for signing the contract was that Jimmy Hart be given a job, and that kind of happens. Man, he's looking out for his friends, which can't hate him for the king. Also sets uh, the path for Jimmy Hart working for WWE and TNA simultaneously. Uh, yes, yes, it does. But hey, take care of your friends. Nothing wrong with that if you can. Goldberg has signed a contract as well as a press time. I'll see him doing WrestleMania appear to be less than they were a week ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> before the angle. I'm about to sneeze, but I can't sneeze. Before the angle entry. That changes the dynamic again. Of course, with him, everything is down to the wire anyway. The negotiation picked up over the past week, particularly towards the weekend leading up to the pay-per-view. There was at least talk of the officials were hoping to debut him in some form this week. We're talking him going over in the Battle Royal on Raw and leading to a match Triple H at WrestleMania. Apparently no deal was finalized. Most likely, if it was, it's being kept secret, and the decision was made to hold him off. Well, think about how different everything is if he if he signs and goes and wins that Battle Royal. We don't get Triple H and Booker at WrestleMania, so we don't get that problematic issue. And uh, I mean that, that's a whole different dynamic there for, for that for Triple H at WrestleMania that year. Yeah. Um, do you? And, and here's a question, real quick. That's what I'm thinking about it. Do you think that this this like puts more heat on Goldberg with Triple H that he doesn't sign at this time and kind of hurts him in a WrestleMania match? Maybe because Triple H doesn't see Booker as an opponent worthy of WrestleMania for him. And from his perspective, he's probably also like. Look, the plan was always to get to Goldberg as quickly as possible once he came in. So how was it my fault that Vince decided to do the Booker thing that way? Like, I'm sure he had other influence, but still, like, 
I bet that's his argument. Like, we were going to do Goldberg anyway. You know, whatever. Like, but here's the thing. You shouldn't do the storyline they did with Booker. Nope. But if you're going to do it, he has to go over. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they went the wrong way in both accounts. Yes. Yes, it would, and especially since they didn't go straight to Triple H Goldberg. Yeah, probably would have hurt Booker even more than not winning the title would have. The right thing to do was to give him a short title reign, even if it just lasted for one pay-per-view. Yeah, because it wasn't the main event or anything, you know? Yes, and, like, it's the whole presentation of it, you know? Like, that, you know, in wrestling, especially WWE parlance, the idea is usually the heel is a liar and who's wrong, and you prove them right by winning the feud and the blow-off, but that doesn't happen here. Well, I mean, you prove the babyface right, you prove the heel wrong, but that didn't mm-hmm. happen here. Um, and then the thing where on this pay-per-view where they have this, you know, this mania, they have this theme where all the big matches require the winning wrestler to hit their finisher three times, Triple H hits the pedigree once and then waits 20 seconds before pinning it. <laughs> yeah people need to remember it's not just that he didn't win it's the whole thing it's how he won it, it's how Triple H won after everything else in the context of the show it was on Just uh. yeah alright Austin did an interview at WWE.com after his return saying he largely had made amends with everyone on the creative side for his statements in the recent Raw Magazine article but stood behind a statement that wrestlers need to feel the character when they deliver promos and not have them scripted out. He said there are bigger problems than what he mentioned in the article between him and Vince McMahon, which was his greatest frustration for leaving. He said he would never say publicly what those problems were. If it talked about the time, the Austin's man, he found out Hogan was getting a better merchandise deal than he had in his contract and felt slighted because he sold far more merchandise than Hogan ever did and made more money for the company than Hogan. Whether that's the issue probably will never be confirmed. He also said the reason he had done no personal appearances until recently is because he was afraid the company would come after him for unauthorized use of the Stone Cold Steve Austin name. Once he agreed to return, after a meeting in Houston, he started scheduling personal appearances. He said his contract expires in September. Now, he told the tor- now the Torch said he told been telling friends if he had his way, the creative team would be eliminated. Austin believes he should take only one person to format the shows and relay the bases to the ages and wrestlers. He let the ages to go to the basic points the wrestlers should hit in their promos, but leave it up to the talent to fill in the gas with their own wording. If he does well at the boss office, Austin's going to make a strong effort to do away with the writers, predicted one supporter of Austin's plan. And Tyler, I mean, is he wrong? Not at all, especially with him. And it makes you wonder what he's going to think if he really is going back to do WrestleMania this year, what he's going to think of what he's walking into. Well, I will say now that I think they're way more lenient now because there are a lot more guys who are able to do their own thing on promos than there used to be. Um, and they just give him the bullet points. I think of the, the guy he's rooming the face, Kevin Owens, comes to mind. Sami Zayn comes to mind. There, there are those guys that you know are able to have some creative freedom. But yeah, I mean, I think he's absolutely right. There needs to be that one decision maker in the end, which there is anyway, but to have this big creative team and this, that, and the other, <clears throat> I think there should be one main person and then use your subordinates to get your message out. Well, he's pretty much described the structure of AEW, hasn't he? 
basically, yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and Austin's issues with Hogan, Vincent Hogan, I mean, that's just a thing. You know, that's always going to be a thing no matter what. So all, Hogan was going to get a better deal than, than Austin did on merchandise because that's Hulk Hogan. That's what happens. So, yeah. Bix, what do you think about Austin and his idea here that there shouldn't be a creative team and only one person should format shows? Well, here's the thing. Whatever you think about the concept in general, it's WWE. It's Vince. It's audience of one. He's mm-hmm. always going to reshape things to such a degree <coughs> that in a WWE context, he's absolutely right. Like, you can have writers who fill certain functions, but in terms of the creative process going from Vince and whoever his deputies are to the talent and then also laying out promos and matches, he's absolutely right here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the best approach is one is that fits the most people, you know? Like... AW, you know, it seemingly has a problem with if people are not good at pitching their own ideas that they get lost in the shuffle. And while it's wrestling, you need to be creative. Not everyone is going to be a good booking idea person, even if they're otherwise valuable on the roster. So AEW does need someone else in there that's kind of buffering and helping some of the wrestlers come up with ideas. You know, so yeah. There there are other ways to approach things, but I don't think there's any reason to think the WWE—I almost said WWE—WWE way of having a creative team with all these writers <clears throat> a success in and of itself. Yeah. All right, Ultimo Dragon's being back. Talk with about coming joining the SmackDown roster. What a sentence that is by day. Ultimo Dragon is back being taught with about joining the SmackDown roster. <laughs> Uh, Dragon's probably 85, 90% back to his level before he botched his elbow surgery. Appeared in his career. He looked great in his matches that Dave's seen him in, but at 36, there's a significant question of his ability to hold up this kind of schedule as he has had numerous other injuries from years of high flying. Well, nothing is for certain. Dragon's name has been told about as taking the spot vacated by Edge as a tag team partner of Rey Mysterio. That does not happen. Um, Just wait until he takes his mask off. So here's the thing. Did he make a freaking amazing recovery, even if it took five years to get to the point he could be a, an acceptable wrestler again, much less as good as he was in this combat, com- comeback? Yeah, it's, inc- it's incredible. But at this point, late February, we've only seen him in the ring against Ultimo Guerrero and Rey Bucanero, who are two of the very best wrestlers in the world. And as we would learn as the year went on, especially after he comes in, it was never clear to me if someone planted this idea in their heads or if it was just weird expectations based on him being a lucha guy or whatever. They were expecting him to be, even in this state, someone who could replace Ray and be a Ray replacement as the spectacular high flyer for kids, which was not going to happen. Not at that point in time. No. So it was, I think for that reason was kind of doomed, but you know, there, there was no reason to be pessimistic at this point. 
he just needed to be a little cautious because who he was who he had been working with so far. If he took that mask off, they wouldn't have had to, they wouldn't have had to uh, do the high flying gimmick with me. Uh, but Ultima Hardy. Yes, we know Stephanie thought he was just so attractive. Yes. I forget, so. was Ultima Hadi an internet nickname or was that something Stephanie was alleged was actually said? I think it was just an internet nickname. Yeah, something like that. <clears throat> All right, our weekly look at why the brand extension is a mess is the Raw Switch or SmackDown the Raw. Okay, they did give a storyline, sort of. It, they was sort of ahead of time. It would be explained that Vince would say that since Raw did him a favor and bloody up and beating Hogan, that he could appear on the show of his choice and he would choose Raw. Although, why would he choose Raw? He would explain, which he did. Even though the actual reason is so Rock and Austin but be on Raw together to build up for their Mania match. Which, so should, well, wait a second. That's easy enough. You can just say what ends up being the storyline of the match anyway. That Rock has never been Austin at WrestleMania. So Rock showed up on Raw and then gave him an explanation. Vince showed up on SmackDown, did an unclear job of saying what he was supposed to do. Stephanie never even acknowledged it. Theoretically, losing her biggest star to the opposition should make her piss at her father. She required acknowledgement. She make her piss at the Rock, etc. The biggest star going from one side to another is not a big deal and explained in such a weak fashion. Then how can any angle at all involving this thing make anyone care? Dave's right. <laughs> Dave's right, Bix. He at is, but not- this is such a, like, this appears to be an issue, a communication issue. Like, this is simple. Yeah, know? but the fact that, the fa- I think that Dave's right. The fact that Stephanie is not pissed. Hmm. That her top star is gone to Raw. I mean, that's the thing. Yes. If they're in competition. Yeah, which they're supposed to be in, aren't they? Yes. There you go. Tyler, what do you think? Do you, do you, how do you think they handled this? Do you think that they could have handled this better than what they did? Oh, much better. And it's not the first time. I remember... Uh, going back to not long after the brand extension when Benoit made his return on Raw after being SmackDown's number three pick with any explanation yeah. that they kind of were playing fast and loose with the rules right from the start. Yeah, they were. Well, shocking, isn't it? Well, no, they did explain that, though. We did that recently, didn't we? They just kind of said they did something acknowledging that he wasn't returning to the ring yet. Or wait, or does he officially go to Raw and then gets immediately sent to Smack back to SmackDown? Uh, he goes to Raw and then gets immediately sent back to SmackDown. Basically, yes. Okay, it wasn't that he was only on. It wasn't that we're saying that's right. He was. That's right. Him and Eddie were like the first trade, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I was thinking there when he did the one-off on Raw when they were saying he wasn't cleared yet or whatever. I thought they had said that oh he's just here for one night, but I guess they didn't. Very oddly done. Because he just ends up on SmackDown anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, Torch has this on The Rock. He said during his WWE website interview uh, last Friday, he might work April's backlash pay-per-view. He says his appearance at the pay-per-view is still pending. He says, next movie, Walking Tall, began filming in late May or June, so the April show will be his last match for at least the immediate future. During the interview, Rock also detailed the origins of his latest tattoo. He said he and his cousin, who worked at the stunt double in El Dorado, Flew to Hawaii to get tattoos. Rock said the tattoo was designed by a Samoan artist, and it actually tells the story of his life. Rock put the rest of the internet debate of whether the tattoo would hurt his chance of playing in future movie roles. In film, all you do is just cover it up, Rock said. It's really easy to cover. Rock had the walking tall be set in the present time while not stick to the original version script. Rock also stated that the staff's of Bill Goldberg's negotiations with the company by saying, from what I hear, it's looking pretty good. 
Rockles out his appearance by saying that he and his El Dorado co-stars, Christopher Walken and Shaw Wynn Scott, may host an episode of Saturday Night Live together in conjunction with the movie's release later this year. It was still called El Dorado at this point? Yeah. That's the rundown. Yeah. Um, Okay, a few things here. One, I mean, he's kind of right about the tattoo thing because it's Hollywood, especially where it doesn't need to be like as detailed. They can just use makeup. You're actors. You don't mind sitting in the chair. It's whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much simpler there. I mean, I mean, good lord. I mean, how how can people not understand what Hollywood can do to make people look completely different with makeup and all kind of shit? That's what they do. Yep. And uh, another thing that happens though is that he gets disillusioned with the creative for the Goldberg feud, and is clearly, although he has a good match, and there's some. Good segments, you can kind of tell he's checked out by the time of the pay-per-view. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes. Also, boy, isn't it amazing that everyone had so much less insurance worries about him getting injured wrestling not long before a movie when he wasn't 300 pounds of muscle? <laughs> yeah. You know? Exactly. I think Dave and Dwayne are friends by this point, and Dave always gave details about the insurance stuff and all that later on. And I think they did start to get harder on it just when he wasn't doing wrestling anymore, and they were asking him not to more broadly. But they really cracked down after he kept tearing muscles after WrestleMania those last few years that he did matches, you know, a decade after this. Well, did you see him at the Super Bowl? Um, just a little. He looked ginormous <laughs> like even bigger than before yes. yes bigger than he is in pain and gain or between that and what he looked like after he's i mean he just he's humongous well good for him i guess yeah yeah but seriously think about that though april pay-per-view big budget movie with christopher walken and the then pretty bankable sean william scott start shooting in late may or june mm-hmm all right, so let's talk about well let's let's get to the Bix David Bix's fan portion of this section. Little Man trying to take the focus away from the large losses of the failed restaurant project into the company's successful international expansions and instead of its quarterly investors conference covering the months of November through January. Yes, everybody. Back then I forget which year they switched over. It wasn't that long after this. Um they had a fiscal year that was not a calendar year. Mm-hmm. So when you look at old financials, I know Brandon Thurston tends to put a disclaimer in his graphs and stuff, but still, everything up till, what is it, like maybe 05-ish? When you see that year, it's the fiscal year. It's not the calendar year for the older uh, revenue numbers yeah, and profits. So uh, when talking about the world on the February 26th conference, McMahon said that they had tried numerous marketing strategies and all ended up as losing propositions. In fact, it was better to cut our losses. Just made the restaurant would have lost $9.5 million over the final 10 months of the year if it continued to operate. The company is still responsible for a lease on the property, which would cost an average of $3 million per year until it expires on Halloween 2017. She also estimated maintenance and insurance on the property would cost about another $100,000 annually. She expects the company to sublease the property out to minimize whatever losses it would have to incur going forward due to the lease. All right, Bix. What, what happens here? With the, with the oh, world. Oh, in the immediate hear. future? 
Yeah, who take who takes over? I mean, it eventually becomes the Hard Rock. Let me see what I can find about when that actually opens. Hard Rock Cafe, New York. Because what you're about to get to says the lease is through 2017. So were they subleasing to Hard Rock all that time, or did they eventually get out of it? I guess uh, <laughs> I don't know. No wonder they would hold press conferences there. <laughs> yeah, they owned it. I mean, not owned it. They were still the primary tenants. Um, let me see. Does it say where can I see when it opened? Uh, when did? Because I don't think there's any full replacement. Miner showing up. <laughs> He's coming to get us for uh, talking shit on him. No, I think that's an ambulance, not a police car. Okay. Um, August twelfth, oh five, is when Hard Rock opens. Wow. Okay. So this it's empty for over two years. I don't know what the operating costs are like for a thing of that size, but if they didn't get out of that lease, were they really just losing money paying for prime Times Square real estate the whole time? I guess so. There must be more on this in subsequent like quarterly report stuff, but I, I honestly don't remember if they actually still have... I think they get out of it, right? Had to. Also... It shows this how the scope of their finances have changed when a $3 million a year lease, I mean, that's one thing, but especially, oh no, $100,000 in insurance and maintenance. Yep. I mean, even with inflation, that's a drop in the bucket today for them. Yeah. We're not happy with our key drivers, ratings, attendance, etc. They're soft, she said. We claim their brand extension was on target and said ratings were starting to improve. In reality, the SmackDown ratings have remained at about the same level the past few months, and raw increases can almost be attributable to the end of the football season and hot shot angles built to return to Steve Austin. As with the last two years, numbers should probably hold until WrestleMania, which at which point all bets are off. Interestingly, as opposed to other conference calls where McMahon talked about new stars being brought in to praise individual talent, she avoided any mention of any wrestlers, even Austin, Hogan, and The Rock, unless they were brought up by someone first in questioning. Hogan's name never came up. When she was asked about how long Austin was committed, she tried to downplay it as a major issue, saying it's more of a group effort and gave no answer to the question. Regarding Rock, she praised him for creating a new star on Monday night in the Battle Royal, without mentioning Booker T by name. Oh my god. Although his name although his name was said by an investor. But she said all the fans said that he would win. She said Rock would be around going forward and would continue to make new stars for the company, but didn't answer the question about his schedule. When asked about the removal of Paul Heyman. As the head writer on SmackDown, she said, it's different looking at things from the outside than to be a part of them on the inside. She praised Heyman as an on-air talent, and then his new role would make the most efficient use of him, saying he would still be a consultant for both Raw and SmackDown writers. <laughs> Besides international business, which she expected to gross $45 million this year, about 12% of Raw business, she most heavily pushed a project from the new WWE Films division. She talked about a cartoon series which she hoped would be on the air by mid-2004, calling it the first major project of Joel Simon's WWE Films division. The concept of the show, aimed at the 6-14 to age group, is a series with both current wrestling characters as well as newly created characters that would also be merchandise. She said Simon introduced the project to a good response at the recent Toy Fair. She said the series would cost between 6 and $7 million to produce, and it's gotten interest more internationally, specifically in South Korea and the United Kingdom. What the hell is this? I don't know. So obviously it don't happen. There you go. No. Um, also, we should note, by the way, as far as the failure of WWF New York slash the world, 
Um, one of the reasons it's failed is that they did not hire a restaurant management company like you're supposed to when you normally do this. Shocking. It was being yeah. run in-house by World, the World Wrestling Federation. Shocking. Shocking. Yes. Also, one thing I had forgotten, looking through some of the coverage, you know, on in the trades and stuff, it opened in October 99. They went public and just immediately opened this thing. Mm-hmm. So they were actually using it, really funding it with money that predated the IPO at first, I would guess, or knowing that the IPO would make up for it. But, jeez. Do you notice how much better the questions are in this time period than they okay, are now? Okay, so I'm curious about that. Are they, <laughs> Were they still... Because for, for a long time, they anyone, anyone can actually ask still. Like, if you do it through the... If you try to call the number, or if you try to do it through the web thing, like, I believe theoretically anyone can still ask a question, and I forget if they still play lip service to the idea that media could... The first time I started playing, paying close attention, at least, so let's say like early 2010s to 20 teens, I think they were still at least playing lip service to that. But I'm curious if some of these are media as opposed to stock analysts. I think it has to be, right? It doesn't say, yeah, it doesn't say who's asking that, that, that much. So. Right. Dave, Dave wasn't doing that yet. He would do that later. So uh, once once he became familiar with the Brad Saffalos and uh, the like. Uh, the international, on the international scene, she talked about live events as a tour of South Africa this week. We'll talk about that later. Also, open up those markets to licenses. She looks at Taiwan, Thailand, as well as Vienna, Austria, and Milan, Italy, as cities where future house shows are scheduled. I don't remember Thailand making that cut, but there you go. No, she- I hope she didn't call Taiwan a country either. <laughs> She said, also said the no new major money projects are be, being considered. She downplayed ideas of any large acquisition or new projects similar on the financial level of the XFL or restaurant attempts, which shut down whatever thoughts there were of a 24-hour wrestling channel. Although that's been denied everywhere. She did confirm the company was very close to purchasing two wrestling tape libraries. AWA and ECW, remember purchase price AWA, was in the 580000 range, and They've reportedly bid $1.8 million for all ECW rights. Todd Gordon is claiming rights to 14 tapes, but WWE believe that nobody else is claiming rights. We also know WWE has made strong push of late to acquire the tape libraries of the Watts family, Bill's ex-wife owns the tapes, which she got part of the divorce settlement, as well as Mike Graham's tapes, Chance of Rest from Florida, both of which are tremendous collections that are really a lot better than the Ganya tapes. So the Ganya tapes have early Hogan and Ventura, so are more remarkable nationally. And we'll be planning on using WFWCW and acquired libraries for a video-on-demand pay TV service. The company is also putting a full corporate attempt to purchase, which how about this? How about Dave's got this sentence at the end? Same paragraph. They're intending to put the purchase on the old Miss South Library from the Watts family. <laughs> but I didn't even remember he had just typed it in the same paragraph. But hey, all this shit happens. So there you go. There you go. Yep. Um Yeah, the ECW stuff is just still tangled up in bankruptcy court and Todd Gordon, like, he tried to get involved in that, and then he tried filing a lawsuit claiming, saying that he somehow had a claim over some of the Eastern Championship stuff. It was very strange. It, I'm glad he did, though, because for some reason, I don't really understand how this works. The UCW bankruptcy stuff is no longer public on the federal court's website, Pacer. But even though I... You know, can't really find anyone who saved everything from then, which is also why we have some gaps and we weren't able to consult everything on the Patreon shows. You know, the 
bankruptcy petition and other stuff were filed as exhibits during the Gordon case. So that's why we actually still have some of that original documentation. Yes. And uh, uh, oh, as far as the price, wait. too, I was going to say. Um, so if we're going with 500 an hour of TV, yeah, knowing how it could be hit or miss and when it was more complete, I guess a thousand hours of AWA in the library sounds realistic, right? A little, or a little more? I guess. All right. Uh, there is a thing about the Girls Gone Wild show here, Bex. Man said the company's current connection with the Girls Gone Wild pay-per-view is that Eric Bischoff made a deal with WWE to be paid a fee in exchange for handling the production of the pay-per-view. In exchange, the company is sending three characters to the March 16th pay-per-view show and will promote the show on television with a starting time being at 10 o'clock that night, right after SmackDown goes off the air. She said the show is success and there are future shows that the company may get involved more deeply and talk about maybe investing in a future show and handling international distribution. Well, now we're about that. <laughs> so there you how, go. How glad do you think they were as more time passed that they didn't get deeper into oh. business with Joe Francis? Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. Because, the finance, I yeah. mean, for people who don't remember or weren't around then, like, the degree to which it came out that they were, well, because one of the things, I forget when I first heard this, because I don't think I ever saw any of the actual videos myself, but, like, one of the things with Girls Gone Wild was that it was much more than what they made it seem like in the ads, where it just seemed like it was, like, Mardi Gras footage and spring break footage and stuff, that, like, there were, like, women that they got liquored up to do stuff with each other. On the tapes yeah. and stuff. Like, it really was messed up. So, and then it eventually was, I believe, one of the things that came back to bite them. Yeah. In other financial news, current ticket revenue for WrestleMania is just under $2.6 million, so probably end up being the fifth largest gate in company history. Uh, combined number of buys Survivor Series Armageddon Royal Rumble were estimated at $1.2 While no breakdown of the three were announced, I believe they break down along these lines. Survivor Series, headlined by the Elements Chamber, and brought Lester Big Show, drew about 445000 buys, 0.86 buy rate. Armageddon, headlined by Triple H, Shawn Michaels in the three-match series, and Show and Angle drew to 60.50 by rate, lowest in five years. And Triple H and Shawn is the headline. How about that? Royal Rumble, featuring the Rumble and Triple H, Scott Steiner, Angle Ben Wild drew 495,000 buys, 0.95 by rate. Rumble, tradition, the second biggest show of the year, was way down from last year, which lived at 1.6 by rate. And Mass of the Company's projected 850,000 buys for WrestleMania this year, which would be roughly what they did last year, but below the record-setting 950 they did for WrestleMania 17 and the Rock Austin match there. Now, plans for doing brand series pay events were not only brought up in response to a question. She confirmed the story, saying that long-term goal is to increase the number of pay events per year. She said there'd be no increase this year, but they were considering upping for 12 to either 13 or 14 next year. The investor brought the subject, expressed similar concerns to what was written here last week, that when you make previews less special, you wind up like WCW. She again thought any comparisons to WCW were unfair because this company is so much better managed and so much stronger internationally. <laughs> While those points are true, that has nothing to do with the question of diluting the quality of pay-per-view. When it comes to the house show declines and ratings declines over the past year, comparisons to WCW actually look quite fair. So the brand specific pay-per-view shows are a test, but they believe fans have accepted the brand extension and will buy brand-specific shows. <laughs> Linda freaking out over the WCW comparisons. That's outstanding. Yeah. Um, they are charging what at this point? Thirty-four ninety-five for most shows. Uh, maybe even thirty-nine ninety-five by this point. I don't know if they're up to thirty-nine yet for every show. 
but it's interesting to see things this late, how strong the pay-per-view business is. Yeah. Well, Except for Triple H versus Shawn Michaels. Yeah, funny. Uh, a strong figure in the company is the company averaged $9.84 per head in merchandise sales of house shows during the quarter. That number is skewed because the international events average far above the average. Because I don't think it's there's still- a UK WWE shop yet and stuff like that, right? Yeah, but it still counts, brother. No, I mean, my point being, I know, they're going to be know, buying more merchandise because they, they're not able to do it by mail order as easily. Yeah, I'm saying that a day. I still counts. Money's money. Yeah. All right. Regarding the importance of various revenue streams when it comes to total company income, house shows combined with both ticket revenue and merchandise sold the events generates 25.1% of revenue. Pay-per-view 22.1. TV combined in both rights fees for the shows and advertising revenue generate 35.3%. Overall, overall revenue, licensing, publishing, non-arena merchandise, videos, and revenue from the world generated the remaining 17.5. Linda also talked about cost-cutting in general and gave an example of a $750,000 NHRA racist sponsorship contract that isn't being renewed. Hmm. Now, speaking of renewed, SmackDown was officially renewed on March the 1st. That's remaining in its Thursday night time slot for two hours. The new agreement also includes four WTV specials per year on UPN. There's an economic change in the deal. EPN is not paying a much larger rights fee for SmackDown and getting all the advertising revenue. The figures were unreleased, because, but it will likely come up at the next investors' meeting. The previous deal was that UPN did pay a rights fee significantly smaller and WWE was responsible for selling the ad time, kicking back a commission to UPN. But it's a great they cut down the ad rates that WWE would be able to charge because it's sold commercial on this network more, most often as a package where you would buy a spot that would air on every WWE show during the week and SmackDown drew the most viewers, thus was the most valuable of the shows for an advertiser. SmackDown has remained the highest-rated English-speaking television show in the U.S. among Hispanic households. Mix thoughts? As we've talked about before, even though I think SmackDown is kind of historically remembered as getting some kind of renewal or something that baked it into the Viacom deal for the with the cable stuff, it wasn't. It just happened to be under the same corporate umbrella. And, yeah, they were... <sighs> It's so weird to think back that, like, yeah, they, well, I think, I'm trying to find one of the articles from 2003. I could have sworn that WWE was actually doing it as a time buy at first, according to some of those articles. I seem to remember something like that, yeah. Trying to find one of them. Uh, Okay, here we go. New York Post is the first thing that came up by Paul Tharp. So this is not till April 8th. Uh, okay, so this is uh, squeezed by losses and a sharp drop in both TV fans and arena audiences. McMahon has agreed to give up control of ad sales uh, to Rick the Outsider. Highest rated show. Shows ratings among male teens, focusing on that, interesting, are down 48% from their peak in 2000, triggering change in the way business is done. Um, with a $15 million loss in the last nine months, ad revenue skidded $7.9 million, pay-per-view sales fell $12.1 million, and blah, 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 uh, sales forces of UPN and CBS will take over sales of SmackDown inventory, paying Man's Group a weekly licensing fee of $588,000. This doesn't say anything about whether or not the show was a time buy, though. Also, the stack stock was almost cut in half from a year earlier, where it was almost 16, and it's around eight, hovering around 8 at this time. All right, okay. All right, so let's get back in-ring. There are weekend injuries, all in the same match. 
to Randy Orton, Dave Batista, and Bubba Ray Dudley from a tag match on March the 1st in Reading, Pennsylvania. Orton continues to have the world's worst luck as he just planned, was just playing for a big push. He injured his shoulder and needed surgery. Luckily, the company actually took advantage of this as a positive, creating a character that got him over probably more than he would have had he not been hurt. Then he's put in evolution, and just a few weeks in, was hurt again. Dudley's delivered a flatjack to him in a tag match where he teamed with Batista, and they dropped him wrong and he landed badly, breaking several bones in his right foot and dislocating his big toe. He was being examined this week by Dr. James Andrews dun, 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 to determine how long he'll be out of action. Their earlier estimates three to four months for both members of Evolution's group. The new four-horseman-like angle that will at least have to be temporarily put on the back burner. Batista suffered torn triceps. But he needs surgery not will be determined until an appointment with Dr. James Andrews. The surgery is going to be out six months. If he doesn't need surgery, he'll probably make it back a little quicker. But Ray Dudley only suffered a badly bruised back. Jesus Christ, Tyler. I mean, I remember watching that um, Ruthless Aggression deal they did on Evolution. And, I mean, you forget the, the stops and starts that went on with this group before they finally all got healthy at the same time were able to do their thing. Yeah, it wasn't until I saw this in the notes I got back to thinking about it. And, like, it took forever to get off the ground. You look at, you think of them as a cohesive unit for a long period of time, but they really didn't have that much time together. Yeah, I mean, it was like kind of like the original Four Horsemen in that way. You know, everybody remembers Ole and, 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 and with Rick and Tully and Arm, but, you know, Ole was out for the first half of 86. And then they do the turn in like, February 87. So really the horsemen are together as a cohesive unit for eight months. So then evolution is kind of that way as well, where they're only together for, you know, this August, 2004, after SummerSlam when they did the turn on Orton. So you're looking at, you know, a little less than a year. So yeah, it is crazy to go back and look at that. But yeah, this is, this was a cursed match. That's for sure. My goodness. Because yeah, Batista's out until just before Survivor Series with this, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The slew of Avengers are going to force the company to reevaluate aspects of the business and in-ring product. The company's already asked Talent to tone down the style months ago, put more emphasis on slowing down matches and the submission aspect of wrestling as opposed to many big bumps. The style, which when similar changes have been done in other parts of the world, strengthens hardcore interest because it becomes a more believable product which weakens casual fan interest because viewing requires more paying attention to technical aspects. And that, you know what, Bix? And that, that kind of goes to what I've, what I've always said on here, that the casual fans do not care about the in-ring work as much as they care about everything else. No. <laughs> because they don't have to pay attention to the technical aspects of the match. Correct, yes. Um which the Attitude Era definitely didn't have any technical aspects to matches. No, it, it did not. Um, and we're almost a year removed at this point, also thinking about the other stuff here, about toning stuff down, from when they uh, tried to make an example out of Brian Kendrick at a tryout camp about that dangerous shoot style he had been working in ROH. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, um... Mark Henry, whose name hasn't been mentioned to suffer an ankle injury over the summer, returned on the South Africa tour. Well, the torch has some news on that. The tour of South Africa wasn't as difficult as the tour of India a few months ago, but the schedule was grueling. So it wasn't as difficult as the tour that got many people seriously ill and nearly killed William Regal. But... (laughs) 
So the crew were at Canada for the preview Sunday. They did SmackDown tapings in London, Ontario Tuesday. They drove from London to Toronto and began their trip to South Africa. They had a stop over in Atlanta, then through from there to Johannesburg, then drove to Cape Town for the first event. They then worked four shows over four days, immediately flew back to the United States with time in the air totaling about 18 hours. They arrived back in the U.S. on Monday, had Monday night off before having to prepare for the Tuesday SmackDown tapings. Oof. They played the four-saw crowds in a range of ten to 12,000 the first three nights and about 5,000 the fourth night. Edge was advertised for the tour, so even though he couldn't wrestle, he did still make appearances. But let's talk about this tour. We'll talk about the first kickdown show on the 27th. They did Brock over Big Show and Heyman's final match. Show still was Angle over Benoit, the interference with Team Angle. Benoit got a standing ovation after the show. Team Angle retained in a three-way over Ray and Rikishi and Eddie and Chavo. In Johannesburg, the main was Lesnar over Show and Heyman, along with a semi Benoit Rikishi over John Cena and Kurt Angle in a kiss-my-ass match. Cena's been working on all the house shows about selling a knee injury despite his TV injury angle. It's so weird, only because the TV injury legit, they took Trish Stratus off the road for weeks. You think they have a consistent policy. Edge went on trip and wearing net brace to interviews in the ring for the show, putting over how much he wanted to come to South Africa, even though he's injured. This was a social controversy among the wrestlers, as Edge was in terrible pain from his neck injury and hurting bad, just making middle distance drives in his car, and they want him to fly to South Africa. Yeah, I can see that being a problem. He was one of the big stars advertised, so it was good PR for the market that all the advertised stars at least made an appearance. Um, talk about 12,000 in Johannesburg on March 1st. Every show sold out, although the other shows were in a lot smaller buildings. Yeah, that had to suck. <laughs> that had to suck to go on that run there. Oh, my goodness gracious. Two 18-hour flights, basically. Oof. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, I, I get wanting to try your best to do the do the look. The advertised person is here, but they can't wrestle because they're injured. Thing, I get that, but yeah, you also shouldn't be making the person who needs serious spinal surgery soon sit on two eighteen-hour flights so close together and do all that travel. Yeah. Wow. All right. Um. Let's talk about Kevin Nash. Torch says Kevin Nash has lost considerable weight, but isn't likely to be included in the WrestleMania card. Sources say that because he wouldn't be cleared until Mania at the earliest, McMahon isn't willing to gamble by putting him in a big match. He might not be cleared in time to wrestle. He doesn't want to demean him by booking him in a lower card match or at the turn. Nash may get involved in being a pay-per-view in a non-wrestling capacity, though. He doesn't do it. No, he returns a couple months later out of a black hole to feud with Triple H. Yes. It, that was sudden. Remember? Just how... Yes. yes. It was just like... Had he even been in on that episode of Raw earlier? Or was it literally just they were shooting whatever angle and then his new Diesel knockoff music hits and he comes out as a babyface? I think it was that. Yes, right? some... yeah, and then it was I like that so. was the end of the show and then, you know, a week or two yeah. later was that endless brawl with Triple H? Just Oh my goodness. A, a weird run. That he has here. And this is the return from the quad injury. Gail Kim, who replaced Tor Wilson on house shows when Wilson was training for her Playboy shoot, is on television is expected to start on television soon. Both David Lagan and Brian Gowers have expressed interest in her on the different shows, and that decision hasn't been made. So, but yeah, she does uh get on TV, so there's that. Yes. Um as we all know, JR had to get creative to make Vince approve her hiring. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I guess we'll leave it at that. You can look up the story if you want to. It's not hard to find. Yeah. The plan is to rock at this point after he leaves for his next movie commitments at the WrestleMania's to return early 2004. Gee, oh. does. Yeah. Howard Stern put over a new Goldust character on his show, saying it's one of the funniest things he's ever seen on television in a while. Stern actually called his him, him Goldsmith and described him as looking like a clown dressed up like Violent J of Insane Clown Posse. And they said the guy interviewing him looks like a retard. Some big fat guy in a cowboy hat. Wow. Dave says, you think they include him in on Bell's policy because most fans thought it was the worst taste possible. You know, that is what Stern has always been about. It wasn't all comments for comedy either. Saying Goldsmith went to the Shannon Doherty School of Acting. They played the interview on the show with everyone laughing at it. And then uh, a couple weeks later, Goldust is in studio. Yes, Goldsmith is in studio. <laughs> yes. Goldsmith. The Shannon Doherty School of Acting. <laughs> Goldsmith. It's what WCW wanted Goldberg's name to be when they thought it was too Jewish. <laughs> Oh, me. All right, we got more news on ECW's library picks. And Paul Heyman. W- <laughs> yes, this, and from the torch. W's attempt to purchase ECW videotape library for the bankruptcy trustee has led to a lot of talk that a company is interested in creating an ECW brand. Where would they get that idea? <laughs> Some wrestlers are the impression that W would devote either the heat or velocity time slots to the brand. Several former ECW wrestlers who currently work for WWE are said to be fearful <laughs> that... It's- let me continue. Several former ECW wrestlers who currently work for WWE are said to be fearful that management members who have been feuding with Paul Heyman will try to get the last laugh on him by firing some of his former employees at pet projects. I'm concerned for Spike Dudley, says one wrestler. Paul has always take care of, taken care of him. It's well known by everyone in the company. He's one of Paul's boys. Shannon Moore, Nunzio, and Brian Kendrick are all wrestlers who probably owe their jobs to Heyman. There was a lot of talk last few months that Moore was going to be released, but Heyman liked him so much he placed him in the role as Matt Hardy's sidekick to ensure he'd be retained. Nunzio's been a favorite of Heyman's dating back to his ECW days, Little Guido. And most sources suspect that Heyman pushed hard for him to be hired. And was also a big supporter of Kendrick and went out of his way to include him in recent storylines. Well, thank you, Tommy Dreamer, for speaking up for Paul there. <laughs> no, because seriously, though, think about it. Isn't it a little conspicuous that Tommy Dreamer is not on the list of wrestlers who probably owe their jobs to Paul? <laughs> yes, just a little bit. Oh, that's great. Yeah, like, yeah, like he's not the type of wrestler they'd hire if they weren't doing that storyline and stuff. Like, so I, I kind of think that's him, right? Either he yeah, didn't li- either he didn't list himself, or Wade is not listing him because he's the one who said it. Hmm. Um. As far as that oh, ECW brand, though. <laughs> Gee. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you. We're less than two years removed from you writing about him astroturfing an ECW revival. <laughs> <laughs> like, dear God, have a little perspective. I guess he didn't think nobody would notice. Uh, he, he really did eventually outdo uh, Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. Mm hmm. He learned from the best and that did him. There was some casual talk a while back about creating a third brand using ECW night. This is Dave. <laughs> Everyone in the company officially gets the rights to it and putting a certain night, two hour show in the Velocity Confidential time slot. At this point, we're told it's no longer under consideration. Gee, I wonder why that is. <laughs> Dave, let's have a casual conversation. 
Oh, man. Oh, I love it. More Paul Heyman talking to the sheets. That's oh, fantastic. Gabe, who is this Michael K. Johnson the third that keeps calling me? <laughs> oh, he knows who he is. <laughs> I'm kidding, but no, because at the time he was still going by Michael K. Johnson the third, wasn't he? Uh, maybe. And to close up the WWE section proper, if there was ever a point that explains the staleness of the top spots, this is it. WrestleMania will mark the 63rd North American pay-per-view in a row where Austin, Raw, Undertaker, Triple H will work in the main event. The last time WWE put on a pay-per-view with someone other than those four on top was December 7, 1997, when the show was headlined by Ken Shamrock versus Shawn Michaels. 63 pay-per-views in a row. I'm wondering wow. if UK pay-per-view didn't have any of those four, if he's saying North American pay-per-view. 63 in a row. Yep. Do we talk about how stale the top of the car was, you know, in that era and everything? The more things change. Well, I mean, the one, well, but what you can say, though, about WWE now is they do have different people on top. They mix and match. Yeah, to, to a degree. But, Chris, what's it's the WrestleMania event about to be? Well, yeah, but, I mean, I'm just saying in general, I mean, women may have been the last match on pay-per-views. I mean, they... they there's a lot of mixing matching. It isn't the same exact guys every show. Well, and you know, well, not and, every and, show. Yeah, and we're also probably going to get Rousey Charlotte main eventing night one, the mania this year. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, for what it's worth, looking real quick at the UK pay per view listing on Pro Wrestling History, Rebellion '99 is Triple H Rock, Rebellion 2000, Angle Austin Rock, Rebellion 2001. Angle, Austin Angle's Rock. not on this list. So there you go. No, but it didn't. He's not saying it has to involve. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. sorry. All of all or more than one of them. He's saying it. Those just things, those things can't be in the main. Those things can't. Those things can't be in the show. I got right you. I got for you. it to be okay. Well, I, I see one now. Even before going into the non-rebellion shows, because Rebellion O two was headlined by Lesnar and Heyman versus Edge. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, it looks like most of the rest might fit, and that's why we had this exception here. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Insurrection, and then... Is he rolling no, I don't, okay. no I'm just, I have two more. Uh, yeah, it's just that one show. That's that's the reason. Re Rebellion 2002 is the single reason he gave that caveat. Otherwise, it e even including the UK pay-per-view shows, it would have been true. Yeah. All right, so we close with OVW. Yeah, so how Valley Wrestling, since they're uh, in network with WWE. Crash Holly and Bradshaw appeared on the February 26th OVW TV tapings. Holly was supposed to wrestle Nova, but he ended up seconding Chris Nowinski against Nova, and Holly's interference allowed Nowinski to get the win. Renee Dupree and Lance Cade advanced the tag title tournament over the Painkillers, BJ Payne and Matt Morgan, when Renee Dupree hit Payne with Kenny Boland's briefcase. Morgan continues to show improvement, and in the long run, looks to be the hottest prospect they've got. He doesn't have the charisma that Cena showed at the same stage, but he shows more charisma and ability than Brock Lesnar and Dave Bautista showed at the same stage. Well, we know what happens to Matt Morgan. It says that the pre and Cade against Seven and Travis Bain in the all Well, wait a second. Technically, we still don't know yet what's going to happen to Matt Morgan. <laughs> TV main was Nick Densmore with Doug Bash and DQ in a three-and-a-half-star match where each kicked out the other's big move. Dismore had the crossface on Basham when Johnny Spade came out. Chris Canyon also came out. 
followed by damage and delivering the brain damage to Dennis Warren, which resulted in DQ. Fuface tried to make the save no avail. The heat was built up so well that when Bradshaw showed up in clean house, the place came unglued. He had the clothesline from WCW on every heel they could find that would take it. He definitely got the spent, spent time spent time getting better conditioned for returns. After the show went off the air, all the faces drank beer together. Bradshaw made a comment as he did the Austin deal that he didn't want to get in trouble for gimmick infringement. Dave's favorite thing is watching OVW interview segments is to count how many Jerry Lawler Memphis phrases from the 70s and early 80s you can get in one interview. Last week, Dave saw Lance K and Kenny Bowen do some of Lawler's heel stuff. Cornette do his babyface stuff, including one right out of the Letterman show with Kaufman. Doug Bastion was like a luchador who just about lost who was just lost a hair match. He went from long hair to short haired look that dooms every wrestler to look to look sort of the same. After a few weeks of that, he went back to the went to the Vin Diesel look. You'd think if guys with long hair want to shave their heads, the least they could do is set up a quick program into a hair match. After being numerous replays of the bikini contest for a few weeks back, Nikita and the shape he, she was in would be any woman on the main roster in a contest judged on bodies with little clothing. She's not as pretty as most of them, though. <laughs> Aww, <laughs> so there you go. OVW. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm trying to remember I was still watching the OVW TV at this point, but I'm assuming the Lawler Kaufman thing is that we get a I'm not that kind of guy. What kind of guy are you then exchange from Bolin and Cornette? Probably, yeah. Um, as far as what else is here, uh, as I scroll back through this, Canyon, clearly there were people in the company who had bizarre issues with him regardless. How much of that is WCW? How much of that is homophobia? How much of that is, is ring style? Who knows? But, okay, yeah, I think I was still watching during this run. Um Whenever he showed up in OVW, holy shit, was he good. Well, yeah, he was able to, to do things he couldn't do other, other, where, other places. I mean, he wanted to be there, though. He, at one point, offered yeah. to move to Louisville to be kind of a player coach. And, mm. you know, like, he... I can't stress enough just how... I mean, in general, in this era, like, even when he's teaming with was it London or Kendrick who wasn't under contract that he teamed with on a velocity or no it was losing to London and Kendrick I think like, well I, I, I yeah I don't know but he just like whenever he goes out there he's having tremendous TV matches whether it's on B shows or OVW TV or whatever like he clearly still has value yeah but he had his enemies so yes. yeah and also one thing I would say to give a little bit of fairness to the other side at that point, he still hasn't even been diagnosed as bipolar yet, right? I don't think so. Because that was one of the things that I think maybe I knew, but really hit me with the Dark Side of the Ring episode, is that he just was going through this for years, not knowing what he was going through. So, who knows how erratic he is, and who knows without him having gotten diagnosed, who knows how that looks to other people in the company, too. Yeah. Alright, well... Looking at this, this will probably be its own part. So, <laughs> Tyler, uh, we appreciate you requesting this, brother. So, uh, anything that you want to say before we uh, bid adieu? Well, I just want to thank you guys again for having me back on. Uh, and as I say every time that I'm on, this is a lot of fun to do. And anybody who's thinking about tossing down that 50 or 100 bucks to give this a shot definitely should because it is definitely worth it and a lot of fun. 
Absolutely, and we're glad that uh, you, you feel that way, and we're always glad to have you on board. So we'll look forward to the next time that you join us. Yes, like All right. Van Housen, we will always take your human money. <laughs> yes. All right, so that's it for this part. Part two will be coming up next. So be ready for that as we go to Japan, and boy, we got a lot to talk about there, and we'll have so much more. So uh, tune in to part two, everybody. Unless somehow this all fits into one part, which I doubt. Believe me, it ain't. <laughs> I'd be shocked. So they still got 24 pages. Oh my God, Chris was wrong about this show needing two files. This Food Network program brought to you by Jenny O Turkey Store. The new recipe for living. Recipe for quality time. Start with Jenny O Turkey Store marinated tenderloins. Toss in some of Dad's funny jokes. And some not so funny ones. You guys ready for the PA series this time? Before serving. Thank you. Remove all stress. Get someone else to do the dishes. Oh, no, you don't. Yeah. Jenny O Turkey Store, the new recipe for living. Turn it up. Do not dance that, please. Every Tuesday night, celebrate your town and share the unique regional specialties that keep this country cooking. Get out there and eat America. Food Nation with Bobby Flay. All-American festivals and food finds. Tomorrow night, starting at 9 on Food Network. Something smart from Valida. The Pro Ring Mop with microfibers. Microfibers? Right. It cleans even the most stubborn dirt. And it rings great. Exactly. Good luck. The Pro Ring Mop from Valida removes tough dirt easily. No bending, just rinse it. Push and ring. Your hands stay dry, so you can move on to more important things. Valida, the power of red. Good doggy. Like things light and fluffy? And you're going to love the light and fluffy chocolate of the Three Musketeers bar. The fluffier, the better. Oh, yeah. Jamie Oliver knows how to party with food. I love feeding people, and I love them to be happy. And this is when things start getting tasty. This is a quick, quick little dinner. Oh, I like the Mediterranean food. I love me tapas. I love me anti-pasties. Love me marinated artichokes and mozzarellas and stuff like that. This is quick food, isn't it? Posh as well, you know. The fantastic thing about cooking at home is there are no rules, you know. Cook simple, eat well, hang out. Brilliant. Fantastic. Oliver's Twist, Wednesday nights at 9.30 on Food Network. This Food Network program brought to you by Chrysler. Cars to fall in love with. Next Monday night at 9, it's a full hour of Unwrapped. First up, TV dinners. Chicken, turkey, beef. Get the secrets behind these frozen delights. It's a real throwback to my childhood. And Melting Pot Unwrapped. Find out how ethnic foods have become family favorites. Just about as American as apple pie. Then at 10, hang on to your hula hoops. We're counting down the top five food fads of the 50s. Unwrap and top five. Next Monday night starting at 9 on Food Network. Give me a minute to make my case. Kool-Aid. Stir up some smiles. Okay, Dad. Case dismissed. <laughs> Good job. Uh, 
Like things light and fluffy? Then you're going to love the light and fluffy chocolate of a Three Musketeers bar. The fluffier, the better. Oh, yeah. Take a deep breath. It's all going to be fine. Kids, here's my favorite animal. Strong, intelligent, ethical, dependable, compassionate, and patriotic. By the way, where's, where's John? Intelligent, strong, ethical, dependable, compassionate, and patriotic. When you help your neighbors, you help your nation. Everyone can do something. Visit us at usafreedomcorps.gov. When I was senator, I did a lot After of that, things. I was able to orbit the Earth in a great big rocket ship. This Food Network program brought to you by St. Ives. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 2003 commercials as we pivot to the halftime segment of the show where we begin to talk about Patreon, patreon.com slash Sheets. And yes, we have a brand new Patreon show that is either already out by the time you listen to this or will be out today. As today is February 28th, the end of the month. So, yes, everybody look out for that at patreon.com slash Sheets as we're discussing the 20th anniversary of the birth of Ring of Honor. Yes, we uh, go back to 2001, where the uh, genesis began, where Rob Beinstein was wondering who's going to take the place of ECW. And it went from there, spawned on to, uh, you know, the, f- the future plans, and then they all go to King of the Indies, and basically that's where everything explodes in their minds about how they're going to uh, do business. And yes, we go in depth on everything that they were uh, planning on doing, and ideas they had, and the styles they wanted to do, and how they wanted to present a pro wrestling. And we'll talk about that and talk about some of the players involved, such as the Hit Squad, Homicide, Shawn Michaels trainees in san antonio and a whole lot more and we'll talk about the first show we'll have dave Meltzer's review of the main happenings of the first show and a lot more so uh yeah a very very fun edition of the patreon series at patreon.com slash twin sheets so we did joel goodhart we've done all the ecw shows so now we're bookended it completely with ring of honor so if you're a fan of Ring of Honor, go check that out. And if you're somebody who has never really seen that the beginning of Ring of Honor, definitely listen to it as well, and you you learn some stuff about how Ring of Honor came to existence. So five dollars a month gets you access to that and all the other audio we've done in our five plus years of our Patreon archive. Dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and Thanksgiving segment. Twenty five, well that allows you to pick a show for the week. Make sure that uh, when you pick a show, you pick uh, have two shows in mind because somebody could have pick, picked a week that you want or it could have been a week that we've done already. So uh, always be prepared in that regard to have uh, shows in, in mind to uh, to have us do because we always want to uh, do, do right by our listeners and hope that uh, you'll enjoy everything we do. So you do all that, you should be good to go. $50. I just sent it for a segment of the show like Tyler did this week on uh, this week's show. 
and 100 for the whole show if you choose at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Biggs, so we have to, this week is our new and or returning patrons. All right. We would like to thank Darren Mark. Thanks, Darren. And we should note that because we just didn't find the time to record a halftime last week, we have two yeah. weeks worth here. Yeah. Yeah. We show got long last week. Yes. Yeah. There would have been room, but it's just we didn't have the time to record it. It was long. Yeah. <laughs> there would have been room in the file, but yes. Um, Sean Collins. Sean Collins, you said? Yes. Thanks, Sean. Not John. No, because you it kind of it kind of you know buffered as you said something. Oh, on your end. Okay, I thought you thought I said John Collins, which would have been no, 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 no. I heard this is Collins. And if you want to hear all about John Collins, Chris, Patreon.com/slash Twin Sheets. Exactly. Uh, conversion to a year subscription from Matt Baruso. Thanks, Matt. I'm not sure if you saw Matt was very perturbed on Twitter that each time I called him Matthew, and I was like, Matt, that I mean, that's what it says on your Patreon account. What do you want me to do? And he was just well, like, I don't know how to change it. Well, some people are particular about that, you know? Yes. I, I, I get called Christopher by doctors and stuff like that at times and stuff like that, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Is that, like, also how... Uh... I'm always uncomfortable when Meltzer refers to me as Dave Bixon's fan. <laughs> well, I mean, he's Dave Meltzer. I guess so. Uh, let's see, who else do we have here? Ernie Sawyer. Thanks, Ernie. Alistair Vincent. It's Alistair. MWF. I don't know which one. I'll have to look at their account to figure out who that is. MWF? Yes, M as in... Okay, just that, M. Okay, I, I was wondering if the uh, the old Johnny Powers wrestle promotion was no uh, M as in mother. I wonder Millennium Wrestling Federation uh, or something. It, like that. Yeah, I was gonna. I don't think that major wrestling figures. I think they would have a more. Uh, I, I think they would have more of a full name on their account. So I don't think this is. Uh, but anyway, it could be somebody's initials. Who knows? Thanks, MWF. Yeah, that's possible too. Did it have nothing to do with wrestling initialism? Um, I'm assuming this is the same one. Uh, Brian Pillman, biographer, Liam O'Rourke. Thanks, Leo. Liam. Liam, excuse me. You sound, you sound like you said Leo. <laughs> Leo O'Rourke. Skype, Skype, Skype is being funny tonight, but thanks, Liam. It is, Liam. yes. Um, that was weird. All right, uh, who else do we have? Uh, going up to 100, so don't think I got their pick yet. There are a couple I need to talk to you about real quick after we finish recording too that I think are good, but $100 pick from David Davis at Grateful Seconds is how it's Thanks, listed. Thanks, David. Yes. Uh, Mark underscore underscore. Thanks, Mark underscore underscore. Dave Evans. Thanks, Dave Evans. Rick Kobos. Rick. Caleb Green. Thanks, Caleb. And Rob Page. Thanks, Rob. Referee Rob Page, isn't that right? From the tw wrestling Twitter? I think it's referee Rob Page. Yes, I, referee I believe so. And I want to say, because I didn't put their name, I'll tell you off the air. If I'm remembering right, MWF is someone we used to know from message boards. Looking at their email address. Or at least okay. I did. I don't know if you do, but it's someone I, I remember. Okay, well, you can talk about that off the air. But anyway... 
Okay. All right, so we thank all, all you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that were there from the beginning, that's come along the way. We thank all of you for supporting us at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, IWTV, Bix. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, so what's caught your eye recently on IWTV? Well, uh, the other night I watched the Prestige live stream for, I believe it was their first show since the pandemic in Portland at, uh, I think it was called Roseland Ballroom. They drew a big crowd and had a very good show featuring all sorts of wrestlers from different parts of the country. Nick Nick Wayne wrestled in the opener against Ethan HD. Um, refreshing my memory here. Warhorse and Funny Bone was very good. They had a t- three-way for the title where Tom Lawler lost the title to Alex Shelley in a match that also had Dalton Castle. Taya Valkyrie had... Was this her first indie match in WWE? I think it was. Doing a like deathmatch-type match with Drexel, who is their kind of local kooky deathmatch character who comes out to Psycho Killer by Talking Heads, which is nice. I almost said The Talking Heads, but thankfully I caught myself, because as we all know from the live album title, the name of the band is Talking Heads. Well, I mean, I'm the... I don't think I've ever heard of really anybody saying the talking heads. I don't either, but it I mean it happens and I almost did it and it would I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah. And Drexel Drexel's a fine university in Philadelphia too. Well, there's no it, it, there's only one E. It's D R E X L. D D it's Drexel but D, with, yeah. with no E at the end, D R E X L. Okay. All right. Yes. Well, if you had a wrestling school, it would be Drexel's class, of course. Well, yes. Um, what else was there on here? Um, among other things. Oh, uh, MV Young and Darcheek had a wild match with Alley Catch and Effie. And, of course, the main event was uh, Malachi Black and Davey Richards, which was pretty much what you'd expect. And it featured as a surprise debut run-in attacking, uh, or at least confronting, Ty Valkyrie, Athena, former Ember Moon, so... Pretty fun show, hot crowd, big crowd, yeah, good for them. So that was pretty entertaining. What else do we have here that on the on-demand? Did I open that in the same tab by mistake? I think I did. Uh, no, I did open it in the tab. Okay. And now I can't find the old tab. Well, anyway, in the meantime, as far as what's coming up on the live streams... So, you know, already done by the time... Uh, the show is up, but there will be a PWF show from the Carolinas. Let's see what we have here. Oh, we've got a former uh, Wrestle Factory people match happening in the Carolinas because we've got Jigsaw versus Avery Good, professional wrestler, plus the various usual uh, Carolinas guys on uh, the PWF show, including Eric Royal, among others, and... Uh, Infinite T.I.M., the former Timmy Lou Retton, who... Have you seen any of his stuff since the name and gimmick change? No. He was always talented, and nothing against him in the old gimmick. But he's really good lately, from when I've seen him. Like, when he came up here and stuff. And he's been, um... He's been Rob Killjoy's main tag team partner lately, while Lance Lude was, you know, fighting his battle with cancer. They've been to Infinity and the Pond. Oh, that's cute. Yes. And is there anything else here coming up right up? Uh, oh, yeah. God, there's a lot this weekend. This weekend as we're recording it, this past weekend, by the time this is up, um, 
because I'm seeing like there's there's an ICW No Holds Barred show, there's a Freelance Underground show, there's a Pro Wrestling Magic show, there's a Ruth, Ruthless Pro, which I've never heard of before, Blitzkrieg Pro, there's an H2O show. There's a lot. Um, and I scroll too far a little bit. And an Invictus show. Here. Invictus. I hope that came out. Invictus? Right. I was about to say Invicta? No, not, not Invicta <laughs> FC. No. Um, and Oh, the ICW show is in Chicago. Including, among other things, I just take a peek at this. Uh, Bobby Beverly and John Wayne Murdoch. And oh, no. The match that will appear to you, appeal, sorry, to you the most, I guess, would be Akira taking on IWS's legendary Green Phantom. Akira Nagami? No, Deathmatch Akira. Oh, okay. But I think he's all caps, too, like Nagami ended up being, so it's confusing. If only it was Akira Nagami? Yes, and then, oh, this coming weekend, we've got action wrestling in the Scenic City Rubble. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Time's flying away. That's right. Is the action show in Tyrone, or is it going to be in Chattanooga? I'm guessing it's going to be in Chattanooga. I don't know. I'm looking real quick. It is... Does it say on here? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if it does. But the action show has AC Mack depend- defending the IWTV title against Masha Slamovich. Eric Royal defending the action title against Kevin Koob. Dominic Carini against Jaden Newman. Uh, Bobby Flacco, Ashton Star. Excuse me, Ashton Star. Matt Sells, Robert Martyr. Very good-looking show there. And then Scenic City Rumble. And, you know, again, when I say that, this co- as of the time this comes out this coming weekend, Scenic City Rumble, we've got the Scenic City Rumble match itself, of course, plus AJ Gray defending the Supbone Storm title against Shane Newman, Violence is Forever against the Squatting Dragons, Robert Martyr, Kyle Matthews, that's a hell of a match on paper, uh, Avery Good, professional wrestler versus Eric Royal, plus AC Mack and more. So, some good looking shows there coming up from our friends at SCI in action. Yeah. And the time quick, of the let year. Me, yep. Let me go back to VOD just because uh, I accidentally clicked away from And I don't think there were too many new additions. Um, I think we did mention, I haven't watched it yet, but they did also start the new season of uh, The Masked Wrestler a couple weeks ago. So, that's worth checking out, of course course oh i almost forgot because we it was us not recording halftime last week that made us made me forget about this and almost missed that it was streaming mikey blanton's back back why can i not talk tonight mikey blanton's black label pro returned as well with a show that streamed live yes it did so good to see mikey and crew back in action again yes and there was a bunch of interesting stuff on that show including alex zane versus dante martin Anthony Green versus Sky Blue, Anthony Henry, Trey Lamar, uh, Tom Waller, Matt Mikowski in the main event for the Midwest title. So, good return to form for Mikey and Black Label Pro. All right. Well, there's a lot more that you can always watch at IWT. Yes, of course. Yes. And if you have not signed up yet, use code BTSPOD when you go to independentwrestling.tv and we'll get our little referral kickback as long as you stay a paid subscriber. All right. VPN time picks. Tell them the best VPN they can get. Yeah, private internet access. Today's episode is brought to you by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network or VPN. Because even if you use incognito mode, your ISP still stores your browsing data and is oftentimes selling it. But it's not just that. They can help because they encrypt and reroute your internet traffic through one of its own servers 
hiding your data from your ISP or network admin, but they also have servers in over 75 countries, so you can get unrestricted access to geo-blocked content around the world. Hashtag and you know what that means. And they come with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions on all devices, rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, it was just ranked the fastest VPN by PC Mag. And the special deal, of course, right now, I believe, is still... Technically, it's three years plus four months, so really 40 months for, I think it's seventy nine ninety nine, so about two bucks a month. Can't really do better than that, especially since, like I said, they have a full suite of apps, including for TVs. And, should have stressed this before, 30, 30 days risk-free. You don't like it, just reach out to support and they will give you a full refund. So... There's no risk in trying it, so if you want to check it out and help support us, privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. And of course, all this is linked in the show description as well. So privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. Alright. Alright, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at PTC's pod. Bix and David at David Bix. And next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back to 1992, and we'll have the the big plug at the end of the show, but yes. Wait, should I be guessing again? No. Oh, right, because I already it, figured it out. Yeah, it's a pivotal <laughs> week. In, it's a, well, a pivotal week. It's a, uh, you know, quite the big week in WF history, as we have the, the resignations of Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin, and we'll have all the news that went into that. Plus, Bill Mushnick had wrote some scathing columns. And there's just a whole lot of stuff to di- digest in a massive WF section next week. But we have other stuff to talk about, too. We got uh, early Smoky Mountain television we'll play clips of. We got some of the, you know, the other little in- independent groups around. We got Japan. We got Big Show Budokan to talk about. We got New Japan running their 20th anniversary show at Yokohama Arena. We'll be talking about that. We got Lucha. And we got WCW where Jess Ventura... Will not be announcing for the Minnesota Vikings in 1992 because he's back in wrestling again. And we'll have that and a whole lot more from WCW on next week's Between the Sheets. So, um, yeah, should be good stuff next week. All right, Bix, uh, anything going on in your world? Um, Shotgun Saturday Night article on Fanbyte, I think, should be out by the time people read this. I mean, hear this. Um, taking a look at those early live shows, which, you know, I was tweeting some clips and stuff too, until you see people's reactions and also really dive deep and see how few markets it was on. Barely anyone saw those early shows. No, I didn't. I just I just watched the first show the other day in full for the first time ever. Yeah, it was only a few little clips that showed up on the what cable. What a show shows. that was. Oh, God, that first <laughs> show was terrible. The bad production, too. Yeah, Vince and Sonny on commentary. Yeah, the Flying Nuns. Yes. It, by There's the way, I, I didn't dive into this because it figured it would have wasted too much of my time. What is the deal with the weird fake nun outfit that Sally Field wears on Flying Nun that they he then kind of copy here? I don't know. You understand what I'm saying, though, right? Because it's it's yeah. not a it it doesn't look like an actual nun's outfit. Or a habit. No. Whatever. It's, well, it's, the, it's the habit. What do you think else? But, it, yeah, so there's that with the headbangers with the flying nuns. And I don't think I mentioned the article. You 
do at one point, I'm pretty sure, see either Thrasher or Mosh's junk. <laughs> Which, well, you watched it. Well, you watched the whole show more recently, so you can confirm. There is a moment where one of them gets body slammed by the Godwins, and they are not wearing underwear, and Vince reacts with horror. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> yes. Um, the the Macarena segment where Masquerita Scrotta Jr. Oh, has no idea how uh, to do uh, the Macarena. Oh, that was cringe. Yes, we talked about that on the show before. Yes, Mini Vader not having peed for thirty six hours or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but also, I didn't mention the article. One of the things that's wild, I did tweet about it. I love the Matt the Masquerita Sagrada gimmick was on live shows for both promotions inside of a week. Yeah, that is that is true. Because the original was on the post Starcade Nitro, and then five days later, Suki as Masquerita Sagrada Junior. Although sometimes just billed as Masquerita Scrata was on shot. Yeah. That's up there. And also, if people didn't listen to it yet, um, I mean, it's pretty evergreen because it wasn't really about the show itself. Um, John Pollock had myself and Brandon Thurston on the Post Wrestling Daily News update on last Thursday. So that would have been the 17th to talk about the WWE Saudi deal and. You know, looking back over the last four years, and now, you know, also that they did an actual mainline pay-per-view slash premium live event there. They didn't just add a new show to the schedule. So we kind of reflected on everything, and that's up on both their YouTube. And this one, even though I think normally they only put up the Friday uh, news update on the regular free podcast feed, I believe this one was as well. So people can check that out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it was like you said, it was a, basically a regular show. I mean, it was. It was a limitation chamber. Yeah, I mean, and, and they had way more women on the show than they've ever had on their shows. They so. had more women matches on the shows than they have on most pay-per-views. Yes. So. Which, now, I, I am not much of a like Muslim theology scholar, or it's Islamic theology scholar, so I don't know how in different sects or if you get more observant into the Middle East or whatever how this works. I don't understand why basically full-body latex cat suits are considered more appropriate than showing modest amounts of skin. It's the skin, I guess, Bix. What do you think? Else? I don't know. It's the literal flesh. That's probably what it is, right? It's probably a verse somewhere having to do with flesh, right? I guess so. But anyway, so yeah. we talked about that on there, so check that out. And I guess that's it for uh, halftime, right? That is, so let's get back to the rest of the show. Well, let's begin part two of this week's show. As we go to the land of the rising sun, all Japan pro wrestling. And Japan's got a lot this week, folks, and it starts here. Shin Yoshimoto became the third wrestler in history to accomplish the double of winning both the IWGP title in New Japan and Triple Crown in All Japan when he captured the latter belt on February 23rd from the great Muta. Hashimoto, 37, joins Vader and Keiji Muto in that club. Both Ricky Choshu and Stan Hansen should also be mentioned for holding the major world title in each promotion, but Choshu held the PWF title in All Japan, along with several IWGP title reigns before the Triple Crown was formed. Hansen held the NWF title in 1980, the predecessor to the IWGP title for New Japan, before jumping to All Japan and becoming his most decorated foreign wrestler ever. Hashimoto's win came as a result of a tip to jumpstart both promotions by doing the 0-1 All Japan feud. In the battle between the respective company presidents, Hashimoto scored the win in 2009 after a brain buster before a legitimately packed house of 15,800 fans at Tokyo Budokan Hall 
and live on pay-per-view, which was considered a good showing considering how well Japan has done in that building over the past few years. Hashimoto juiced heavily in the match, was said to have been the show stealer. Muda did two moonsaults during the match, and both guys traded shining wizards, while Hashimoto did his usual very hard kicks to the chest. Muda would take the hard kicks and then escape outside the ring. There are a lot of people skeptical of the Hashimoto-Muda program because all Japan has been so negative since November. And while the two haven't met in a singles match in a few years, they were regular opponents for nearly 15 years in New Japan. Still, Hashimoto had never challenged for the Triple Crown. It was a right-booking decision to get the feud off the ground, having the guy from the rival company capture the group's world title. They thought to be building Hashimoto up for a run through several LJP wrestlers. In particular, Satoshi Kojima, which may take place on the coming Zero One show. He would also be defending on April 12th when Japan runs their next Budokan Hall show, which apparently they are billing as the 100th time Japan has run that building in its history. Which sounds improbably low, because they had to run it 70 times in the last 10 years, and we're running four to six shows per year in the building all through the 80s, let alone running big shows there in the 70s. They also ran Sumo Hall a lot, too, which I don't know if Dave's forgetting that, but there's that. Both Sumo Halls. There's a lot of questioning on whether All Japan will be doing a Champions Carnival tournament, because Muto has talked about the company not having enough stars to do it, with Toshiakawada and Taiokea both unavailable. At a booking meeting on February 21st, Muto brought the idea of doing a single elimination tournament as opposed to a round robin, with the winner of the tournament then getting a title shot on April 12th at the Budokan. But that was just an idea, and nothing's been announced officially. Four days later, he talked about doing a round-robin tournament for historical purposes. Arashi was talked about in recent days about facing Hashimoto on the April 12th show, but when word leaked out, people were decrying it as the single worst Triple Crown title match in history. It's all building up the Hashimoto versus Kawada, which may take place in June at Budokan. Tenugurichiro, who would actually be the biggest drawn opponent for Hashimoto at this point, wants no part of the promotion angle amidst continuing rumors he's leaving the company. We'll have more on that in a minute. Kojima and Arashi both challenged Hashimoto in the ring after the match, with Hashimoto thanking Giant Baba for the opportunity and saying they'd be his next two opponents before an All Japan Zero One brawl took place in the ring. All right, before we get into Dave's thoughts on the pay-per-view, um, oh, it was absolutely the right decision to put the uh, Triple Crown on Hashimoto here to try to uh, kickstart this All Japan Zero One feud into another gear because it already started. And they had shot some good angles for it. And then, you know, you run with this. And, yeah, I mean, this, I remember the time, this got a lot of buzz. And, uh, yeah, people were into this whole program. Well, they had just done the angle a few weeks earlier with the busload of the All Japan roster in their tracksuits showing up and invading the ZR1 show, which was it really kicked it off. Which, I remember, you know, the magazine photos were all over the place online at the time. You know, it looked great on video. So people were into this, you know, seemingly both in Japan and in the West. And also, so much had changed that Mudo versus Hashimoto felt like a very fresh match. Yeah, and it's, all, and it's also in all Japan, not New Japan. So it's a totally different battleground. Right, and he had to win the title. It just also because... What was expected of a Triple Crown title match was also a much better fit for Hashimoto than it was for 2003 Mudo in the Muta gimmick. Yeah. And was I going to say, I don't remember if I ever saw this match, though, because this is right at the beginning of the period where I made my friend in Japan who was recording stuff to DVD and then uh, 
eventually transition to supplying friends of ours. I think this is before he was getting pay-per-views. So if I saw this, it wouldn't have been until... When were they showing those on Samurai? The same match? Or get or get or like a month or two later? Um, Depending on... The timing would, would change off, off and on, yes. So I'm not sure if I saw this. If I did, it was further removed than it would have been from the other stuff. So I don't honestly don't remember if I saw this match, but... The angle was great, and it all made sense, and it seemed to be a shot in the arm for both promotions. At the time, yeah. And um, Arashi and uh, Kojima were the, the first two defenses. Hashimoto beat Arashi on April 12th, and then uh, he beat Kojima on uh, June something. I can't remember off the top of my head. It was in June. Um, but, um, but yeah, June 13th. But then he had to vacate the belt two months later because he got injured his knee. And Hashimoto injury, you know, news, which sadly plagued him the rest of his life with injury problems. And um, the Kawada and uh, Shinjiro Tani faced off for the vacant Triple Crown. So we never got the Hashimoto-Kawada Triple Crown deal that was planned. So there you go. But... um. But yeah, so this was a, a big, big story in Japan. And Dave uh, actually got to see the top three matches from the pay-per-view. And here's his thoughts on it. They got rid of all the video walls and it was back to the just the ramp and curtain, but no life-size photo of a giant Bob on the curtain to give people the idea symbolically that Bob was watching all the matches. I hated that. <laughs> I love giant Bob on the curtain. I understand Muto wanting to, you know change and, and, and put all Japan in his own image in that way. But it's Giant Baba. You know? Also that you're doing this on basically the first anniversary of taking over the company? Yeah. I know. Feels a little weird. Yeah. Dave said the atmosphere was so much better than any Budokan show in months. The top three bouts started with Kasayashi, Tenyogurichiro, and Yoji Anjo over... Gigantes, Bix. Come on. Sorry, come I was on. muted. Jerry Tweet, the wall, brother. Yes. John Tenta and Jimmy Yang in 1512. Tenra is involved here, so there you go. Uh, good match. It's so freaky before the match where they list everyone's age. You see Tenru is 53. Speaking of that, Antonio Nurki turned 60 on February 20th. Rick Flair turned 54 on February 25th. Because there has probably never been a 53-year-old who could work like him. Oh, no. Gigante showed a lot of potential as a big guy who stuffed all the good and is aggressive. People popped whenever he was in with Tenru. Of course, Hayashi and Yang are excellent. Tenta isn't good at all. It's funny, as his top has Earthquake written on it and his trunk has shark, have the shark emblem. Tenta did a crossbite off the apron, being caught by four guys. Then Tenru did his world's oldest 270-pound tope. Finished the Hayashi over Yang with a final cut off the middle roast and three and a quarter stars. Oh, oh, Tenro's fucking awesome. I just watched a um, match the other day from uh, January the 3rd, 2004. It was Tenru, and I forget who his partner was. And they went up against uh, Tomoki Hamba and Kazushi Miyamoto, Tamaric Storm. Holy shit! <laughs> Tenru and Hamba were insane in that match. I mean, Tenru, I forgot the whole gimmick of what, what the storyline was there, but Tenru just was actively 
wanting to beat the shit out of Homa at all points during the match. Inside the ring, outside the ring. He was no-selling everything. He was just beating his fucking ass. And it was amazing. Yeah, that dude was awesome for a long period of time. Maybe he had a Taz kind of complex. You're wearing my colors, <laughs> brother. <laughs> he was fucking pissed for some reason. He was taking it out on that poor man. I'll say this, I though. Oh, I would have uploaded it. I would have uploaded it, but it was a Samurai TV thing, so I, I don't want that problem. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Where was I going with that, though? Now I don't remember. Damn it. Well, keep going. I'll, it'll come to me. Alright, uh, the next match Dave saw was Satoshi Kendo Kashin, Arashi, and Nobutaka Araya going over Shijiro Tani, Masato Tanaka, Katsuko Okosawara, and Ruchi Sai. All Japan vs. Zero One battle in 2006. Match had great heat and intensity. Okosawara doing the karate stuff at first looks weird, but his moves were stiff enough they were okay. Sai, who showed really good potential, but was carried great by Kojima. Emblem, Otani Tanaka made the match on their side. Arashi and Araya are two colorless fat guys who move well like a work. Oh, colorless. Okay, I, th- I thought he was going to be more negative on them. Okay. Colorless fat guys. But they can move well Arashi- and can, can work. Arashi would never get over in the United States, but all the stuff looked good. Kojima's selling was so good that people popped big when Sai hit him with a normal suplex for a near fall. Kojima pins Sai with a lariat to win. Someone took a great SmackDown match only longer. Three and three quarter stars. Okay. Um, interesting description. That said, Ogasawara was not consistent, but you put him in with guys who know how to make that style work, and he could be fantastic. It all depends on who he was with. Yes, absolutely. But he, there would also be matches where you wouldn't expect them to be really good that he was in that war. There was one that was like, in zero one around this time, I want to say it was, it was a tag, and Wataru Sakata was definitely in it, but I don't remember if they were partners or on opposite sides. But it, you wouldn't have expected it to be like particularly good, but it was probably the best match in like, you know, that month or whatever of zero one DVDs that I got. Oh yeah, he had his moments absolutely. He was good. And then we had the main event, Hashimoto Ramuda for the Triple Crown of 2009. This was a terrible match that served its purpose. Muda stalled a la Laird's Visco for more than six minutes. Finally, Hashimoto got t- as tired as everyone else of this, so he went outside. Muda turned the tables and hit a shining wizard to post Hashimoto. Hashimoto did the blade job and was bleeding profusely for the rest of the match. Muda used a pin to have the cut worse. Fans were really into the match. They said it was his Budokan were chanting for Muda while Hashimoto was laying there bleeding. Hashimoto made a comeback, but was cut off by Muda blowing mist. And he got cheered for it, as this was a pro All Japan crowd, even though Muda worked a total heel style. The crowd was really into it from that point with several near falls, but some of the work was sloppy. Hashimoto delivered a terrible looking DDT. Muda missed the moonsault, but hit a second one on his 80 year old knees. Dave remembers in February 1990 when a doctor told Muda if he didn't retire his moonsault, his career would be drastically shortened. He still wrestles today. <laughs> Hashimoto did a spin kick to Nina Muda so great he did an arm bar and the crowd was really into it when Muda made the rose for a break Muda blew missed again but Hashimoto blocked it Muda still the shiny wizard and then Hashimoto came back with the worst looking shiny wizard ever followed by a brain buster for the pin as bad as the match was its effectiveness can't be denied as the crowd was into it and heated for all the post match 
and the visual of Hashimoto drenched in blood with three belts was strong. Hmm. Here, I mean, that's the thing that, uh, that's the thing that, you know, people that just, all they care about is if matches are good and like technically, they're t- I think they totally missed the point on if a match is effective because of the heat, the crowds, uh, you know, it, it, you know how they're investing in the match and everything. That that's the thing that, that that you know. The older I've gotten, the more I've I've embraced the effectiveness of matches and you know, get, gotten over that. Hey, this match might technically be the shits, but goddamn was it heated and goddamn was it over. I think some people, I mean, and Dave, and here's the thing, Dave's, Dave still does that shit today. But that's just the way he is. The you weird know? thing, though, is Dave will, he'll use the crowd was into it to defend the stuff he likes, but he, it, he will argue if someone uses it to defend stuff he doesn't like. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, I think I found the match I was thinking of as far as the Ogasawara stuff. The, uh, January 31st match he had with uh, Naohiro Ishikawa against Sakata and Okuto Adaka, I think is the one I'm thinking of, which was the no, second match that. between the two teams. Yeah, that was good yeah. stuff. All right. Um, I didn't put the rest of the results here because uh, I kind of thought Dave had in his rundown. But anyway, here are the rest of the results. What a show this is. Grand Hamada and Taichi Shikari defeated Masafuchi and Airwalk Spriggan. Yeah, the amazing rad, basically dressed like Link from Zelda. Yeah, but just think about that: Hamada and Taichi against Fuji and Red. <laughs> That's your opening match. How about and then this next match: Extreme Blade, either Skipper over Super Dragon. That's right, PWG Super Dragon in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Then our next match, an eight-man tag elimination match as Turmeric Storm in full at this time. Kazushi Miyamoto, Tomoki Hama, and other members, although I guess you could say they were affiliates, but still members, Tomohiko Hashimoto and President Sanshiro Takagi defeated Hideki Asaka, Ryuji Takata, Shigeo Kamura, and one of my favorites, Yuto Aijima in 24-33. And then the other match that's not listed here is the Gladiator, Mike Awesome, over Nobukazu Hirai. The one thing I can say about All Japan in this era was, yeah, it, it may not have been as good technically as it was a, a while back. You know, but it was when, always when it was interesting. First... It was fun as shit because you had all these crazy matches. It, you know, that the was show... the thing with Zero One, too. It was also why yeah. that was the perfect feud as far as company versus company there was a tv that was before a week that i remember well from hakata star lanes where it had a hitchikata and okamura going to a 20 minute draw with homa and yuki ishikawa you had the team of spriggan and mike awesome so red and mike awesome as a tag team against skipper and yang you had fucking granamata nobukazu arai against kendo kashin and super dragon then you had tenru over miyamoto in a main event you had i mean yeah, all kinds of, of fun shit going on, and uh, and this and there was one on February the ninth, which was a TV taping featuring this match of Gigante Super Dragon and Mike Awesome. So you got the Wall Super Dragon and Mike Awesome 
against either Skipper, Keiji Muto, and Yuto Hajima. <laughs> I mean, you got some fun shit. Then Super Dragon Team with Kashin and Kojima. Lose it to Gigantes, Grand Hamada, and John Tanta. That was a house show. So, yeah. Looking around uh, the previous show on the tour, had a singles match between Hamada and Red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they just had a lot of lot of fun stuff going on. It was it was fun to watch. So, and all these and different guys coming in from different promotions. And, did yeah, you, it was oh, fun. Did you read the one from the sixteenth? Of uh, yeah. of the one with Awesome and the Juniors, or did you? Say yeah, that? yeah. Okay, I did. I yeah. did. I, they were yeah. running together. I wanted to make sure because that that's a unique one. But anyway, yeah, that, was, that was the TV I was talking about. Yeah, but so there's that. But there's also Tenru. He has quit his front office position, which he doesn't do office work for. So basically, this is an angle. Although he is actually quitting, which seems to be a prelude of him leaving for World Japan. He's already backed out doing a proposed match with Bill Goldberg, having anything to do with Russell One promotion, having nothing to do basically with the Russell One promotion, and now staying out of all Trans Zero One's program. His wrestling contract with the company expires in June. He basically just becomes a freelancer. Yes. And he, does, he works all Japan some, but yeah. He, he do, he's on the early World Japan shows, which we'll be getting to. He's not he he's not too keen on the direction on Japan was going in at this time. So there's that. Because he's brought in basically to help restore Bob as all Japan in light of the defections. And then Muto comes in and just totally, you know, takes it in another direction. Yes. So anyway. Alright. So let's go to New Japan Pro Wrestling. New Japan held press conference with Pancras president Masami Ozaki to announce an apparent shoot match with Kengo, all cast, Kengo Watanabe, another one of my favorites, a charismatic but not very successful legit fighter, against Ryoto Machida on the uh, May 2nd Tokyo Dome show. Machida, who is Antonio Nuki's new golden boy because he has similar heritage and he's Japanese, grew up in Brazil, and was a great high school athlete, all like Anoki. Anoki said he wants to bring in fighters for Pride and K1 to face Machida on big shows this year. This will be his debut in any style. They announced there would be four Ballet Tudo matches on this show. Pancrase has worked with Japan since Jushin Liger Minoru Suzuki fiasco. It's great for Pancrase because you put a trained shooter in against a trained worker in a shoot, and the shooter's going to look good. Pancrase is far lower visibility wise in New Japan. This will probably be similar to WWE putting four shoot matches with guys for King of the Cage on WrestleMania. It'd be great for King of the Cage, but most would say WWE would be insane for doing it. Well, the culture is different, but New Japan's run by people who are insane. Speaking of insane, they're apparently going with the plan to run another Tokyo Dome show May the 1st, including bringing a lot of retired New Japan wrestlers back on that show. If you buy a ticket to May the 2nd, you get a free ticket for May the 1st, so they're pushing the idea that with the cheapest May 1st ticket price at $17.11, you can see two Tokyo Dome shows for that price. Which is a hell of a bargain if you like watching high-profile bad wrestling matches. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Ryoto. <laughs> Ultimate Crush. Wasn't he also all caps Ryoto at first? Yes. And then eventually people figured out that it was supposed to be Ryoto. Which... Yes. Wait, if it's a... So is Ryoto actually a Brazilian name as opposed to a Japanese name? Because I believe his mother is ethnically Brazilian, right? Um, but his name is Leoto. 
That's what I'm saying, though. So Lyoto Carvalho Machida. No, my point L being, though, if Lyoto was a Japanese name, wouldn't the transliteration not matter? Or is it that it's – do you get what I'm saying? It's the Portuguese pronunciation of his name, and they went with that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and yeah, Kengo was who he fought at Ultimate Crush in his MMA debut. Where uh, after the fight, uh, he gets a fighting spirit slap from Anoki, and the people who did not know the Anoki history were very confused and concerned by this. <laughs> yeah. All of that said, though, like, yeah, the first fight's kind of a gimme, and even if he only wins by decision, since Kengo is kind of a gimmick fighter, right? He was more just a rugby player with a good body. You know, he could beat some people, but still. His next two fights um, in September and December to close out the year for him, which are on a jungle fight card and then on Bumbaye, are stoppage wins over Stefan Bonner and Rich Franklin. Yeah. So he he showed he was legit very early. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Kango Ken, was a decision. I mean, that was not, it wasn't, you know, he yeah. took him all three rounds. Yeah. That, that, show, all, that, okay. that show also featured uh, Shinsuke Nakamura against Jean the Giant Norshi. Yeah. It had uh, Josh Barnett's New Japan debut, right? In uh, But under Ultimate Crush rules. No, Josh Barnett fought, fought Nagata on the January 4th show that year. That's right. I forgot that was his debut. Okay. Right, he, he but he beats Jimmy Ambrose. Uh, Fujita beats Nakanishi, and Yoshi Kosaka beats uh, Blue, Wolf's, Blue Wolf's brother. And, and how funny is it that Ken Shamrock worked the show in a wrestling match? <laughs> how funny is it that Ensign Inouye worked the show in a pro wrestling match? <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that, about Shamrock Izuka. Yeah. Um else on here but all right they had the nwf iwgp unification as well plus the kabashi chono match that's mm. that's such a weird card when you look at it top to bottom it was a weird era <laughs> of new japan yes and because you had you had what you had yeah. you had a, a you had a power situation where half the power wanted to be a traditional and pro wrestling promotion the other half was a nokiaism and they're fighting each other which they turned into an angle where in the G1 that year, Chono and Anoki have, you're having a, you know, shit talk session in the ring. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. 19, uh, 2003 G1, which, uh, well, that's obviously it changes under ghetto what the G1 means. I feel like though, those O2 and O3 G1s are kind of the beginning of the modern G1. In terms of that you're kind of having more of an expectation of great matches every night? Well, 04 was like, you know, right there. It was one of the best ever. So, But I guess the way to put it then would be like, Takiyama's performance in 02 kind of sets the stage that now you're, you know, and him and Nishimura and a few others help set the stage to have higher expectations. And then 03 and 04 really deliver on that. Yeah. Um, but just to finish the Lyoto thing real quick, like, even when they're not necessarily established MMA fighters, like, his next few fights, too, like, Michael McDonald's a legit kickboxer, Sam Greco, of course, was a legit kickboxer, 
the weird BJ Penn fight is in there, but BJ still has more experience and held him to a decision. Like, he has some easier fights in here, but he's not, overall, he's not being matched up easy at all. Yeah, I keep forgetting that he fought Mike McDonald. All right, they're doing an angle where Yuji Nagata is refusing to appear on the May 2nd Tokyo Dome show because the company is pursuing, pu- pursuing pushing Yoshiro Takayama, who isn't even a New Japan wrestler, and his NWF title ahead of him in the IWGP belt. Well, well that's, they're going to solve that, that by taking the belt from you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Shinsuke Nakamura, who got the big push so far, then shifted to beating Tadao Yasuda in his first match at the Chamber for Tokyo Dome, is leaving until the May 2nd Dome show. During the interim, he'll train in Los Angeles for shoot fighting at his Hoyodoki's LA dojo, and then train for pro wrestling in Florida under Dory Funt Jr. Well, plans change because he wins the belt from Nagata before the Dome show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Super rookie, exactly. brother. Mm-hmm. Satoru Sayama, the original Tiger Mask, is talking about coming out of retirement for one last match with the current Tiger Mask, who is his protege and emulates his style. Sayama said it would take him one year to drop 45 pounds to get in good enough shape to do what he used to do. Sayama would be 46 by the time the match takes place. Did this end up happening? They wrestled, but he didn't... I mean, I don't know if he lost 45 fucking pounds, but um, he did lose some weight, but he was still, you know... Kind of, kind of uh, hefty, but yeah, I mean, he he would he would come back and work as Mask of Tiger, yes, in this era. So in yeah, this he's, era, he's... though, I don't know if it's weight loss or renewed commitment to wrestling or whatever. This this era is the best work he had done in years. Like, is he great? No, but he seems much more engaged with pro wrestling at this time than he had in a while. Yes. Yeah. All right, uh, Hiroshi Tenzan was married on February 23rd in an elaborate ceremony and party at the K.O. Plaza Hotel in Tokyo. There were 351 guests, which included everyone from the company. The only non-company wrestler to attend was Tetsuito Takeiwa. Why does that sound odd, considering Satoshi Jima wasn't there? Well, he was wrestling uh, for an Japan that night, which, of course, is a Budokan. And Muto couldn't be there, Hashimoto couldn't be there. Antonio wasn't there, but sending a video in of congratulations that play. Masahiro Chono was the best man. The biggest non-wrestling celebrity to attend was Ashishoru, the sumo wrestler we've seen the ride about every week. <laughs> yeah. Because he was involved in pro wrestling stuff. So, there you go. Yes, and of course, highlights of this wedding would air on New Japan's ESPN Strong Style Extreme Wrestling. Uh yes, they would they would do that on on occasions when the wrestlers got married. They would show uh, the uh, reception and everything. Yes, and uh, a young lion named Toru Yano. Yeah, Yano. Yano. I don't know why I said Yano. Uh, Toru Yano turns out to be a very entertaining drunk during this wedding, which would have no impact on his career at all. Is it this one? It's one of the. I think this is in there because there were there were a few close together, and I think he, it happened at all of them. Yeah, I don't know if it's this one or not, because there's other ones there there's other ones at the same time. But there were a few, and wasn't the whole thing that Yano Nagata, was Yano Nagata stuff happening got, at every wedding though? So, yeah, it was something. But Nagata they got married in this era, yes. you know. No, so. I know. I remember that. And the other best part of the Minoru Tanaka. Yeah. No, but the other best part of the wedding videos besides um besides Yano was always how they handled Liger. They would just superimpose a circle that had his mask over his face. Yes. 
He couldn't wear his mask at the reception. Yeah, of course. He's no, not that committed. Well, also, he's not that committed to the gimmick. It's not like no, uh, nobody knows what he looks like. It's not like he had multiple matches where his mask was pulled clean off. But well, you know. All right, so let's go to Pro Wrestling Noah, and this is where we had our biggest show of the week. Oh, that's right. I almost forgot. It was the biggest real life battle of the year in Japan. On March the 1st, there were three major live events in the Tokyo era, area. Excuse me. The biggest match in Pro Wrestling Noah's history, the debut of Ricky Choshu's World Japan promotion, and the first K1 show of 2003. If that wasn't enough of a battle for the three promotions, an unforeseen obstacle in the form of terrible rainstorm added to the competition. The Noah show was taped for television the next night. World Japan aired live on pay-per-view, and K1, which was an all-middleweight show, based around a tournament that included two pro wrestlers, aired in primetime on TVSI. As far as the arena show aspect went, Noah was the big winner. His show sold out more than a month in advance for the show headlined by what appears most reporters are talking about as a top contender for match of the year in Japan so far in 2003. Katakabashi winning the GAC title over Mitsuharu Masawa, which is already being called the final great battle and one of the all-time singles rivalries in pro wrestling history. The brutal and emotional match ended with Kabashi beating Masawa for the first time in his career on a major show. He had won previous bouts, but none were on a major show. And with a title at stake, when me and the crowd moved to tears at the finish and aftermath. The scene was said to be similar to the show in 1990 that set up all Japan for its greatest Tokyo business run when Masao and Jumbo Shirut in the same building. Kobashi was hospitalized with a broken orbital bone in his right, around his right eye, a similar injury to the one Yoshiro Takayama got in the match where Masao won the title on in September 23rd. The doctor told him he didn't need surgery but needed the rest from all training and wrestling for three weeks. At a press conference on March the 4th, yes, I know it's after our week, he said he won't miss any matches, although the next tour starts on March 21st, which basically be one day shy of three weeks. Masao was also hospitalized after the show, needing six stitches to close deep cuts in his chin and lip. In a surprise, the Masao Kabashi match did not air on Noah's TV show as advertised. And instead, they aired other matches from the show and just a ring introduction of Masao Kabashi. Announcing there would be a one-hour special next week, and the match would air uncut. The show drew an announced crowd of 16,700. There's no way they can get that many in that building. And legitimately turned away thousands at the door that night. World Japan drew 9,000 fans to Yokohama Arena, some of which was paper. The promotion of public said that no matter what, it wasn't going to pay for the building. But with only 5,000 tickets sold a week out, free tickets were not all that difficult to get in the final days for the show. And now 13,200 fans are face there for their debut show, which said it had both good points and bad points. K1 drew a on 9420. A full house at Rocky Coliseum in Tokyo for a strong show. More importantly, without any of the big mainstream names, the show drew a 15.6 rating, which is about 22 million viewers, which is a great boost when the company badly needed it, with TV deals and sponsorships all hanging in the balance after the tax evasion indictments of Kazuyoshi Ishii. The Pete Ray was for the finals of the tournament, with Masato winning over Kozo Takeda, which did a 22.2 rating. Zero One drew what was announced as ten thousand five hundred at Sumo Hall. That's the day after our week, so we won't be talking about that. But live reports has made the crowd closer to nine thousand, which is still very good considering the weekend. The main event was clearly a set match for the future, as opposed to a must see match. Now, a big surprise in the Noah show after Kobashi pinned Masao in thirty three twenty eight with a burning hammer, a reverse Death Valley bomb, in the first singles match in three years. Zero One wrestlers the Predator, Steve Carino and Tom Howard. Congratulated Kabashi and issued a challenge for the title. Also throwing their challenge at the win were Akatar Saino, Tuko Scorpio, who scored a major win on that card over former champion Yoshinari Ogawa, using his Scorpio 450 splash 
and 620. With Vayner, apparently history, he's being elevated to the top corner position. Ed Ogawa. This is a surprise because Zero One's in Brawl in the Angle All Japan, and All Japan and Noah are real rival groups. This may lead to some on the April 13th show at Tokyo Araki Coliseum, which is the company's next major show. At the spectacle, Kabashi and Masao did everything they could to attempt to live up to expectations, which appeared to be next to impossible. Both have been physically destroyed by the years of working in incredible matches, but have shown flashes of brilliance the past few months, working spots with each other in tag and trios matches. The two have only had 16 matches in their career at the end of 1990, where Kabashi, who had only wrestled for two years, took on Tiger Mask. They hadn't wrestled a singles match since April 11, 2000. They are only wrestlers who have had singles matches between them when matched a year twice in history, 1998-1999. Even more impressive, that was for Bret Hart Steve Austin match in 1997 being WrestleMania, which magnifies both the good and bad in every match, it would have gotten that trifecta since the match they had that year finished second. In the days for the match, it was announced as having no time limit, which pretty much indicated they were going past the 30-minute mark. Among the high spots of the match included Gabashi using a half-nelson German suplex to the floor, Masawa doing a Tiger suplex, uh off the entrance ramp onto the floor. Kabashi did another half Nelson German suplex in the ring. Kabashi kicked out Nimble Frozen. At one point, Misawa did a clothesline off the apron. Kabashi boosted. So Misawa let it bow first on the guardrail, splitting his lip and chin open, which required the stitches. Kabashi got near falls with a Cobra suplex, Brain Buster, and a Lariat for the finish. After the match, Misawa all but said this was the rare true passing of the torch match, saying Kabashi was not a top wrestler in the promotion and that there would never be a singles rematch. Another match they seen a build up for the future of the show was Takeyama vs. Takeshi Riki opening the NWF title. They may run that match along with Kabashi's first defense against Akatori Saino on April 13th at the Rocky Coliseum. There's also talk of Kabashi against the Predators of us Turkey when they return to the Budokan on June the 6th. Alright, let me read the results here. Miss Wilmona rushed Kimura over Haruka Egan in Kishikawabata. Akira Tawe, Donovan Morgan, and Michael Modis over Kotaro Suzuki, Takumasano, and Shoshikikuchi. Kenta and Nomichi Fuji over Makoto Hashi and Yoshinobu Kanamaru, four and a quarter stars. Daisuke Akeda and Wild 2, Takeshi Rikuyo, over Bison Smith, Izu, Junior Zamina, and Superstar Steve. Scorpio over Yoshinara Agawa, Yoshiro Takayaba over Masao Itoe, Jun Akiyama and Nakashiro over Takeshi Segura and Timon Honda, and then the Kabashi Masawa match, five stars. And Dane says, there were legitimately more people in Budokan Hall, according to Laporte, than ever before, even in the All Japan Glory days, from Masao Kabashi, because they sold more standing room tickets than ever before. Yeah, this was one of those matches in this era where when we heard about it, it was one of those, okay, this is must-see. And uh, boy, it lived up to everything. Yes, and... They did go pretty hard with the big bumps, but it still ha- like you can get it with this one though, because this this is the last dance, you know. That's what I, yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what I was gonna say. You knew this was the final final match that these two were gonna have in this type of environment and this situation, and you knew they were just gonna go out there and just go balls to the wall. Well, because also as we've talked about in the past, like. When there were other options, Masawa was happy to take a back seat and be the Baba. I mean, yeah, I mean, he wasn't working comedy matches per se, but no, he was working tags and trios. Yeah, he's happy to just be the biggest star of the group, who's the legend on the undercard, who you're coming to see in the spot towns, but is not the main eventer. 
He's Baba in the early 80s. Yes. You know? Yes. And, um... Or maybe really mid-80s. Mid-80s Baba. Because Baba in the early 80s is still, you know, main eventing. But in the mid-80s is when Baba... I mean, he'll main event in some tags and six-mans. But just singles-wise, he's not doing that. Yeah. I got this fairly quickly, I think. I'm trying to remember who I got it from, though. I, I got it the same way for Trent Walters. Did Trent get a DVD recorder very early? Yes. Okay. Then I think I got mine from Trent as well. Because... Well, I got it on VHS because I didn't have a DVD. I, I, I wasn't buying... Was he, uh, I don't know if he wasn't selling DVDs yet but something, but I yeah, I had it on the VHS. Because I remember I was thinking back to my earliest DVDRs that I had besides the stuff I was getting from Japan. The, some of the earliest stuff I had was... I think it was... I don't think it was recorded direct to TV. I think it was recorded from a VHS... But was on one of the remember those really early Memorex like yellow packaging DVDRs, vaguely. So I had those, but I I want to say I got it within a week or so from Trent. Yes, and then a uh, month and a half later, also dubbed off a of VHS to watch on the bus to the Jersey All Pro Lawler Funk Show with the uh, Pete Stein and Ray Duffy and those guys, which uh during which I think it was Pete kept counting every head drop in the match. And kept a running count, but it, it's a classic, and you know it's it's so weird to think back to now though, because like, yeah, you know, okay, it's the last dance, you know, he's taking these big bumps, it makes sense. I gotta think Masawa would have been okay if he didn't feel like he needed to go back into main events and continue to give people what they expected of a big Masawa main event. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. I feel like if this is the end. Is he probably going to have a slow-moving, somewhat painful, older life? Yes. Does he end up getting paralyzed or killed in the ring or anything close to it? I doubt it. Okay. Um, Trent, I, I, I actually found it on, Wrestle, on the own archive, second week of March. This is what, JapanWrestlingTapes.com so, ta- was him, or which was his? J- Japan Tapes. JapanTapes.com, okay. Second, se- ship second week of March. So and he was quick about getting them out too. So yes, he was. Um, so yeah, second week of March. Um, real quick, just so people can hear the pop. Let's just let's watch the last minute of this match, shall we? Okay. Well, it's not gonna take a lot of time. I made sure I queued it up right. You know, I just noticed something there that never really hit me before. You know, All Japan and then NOAA, so let's say the Nippon TV production team, always did, you know, big zoom-ins on people's faces on the big kickout. Here's the thing, though. It was never the reaction to the guy who was making the cover. It was Mm -hmm. always kind of checking in on the guy who just kicked out. Mm -hmm. And... When you think about it, it makes a lot more sense because if you're selling and you're down, you don't, there's no, there, there's no risk of overacting or anything. 
You just yeah. need to have just enough of a reaction to register that you know you kicked out. Anyway, interesting contrast to the stuff we see these days. Having just watched that right now and the way Kabashi is selling the win, I think Grand Sword is the greatest entrance music in the history of professional wrestling. It was a hell of a damn interest for him in this time period. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine that moment working just as well with anything else, though? I mean, I don't know, but I mean, it, it was great for the for what was going on, yes. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, some crazy shit in this match. Yeah, it was... Uh, it's one of the all-timers. Yeah, Absolutely. With the sound off, I have the apron stuff uh, on now, as Masao is teasing the Tiger Driver. So, yeah, that's right. They exchange chops and elbows, but Masao lands the harder shot. I mean, it's totally insane. Which, I mean, the, the Tiger suplex off the apron to the floor. I mean, just insane. I mean, he does about as good a job taking care of Kabashi as you can on that spot. Yeah. But it's still insane. In fact, these two guys are doing this. That's, that's the thing. Yes. Because, I mean, you know what their bodies are like, and they're just going up there, and they're just, like, saying, fuck it. You know? It's something I also noticed, too, and this, maybe this was more typical of the Noah-era burning hammers anyway, as much as, you know, especially in the magazine photos, maybe even more than the videos, some of those, especially early burning hammers or some gnarly head drops, he takes great care of himself on the finish here. Well, yeah, of course. No, but you get what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if that's already knowing just how bad his neck is. Because the thing is, like, Masan was the one who kept up the head drops when no one else did. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see him not take the big head drop, but that's probably more <laughs> that's probably more on Kabashi wanting to take care of him than Masao's own self-preservation. Uh, yeah. All right, so we talked about the... All Japan show, which about Noah. Now let's go to World Japan. No. The Neo of fighting, promotions. Fighting of World Japan Pro Wrestling. Great. Their debut show was said to not be a good show. It was not. Built as Magma 1. Magma 01. It was built around renew the renewing of the Ricky Choshu Tenuguritro feud. Now it's big in Japan starting in 1985. Choshu, 51. Had his first match in nearly a year and was the first six singles matches the two will have as main events on all the group shows this month. No, made no sense. Finished the match saw Tenru hit his 53-year-old, which he turned a month back, but it's the name of his new finisher, which is similar to the Jackhammer. Well, it was Choshu basically a Northern Lights bomb. Yeah. Choshu got up, hit him with a lariat. Tenru came back, hit another 53 years old. Choshu got up, did another lariat. Tenru did a third 53 years old. Choshu kicked out of the pen. Choshu then did another layer and got the pin at 753. 
Well, I'll show up for the main event. The match was said to be good, and Chochi looked in better shape than Tenro. Chochi and Tenro be doing five more singles matches on house shows from March 15th to March 20th, with three of the dates almost sold out. Another having a good advance, and another one show not doing well. Best match on the show, not surprisingly, was Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki reforming their early nights tag team against Don Fry and Dan Bobish, the latter making his pro wrestling debut. Sasaki pinned Bobish at 12.59 after a lariat and on the lights bomb. Earlier in the day, Sasaki's wife, Hisako, Hall of Fame women's wrestler Akira Hokuto, 35, gave birth to the couple's second child, a boy named Sionosuke Sasaki. Kensuke saw the baby born, and a few hours later rushed to the building for his match. Well, at least he got to see his child born. Fry wasn't 100%, since he had surgery on both shoulders last month, which required Bobish to have to be in the ring more than one would have figured. Fry and Sasaki opened doing the match, patted each other's face, like the Fry Takiyaba spot made famous. Bobish was a big hit in his debut, throwing lots of good suplexes, and was compared with Vader when he first came to Japan, but everyone praising his work and attitude. World Japan President Katsuji Nakajima is already trying to put together a Bobish Bob Sat match for the June 29th show in Sapporo. This could also be his way of getting publicity for Bobish, because any mention of Sat gets the Japanese news media going crazy. Hase was a Japanese Ric Flair, and he has the ability to take the greenest guy and make him look like a good worker. He had a 25 rep giant swing with Don Fry. Asushi Onita came to the ring after the match and challenged Hase. There are two reasons for this. First, Hase has a rep for being able to get a decent match out of anyone. And Dave guesses, considering Anita hasn't had a decent match in years, he's trying to find out just how good Hase is. But actually, this is a battle of senators. Hase grabbed the house man and said he was twice the wrestler Anita is, which means he's the most modest person around, as well as twice the senator. <laughs> Onita's highest profile match in a long time was a no-rope dynamite barbed wire death match against Shiroko Shinaka, which is said to be awful. Onita threw a chair at Koshinaka, which missed and hit the cage for the first explosion. Fans were set right away because the explosion was far less than fans of that style were used to. Hey, sounds like AEW. Onita threw Koshinaka, who was wearing a t-shirt, into the barbed wire. Onita blew green mist, hit a pile driver, and then hit the ref and threw fire for a DQ in 805. Fans were set because the explosions weren't up to par. And besides, who ever heard of a DQ and explosive barbed wire death match? Fans were booing when it was over. Onita asked for the match to be restarted, claiming how could there be a DQ in a death match? And when the referee refused, Onita threw him into the barbed wire and challenged Choshu to a singles match. Fans were unhappy before the match started, so it took 30 minutes to set up the ring for the bow. Uh, now, you're forgetting, though, the in-match guys hitting the barbed wire explosions at Revolution last year, those were fine. It was the time bomb explosion at the end that didn't go right. Well, that's what matters. Yeah, well, yes, and then uh, at the H2O slash FMWE show in Trenton in October, everything pretty much went off at once. Yeah. Which, you know, at least you got the satisfying explosion. So, there's that. But, of course, there's more drama there that we're not going to get into. Um, I'll say this, though, I'd rather have the senator who had to resign because he used government money to have a threesome with uh, porn stars than the guy who was inappropriate with teenage girls. <laughs> and about the two high-profile jumpers to this group, Kyle Mori, formerly a NOAA, pinned Kenzo Suzuki in 1253, formerly in New Japan, with the Axe Bomber, a former Valeria made famous by Larry Hanning and later in New Japan by Hulk Hogan. 
Amor and Suzuki are both underachievers, although Suzuki hasn't been wrestling that long. Both are very big for Japanese wrestlers, about 6'4", 260. So the thought has always been they would eventually be top stars. Suzuki improved a lot, but started out terrible. Amori has been around for more than 10 years, but never turned out to be a good worker. But both jumped with the idea that they'd be pushed to the top, and this result was the start of the plan to try to push Amori as a man of honor. The match wasn't what it needed to be to get over these guys to the level they wanted them to be at. Yeah, Takao Amori. I mean, he was a guy who... All Japan kind of gave an effort to once, and then said, well, we know this guy. This guy's better. It's best being a tag guy. So they put him with Takayama. And then Zero One got him and pushed him to the main events. Made him, he was the AWA world champion. You know, and they were really trying to make him into something, but he just he just wasn't that guy, you know? Yeah. He he was a solid tag team wrestler who that was his ceiling, and that's fine. Yeah. And but you know thing who is, he is? No, here's who he is. He's Matt Taven. Okay. I mean, I think Taven may be better as a better performer. I think Taven's a better worker, but they're both guys who probably somewhat unfairly f- were thought of as less than they actually were because they got overpushed as singles. I'm trying to come up with maybe another comparison, but yeah, I mean... Bennett, I feel like, has shown more, at least lately, than Taven in singles, which is why I say Taven and not Bennett. Well, plus also Taven got the world title push. Yeah, I'm just, again, I'm trying to think of somebody who would be a more ideal comparison. I mean, I feel like if we're thinking of guys who were best in tag teams, I feel like Taven's a better comparison than Billy Gunn. Well, I mean, I was thinking either further back, but anyway, all right. But still, um, Road Warriors, speaking of further back, also won the IPW Hardcore tag titles. Yes, Ron Nemi's IPW. From Mike and Todd Crusher, the Shane Twins, using their trademark double impact Doomsday device finisher in 11.04. This match is really supposed to be for the NWA Florida Tag Titles, which would mean a little bit more because it has the NWA name, which is big in the 80s. And most of the headliners on this show are from the 80s. However, the NWA United States made that possible because World Japan is not a dues-paying member of Z- and Zero One is. So the NWA won't approve any NWA name uses on a World Japan show. Funniest thing about this is that Jerry Jarrett was approached and may make a deal with World Japan about talent exchanges. Not that he has any interesting guys with his company, but him getting booking fees for sending talent and one that would think they want Jeff as NWA champion more than anyone as to why they opened up that communication. Now, Dave that, also, though, doesn't mention the kicker there, which is that TNA is also not a dues paying NWA member. No, they're not. They're paying After them that, a license fee to control the belts. Yes. After the match, the Warriors, Masato, Ref Masato, Tori held a photo of Kurt Henning in the ring and did a 10-count celebration. Warriors looked old, and this wasn't good either. It was not. These these shows, you know, like the Choshu 10-room matches were fine for what they were. Um, You know, Hase stuff was good. Kensuke stuff was hit or miss, but a lot of it was pretty solid. Everything else on these shows were was abysmal. It just low energy, dead crowds. Just bad. Not easy to watch at all. This show also featured a demonstration with 14-year-old karate star Katsuhiko Nakajima, who is Choshu's protege. And they're trying to grin to be the next big thing in Japanese wrestling. Yes, 
he was Choshu's protege originally before Ki- he became adopted by Kinsuke. <laughs> Which I totally forgot about. Yeah. And boy, does that add another layer to the whole Choshu-Kensuke split, doesn't it? It sure does. Because, you know, we've talked about it here before. Not a lot, though. Those of you who are used to smiling, happy Kensuke, you know, dad blogger, that doesn't happen until he splits from, uh, from Choshu. Yeah. Like, it seems, like, even if you didn't know all of the other stories, it's very obvious that whether it's being considered his protege, whether it's Choshu being an asshole, whatever, there was a weight off that guy's shoulders when he wasn't under Choshu's thumb anymore. Yeah. And seeing that, knowing that he basically ends up it was never clear to me if he actually legally adopted Nakajima or not, he and Hokuto, but more or less he did. He, you know, he still more or less adopted him as his son. Like, I, I wonder how much of that split had to do with how Nakajima either was or being treated or how Kensuke feared he could be treated. Yeah, possible. Um, so Dave uh, got to see the tape of the show. Also, I just realized this means that Nakajima's still only 33. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Dave got to see tape of the show, Bix. Here's his thoughts. It was pretty bad. They didn't mic the crowd well, which hurt, because you could see good crowd responses not hear them well, but that isn't what killed it. Road Warriors against the Shanes would have been the worst match of the year can in most years after Abdullah Masaki Sataki on January 19th and Desire versus April Hunter on, in TNA. That is one category that the competition is steep. Uh, he's not wrong. That w- that tag match on this show was bad. Abdullah the Butcher versus uh, Satayarn, as he was called, on the Wrestle, Wrestle One War. show, yeah, is wo- legitimately one of the worst matches ever committed to video in professional wrestling. And like, that April Hunter Desire match was horrific, too. I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh. But- it gets forgotten about because of... Uh... Other worst matches in TNA that would follow, like Jenna Maraska. Yes, and, uh, Yeah, and uh, oh, 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 my God. Yeah. Um, but if you are a fan of entertainingly bad wrestling, the Abdullah the Butcher versus Satyarn matches are matches you need to see. Yes. Like, I'm not exaggerating when I say, like, Abdullah would throw a strike, a strike like a chop to the throat, and then you would wait a second, and then Satake would just take a flat back bump like he was in a, in wrestling school. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he would take a bump when he got hit. It was that he would take a bump, there would be a beat, and then he'd, excuse me, he'd get hit, he, there would be a beat, and then he'd take a bump. Yeah. It was tremendous. Watching the Warriors is so sad because in Japan, the people want to like them because they look so, but they look so bad. One of the Shanks fell the ropes early and they never recovered. Dave was so scared Animal wasn't going to be able to get the guy for the Doomsday Device finish, but he did. Negative two and a quarter stars. Well, he's not used to holding up someone with the dimensions of a Microtide chain on his shoulders. Yeah. Shiro Shinaka over at Sushinita by DQ and this was barbell match was bad. Koshinaka looked so out of shape from his layoff. First time Koshinaka went into the barbed wire, there was no explosion. One good spot was Koshinaka getting the Scorpion Deathlock on Onita. Anita grabbed the barbed wire for a rope break and it exploded. Anita blew mist, threw down the ref, then threw fire for DQ. People hated that finish. Anita had lost 80% of his charisma and it's a total nostalgia act. Dud. 
Kyle Moore over Kenzo was a match that needed to be good, and it wasn't. Not awful. Neither guy got over, started over, started out over in the least. Won the quarter stars. Hase Sasaki over Boba Shifrai was really good. Hase is a living example of the effects of not working a full schedule. He's 41 years old. He hasn't wrestled full-time in years. Of all the great workers of his era, he's the only one who is still at his peak. He looked incredible here, as far as just pure working and caring guys, and made Bobish in one night. Fry, who hasn't done a work match in a while, also looked very good carrying most of the match for his side. Bobish looks like a pro wrestling heel of the 60s or 70s. That would face Bruno. He's foot three, about 340. Powerful looking as hell, but with a big gut. He's like Vader, but he'll be working nightly with the guys Vader did to improve as much. It was his first match. He was green, but it was a strong debut. Kansuke looked good as well. Three and a half stars. Choshi over Tenru was also sad. People wanted to like it, and they seemed to have an idea of what to do. Choshu just didn't have it. Tenru is 53. He really is a jackhammer. as much of a reverse pickup brain buster. And it looks very dangerous. He dropped Choshu on his head, and Choshu was silly for a long time. and looked like he was not silly. Choshu hit the third layer of the match for a near fall and looked really confused. As if that was the finish. He finally had another layer at half a star. And other matches that's not mentioned here. The opening match of the show. Tomohiro Ishii over Takashi Wano. Tomoki Hama over Masumitsu Kochi. And Yoshiaki Yatsu over Yoji Anja. So there's your World Japan debut show picks. Now that you mentioned the Ishii stuff, if I remember right, he was the highlight of a lot of these shows. Yes. He was the only younger guy that really was standing out on any kind well, of regular basis. They had turmeric storm work in the early shows, but they were all Japan guys. Well, I mean, of the world Japan guys or the freelancers who weren't in other major promotions. Yes. Um. And, well, also, wasn't Honma technically a freelancer? Well, by this point, no. He's all Japan. But for a good part of the turmeric storm run, he was, wasn't he? No, he's all Japan. Okay. He signed. I think he signed. I think he he signed up in in O two or O three oh. as a full time roster guy. All right, uh, Kyoshi Tamra appeared on the Russell One special on the Fuji Network this week. A World One, whatever. Uh, saying that if a good offer is made, he'll find the next show. No, he said. Yeah. Well, he said W One. So is he mistaking World Japan with? Is he just? Does he mean World Japan? Uh, no, it means Russell won, but it got mixed up in the World Japan section. Okay. So, way to go, Dave. Um, so, Tamra appeared on the Russell won special on the Fuji Network. It, it don't matter. In this week, if a good offer is made, he'll find next show. Tamra, who's one of the most gifted ring pro wrestlers ever, and actually a damn good shooter at his weight. He doesn't get the respect he deserves because he's fought so many men so much larger than himself and lost. Has never been involved in traditional pro wrestling. He started in the old UWF, went to the UFI, and when UWFI did a few in Japan, he refused to participate. He did with the rings, and of late has worked the top star in de- as a top star in deep, and as well as had three high-profile matches. Oh, this is World Japan. Uh, Shima and Madden Tokyo were also on the show, so they were great to appear on the next show. Also interviewed... Well, this was Russell 1, because also interviewed on the show was Riki Choshu, which is why this is in World Japan, I guess, who said he watched video of the Tokyo Dome show and had no comment. Well, so, I mean, yeah. yeah, it makes sense that you'd have Toriyaman guys talking about appearing on the next Wrestle 1 show because Ultima Dragon had been wrestling on Wrestle 1 shows. So that that's why I saw here because Choshu's was on yeah, that show. Yeah, yeah it's even though most of what's being talked about here is an all Japan affiliate promotion. 
Yes. Okay. I'm zero one. Arashi showed up on the February 27th show in Hamamatsu and issued a challenge for the Triple Crown, which Hashimoto accepted. A few days before Hashimoto choked him out in the tag main event, which is on the Sumo Hall show the day after our week. Uh, Miyagi Professional Sports Center on February 28th in front of 2,300 fans. We have Yoshito Sasaki over Pentagon. It's Pentagon Viper. Pentagon Viper, Pentagon Black, Pentagon 2, etc. Yes. Yeah. Don Arakawa and Jun Kasai over Fuyuki Takahashi and Shinsuke Zinyamagasa. Isn't it technically Don Arakawa? Don, Don, whatever. Fansack Acid over Tatsuzakiwa by referee stoppage and, you know, in their match. Watoro Sakata and Nerushikawa over Loki and Paul London, 115 minutes. The Predator, Sylvester, Sylvester K and Jimmy Snooker Jr., Solo, Deuce, a Deuce and Domino, over Rowdy, Koei Sato, and Hirotaki Yakoi. Tengu Kaiser and King Adamo over Masato Tanaka and Kiroge Waguda, Bix. And the Kiroge Waguda getting a uh, high-profile match yes, here. Yes, yes, he of the cow gimmick. Yes. Shinjiro Otani of Yoshiaki Fujiwara. And then your main event, Ogun, Shinya Shimoto and Naoya Gawa teamed up with their, uh, one of their young protégés, Katsuhisa Fuji, to beat Makafari, Tom Howard, and Steve Carino. Yes, and we should also note, by the way, when World Japan implodes, who goes to Zero One to be part of a feuding and eventually teaming belly bumper storyline with Matt Kafari, but Dan Povish? Mm-hmm. Because Zero One loves shooters with big bellies. Yes, and we'll talk about Gafari in just a minute. And by minute. the way, I'm not I'm not making that up or making a joke about like giant haystack like how giant haystacks versus uh, Big Daddy would derisively be called belly bumping wrestling. No, literally, the feud was about them having big bellies and bumping each other with their bellies. Yeah. Um, and, um, and also, just as far as this show, if I remember right, uh, Sakata and Hoshikawa versus Loki in London was fantastic. Yes. All right. Um, Prelim wrestler Eiji Sai, this being for a forced retirement after a medical examination, revealed a heart problem. Uh, he comes back. Yes, he does. Shinjiro Tani Masato Tanaka returned to the U.S. in mid-April. They'll work for April 13th for the PWF in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, defending the tag titles of that promotion against the Hit Squad. They're talks about them working on a Ring of Honor show on April 12th in Philadelphia, but Dave's told that's 50-50 right now. Okay, the ROH show definitely doesn't happen. Do they come to the U.S., though? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, I seem to remember. I know they came in the year before. They worked, what was it, the, the November ROH, I believe. Yes. Where they defeated the team of Carino and Loki. Yes, I'm looking now to see. Uh, no. Otani works, uh, all Jap- they work all Japan on the 12th. So no, they're not here on the 13th. Yes. Um, okay, so here's what... Okay, looking at Cage Match and searching Tanaka's profile for PWF, though, um, Tanaka, at least, I'll click on the card in a second, does make a trip on May 11th where he wrestles C.W. Anderson to a time limit draw in a PWF TV title match in Pottstown. I remember that. And I don't remember if I ever saw that match, though. Now is, uh, let's see, is Otani also on the show? He's not, but Akuto Adaka is. 
Yes. He wrestled Homicide and Loki in a three-way. All right, we're talking about McAfee. To take advantage of the cult popularity of McAfee, who seriously has stretch marks on his stretch marks, Zero One is attempting to get the NWA to recognize a World Super Heavyweight Championship. They're talking about either over 300 pounds or 150 kilos, which would be 330 for this promotion, which would be in the form of a gold medal. Gafari won the silver in the Olympics. He had the Isola tournament later this year with people like Gafari, Igor Minder, a former Russian amateur wrestling star, who is a gigantic fat blob like Gafari, but not nearly as charismatic, the Predator, and others. Dave, reaching back to his 80s uh, terminology. Well, I guess he would have called him a slob, technically. <laughs> and Gafari was over. I mean, yeah. he was. He definitely was hot. And he had the Olympic background. Yes. If people don't know who McAfee was. Well, he was also that bald amateur wrestler. Well, I should say Olympic wrestler who WCW would show in the front row whenever Nitro was in his hometown. Yeah. All right. Now let's go to Indies. It's Indie time. Yes. Big Japan Pro Wrestling leads off. They ran Shizuoka Twin Mess on February 28th for an 850. We have Bansho Masazaki over Yuichi Taniguchi. Oh, yes. In a Neo offer match, Yoshiko Tamura over Tanny Mouse, Fix. No. Big Japan uh, Deathmatch title selection match. Barbara Board Deathmatch. Gosaku over The Winger. Then in a Big Japan Heavyweight title challenger uh, selection match, Daisuke Sakamoto over Dasaku Shimoda. Kitaro Katamura and Takakuba Benke over Mince Teo and Ryuji Ito. And then a B- Big Japan Deathmatch title selection match, Light Bulb Deathmatch, Shadow WX over Abdullah Kobayashi. I don't think I was getting Big Japan consistently in this at this time. I think maybe I was picking and choosing because I remember seeing some of the men's club stuff from this era. Yeah. But yeah, it was not pick a and lot. Choose well. Pick and choose as well for me. Yeah, because the Deathmatch... I mean, the Deathmatch division really hasn't been replenished especially since they're not working with czw anymore and hanma left and yamakawa is basically retired so the death matches are basically the same guys over and over because you know ito hasn't moved up to death matches and stuff yet and the you know the there's no bj strong division yet officially so it's basically like Arteo or Ryuji Ito or whoever booked in a match I'm interested in this month. Or depending who the foreigners were. Yeah, because they did bring in some interesting foreigners even after they stopped working with CZW. Like, they brought in Homicide in the hit. That, they brought in Homicide. That's what I was about to say. Homicide had his Big Japan tour. Didn't Hero have a Big Japan tour? Chris Hero worked Big Japan, yes. But it yeah. wasn't through CZW either. That was his first no. Japan tour, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, homicide jumped off the Corican balcony, of course. Mm-hmm. DDT. They ran Cork and Geopolis on February 28th in front of 505 fans. Issei Fujisawa and Yoshiro Sakai over OK Revolution and Seiya Morahashi. Yuki Miyazaki and Karin Yama over Miyuki Maeda and Showako. And yeah, Yuki Nishino over Tanamasaku Toba. Tomohiko Kashimoto and Kurakaji over Super Uchu Power and Hero All Caps Exclamation Mark. Sensho Takagi, Tomoki Homa, Kazushi Miyamoto, Turmeric Storm over Mikami, Mitsuharu Jisawa, and Kudo. 
Shoichi Miya doing his Misawa uh, tribute. Takashi Sasaki over Hintaro in a battle of tag partners. And then Yoshiro Sakai over Shoichi Chimiya Now in the last I have a correction to introduce though, Chris. Uh did you see my thread on Twitter from a week or so ago where I tweeted that like we're realizing right now how much wrong Japanese, Mexican, and Puerto Rican wrestling history we've gotten because of lack of language skills, you know, you know, people not being able to seek out the right information, whatever. Be, is stemming from uh, the thing, or the well, I should say things, threads, Ernesto Ocampo had treat, tweeted about how the various Mexican wrestling bands on TV were never actually a real thing. And a few people chimed in, I think both in replies and quote tweets about various names that people got wrong. Westerners apparently have always gotten Toba's name wrong. It's Tamanusak Toba, I believe, was what it said. And someone just transliterated the Japanese, you know, whatever ooh or whatever o type of pronunciation as if that was his name. Yes. Which makes sense, though, because is I don't know if he is Thai, but he's supposed to be playing a Thai boxer gimmick. And Tanamusak sounds a lot more like a Thai name than Tanamusaku does. But it, when it's translated, that's what it would translate it to. The, well, uh, in this case, it transliterated. The, the, the kanji spelling. That's what I'm trying to tell you. If you were running it through a translator online, yes. it would be Tomonosaku. Tanamusaku Toba, yes. Yes, but like the actual pronunciation, but the actual name is Tanamusak. Like ending like S A K H, I believe. Uh, well, I'm just saying what it's spelled. I'm saying <laughs> but that's what it's intended as, or like, so was he, is he actually of Thai descent, or was that just the gimmick? I think it was a gimmick. I'm not positive on that. But anyway. Well, we've gone from the biggest of the smaller indies to Scum. Kageki. They ran Hakata Sudden Pier. Why do you always pronounce their name wrong, by the way? It's Kageki. Whatever. Hakata Sudden Pier on, on March 1st for 107 fans. Asian Cougar over Uma. U period, M period, A period. Have you met Great. Keanu? Great Takara over Tyra. Cosmo Astra Soldier and Diablo over Azteca and Kaze. Different style fight. Geki Ideta over Kazunori Watanabe. Cosmo Astra Soldier and Diablo over Tyra and U period, M period, A period. Gretakero over Kaze. And then a sensation five match series match number three for the Hakata Light Heavyweight title. Azteca retained over Asian Cougar. Wait, Azteca was in the main event of a Kageki? Oh, and wow. it's the best of five series with Asian Cougar as well. That sounds good, though. Um, all caps Tyra is now Yuki Tyra, right? Uh, yes. From Battle Arts. Okay. I always liked him, but he kind of disappeared from Battle Arts pretty quickly and generally wasn't working promotions that showed up on video after that. Yeah. K-Dojo had two shows during our wake-up note. Oh, boy, and I see we have Neo talent on that. Chiba Bluefield on February 23rd in front of 209. We have Kyoko Inoue over DJ Nera. We have Yoshia, all caps, Mike Lee Jr., Macho Pump, and Yuka Nakamura over Mr. X number two, Mr. X number three, Naniwa X, and Bolshoi X. We have Takabichinoku, Nagoro Kashiwa, and Tsubasa Kurakagi over High 69, Azumi Yuga, and Shaprita Sari. Mima Shimoda over Yu Yamagata. 
And then our main event, Ofune, Psycho All Caps, and Mr. X number five over Minoru Fujita, Apple Miyuki, and DJ Nera. Then we go to March the 1st at Chiba Bluefield from 132 fans. We have Kingo Mashimo and Tepe Ichizaka over Kunio Toshima and Mike Lee Jr. Apple Miyuki over DJ Nera. Dagoro Kashiwa and Tsubasa Kurakagi over Yashiro Rano and Sambo Ishii. Mr. X number three over Mr. X number five. Miyawaki and Silver Wolf number one over High 69 and Joy Oyama. UWA slash UWA Fenecano tag titles. Mr. X number one and Mr. X number two retained over Psycho and Ofune. And Takamichi Noko Minoru Fujita beat Ryoto Chikazen, who uh, was in New Japan as Makai Mass number two, and all caps Yoshiya. Notice how nothing on these shows that doesn't involve Minoru Fujita looks remotely good. Other than Ofune? In the ring. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Ofune would be an yeah. NXT 2.0 gimmick if she came around now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she would. She'd be a top star in stardom, too, probably. But anyway... Uh, Michinoku Pro Wrestling. They're in March 1st at City Hamamatsu. We have Ikoto Hidaka over Akeda Kun. Grand Naniwa over Suba Genjin. Chaprita Sari over Sumi Sakai. Three way dance Metal Master, Chad Collier. Defeated Curry Man, Chris Daniels, and Jody Fleisch. In their main event, Great Sasuke, Jin Seishizaki, and Hayate, all caps, Hideki Nishida, over the far. East Connections, Dick Togo, Masao Orihara, and Macho Pup. And if I remember right, at this point, uh, Ghetto and Jada were pretty much done with working Mission Oh, uh, well, they... Yes, 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 yes. So the Far East Connection is pretty much just that. Yes, basically. Osaka Pro Wrestling, Osaka Festival Gate on February 23rd in front of 318 fans. We had Dio Qualt over Yutaka Fukuda. Fukuda, excuse me. Gamma over Tortuga, and it's spelled Tortuga, like Viz Russo would say it. Tortuga. Tortuga. Uh, Does he know China? Yes. China. <laughs> China. Uh, Goa over Tiger's Mask. Infinity, Black Buffalo and Tsubasa over Big Boss Magma and Black Tigers. That'd be Jeremy Lopez. Miracle Man, Ebison, and Billy King Kid over Super Delphin, Super Robo K, and Pero. You may yes. And Super Robo K is the new gimmick for Kushinbo Kamen, where they did a deal at the. Where was that big show they ran a few weeks earlier? Osaka Castle Hall? Yes. So, yeah, this was. I mean, yeah, it's with just a few weeks earlier, because I remember getting it direct to DVD. Um, they ran a big show there, drew very well. And. They had a match that I, I think it was announced as being it would be the last match ever between Ebison and Common, and Ebison wins, but then tells Common to look at the big screen, and they show this video about how now they have Super Robo K, and he gets to have this new robot costume, which I don't think lasts very long. Yeah, it does. Yes, and that that's the only show of that size they ever run, isn't it? Yeah. Which, given the time and place we're in, makes sense. But, we're, you know, a lot of places still doing pretty solid business at this time, but that's going to change. So. Mm-hmm. Torimon! Kobe Chicken George, their venue, their home venue, on February 27th, front of 400 fans. 
We have Man of Tokyo, Sumiyoksuka, and Ryo Saito over Masaki Mochizuki, Kenichiro Rai, and Raimu Mishima. Mishima. Sua over Brother Yasini by disqualification. Batayan and Anthony W. Mori over Stalker, Ichikawa, and Takamichi Iwasa. Milano Collection 18, Yoshino and Kadoti Shuji over Shima, Don Fuji, and Taru. And in the NWA uh, welterweight title match, Kenes retained over Dragon Kid. So we're right in the thick of uh, Crazy Max versus M2K versus Italian Connection versus uh, the Baby Faces. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. It's all faction warfare. Yes, and uh, if I remember right, as as they always were when they faced off, KNS versus Dragon Kid was an excellent match. Oh, yes, absolutely. All right, WMF, Wrestling Marvels of the Future. Yeah, Battle Spear in Tokyo on February 23rd. Uh, Goemon over Maneo Fujita. Onro over Mr. Ikeda. Asian Cougar over Soldier. Hitsukatsu, all caps, and Tsukikyo. It's Hitsukatsu Oya. Over Mama Sasaki and Flying Kid Chihara. And in our main event, Hayabusa, not him, admits against the game number two over Tetsuya Kuroda and Riki Fuji. Okay, I don't remember this. I presume Hayabusa is Ganasuke. Yes. And I don't remember who Ganasuke 2 is. Ganasuke number two. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I was surprised you didn't include it here. I thought it, I'm trying to remember. Was it Hito? Um, shit. It's wrecking my brain now. Oh, it's it's not listed. Well, look at the profile. There is no listing for Mr. Ganasuke number two. Oh, because there's also, there was also a Mr. Ganasuke number three. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. there you go. All right, now let's go to Joshi. Yes, Joshi, Joshi, Joshi. It's that In time. 2003, I don't think I was watching any of this. Oh, yes, this makes it even better. It's a great time for Joshi. Maybe I was getting uh, some guy. I don't remember. There, but I, don't, I was not getting most of this, I don't think. Zenjo. Iran Chiba on uh, February 26th. Mika Nishino over Kana Koseki. Miyuki Fuji over Saki Mimura. Takako Inoue over Hikaru. Yumiko Hota over Mika Nishio. And in our main event, Amazing Kong, Kumiko Mikawa and Tomoko Watanabe over Momo Nakanishi, Keo Nomi, and Nani Takahashi. Takahashi. So. And Amazing Kong, of course, is Peter Stevens' awesome Kong. And Momo Nakanishi, of course, one of Bix's favorite wrestlers. No, she's definitely not. Yes, she is. RCN. They were in Nigata Faze. 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 On February 23rd, we have Mariko Yoshida over Atsuko Emoto. Subi Sakai over Baby A. Gami over Bayani J. Linus Asuka over Rie Tamada. And Akido and Aifujita over Reina Fukase and Kuru Yanyama. JD. They were in Shijuku Club Heights in Tokyo on February 23rd. We have Hiroyo Muto over Keiko Saito. Ren Maru and Tsunami over Fang Suzuki and Abachi Azuka. The Bloody over Turuko Kagawa. Megumi Yabashida over Jiagi. That's J-Y-A-G-I-E, all caps. And then a TWF World Women's Tag Title match. Wanted? <laughs> yeah. Wanted, all caps, exclamation mark, question mark. Well, no, you also so got I- the asterisk before Wanted. Yes. Sachi Abe and Kazuki retain their titles over Yumi Oka and Mizuho Ishikawa. Then we go to JWP. They're in 
Katushika Ward Kanamachi Community Center Cultural Hall in Tokyo, February 24, where we have Hiromi Yagi over Princess Sandy, Sandy, Afumiyuki over DJ Nera, Big Japan Women's title and JWP Junior title match, Kuri Oriyama, who's the double champion, retained over Erika Watanabe, and then Azumi Hiyuga and Kaban Bolshoi over Shar Shishuya and Kyoko Hariyama. And yes, we always have to close out Joshi with Neo. Well, real quick, it was also pointed out that, as you might think, the name is actually Commando Bolshoi. Yes. But anyway. Neo at the Bashi Green Hall March the 1st in front of 140 fans. Eskomita over Haruka Matsuo. Masai Genki over Uiga, Bix. No. <laughs> Do you remember Uiga? No. Uiga was like a um, Neo's version of a Fune in a way, but not, oh, but, but not, but not, but not, yeah, not as endowed. She wore more of the uh, schoolgirl outfit, the uh, shirt and tie. Yeah. Then we have Azumi Yuga over Yuka Nakamura, Rie Tamada over Yukashina, and then our main event. Yoshiko Tamura, Tani Mouse, and Yuki Miyazaki over Kyoko Inoue, Mimishimoto, and Kari Oniyama in 21 minutes. No. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who Princess Sandy is looking around. Sandy. There's a Princessa Sandy from Mexico. Uh, was she wrestling yet? Okay. The timeline... Okay, yes. I'm seeing some cage matches that say Princessa Sandy, who works JWP. And RCN and all that is this Luchadora. Okay. Sandy. All right, K1. Yeah, this is the K1 show we talked about earlier. It has pro wrestlers involved, so let's mention here. They had the one-night tournament won by Masato. What a unanimous decision over Takeda. Masato has gone through two pro wrestlers in his prelim rounds. First, he won a unanimous decision over Genki Sudo, who put out the February 28th UFC, claiming a hip injury to take his bigger money opportunity. He followed with unanimous decision over Takahiro Murahama, a regular Osaka pro who had appeared on recent Japan major events. Murahama had won his first match by second round TKO at 246 over Hiroki Besides the tournament, a big result was Michael Zambidis over Albert Krauss, who was a sovereign middleweight in the promotion, ending with second round knockout. Besides doing the great TV number, reports were that this show was excellent. And yes, they're doing the big, one of the reasons they're doing the big TV numbers is one of the main eventers is one of the Takeda brothers. And they're a big draw, Sarah. So, there's that. And we'll close out this, uh, this loop with All-Star Wrestling in England, Eurasia. As, uh, Brian Dixon ran the Oaking Gates Theater in Telford, Shropshire on February 28th in front of 320 fans. We had Johnny Devine over Lucas Cool. Yeah. All-star world mode mid-heavyweight title tournament qualifying match. James Mason over Nigel McGinnis. Dave Swift over Brody Steele. Robbie Brookside over Gangrel. And then our main event, Rick Vane over Yo Baby, Yo Baby, Yo PN News. Was Rick Vane's real name Rick Vasatani? <laughs> I hope he came out to uh, You're So Vain. Yes. yes. I guess the most interesting thing on this show is James Mason versus Nigel McGinnis, right? Um, I think it's the Canadians on this show. Dave Swift and Giant Divine. Yeah, but... It's interesting. If I remember right... If memory serves you correct. If memory serves me right, yes, as, as, as the chairman would say. 
Um, Nigel, I forget if it was specifically to help get a visa. Because this would become a thing WWE would do, like with, with Steve Lewington. When his visa was up and he had to go back, they told him to get a British wrestling coach so it would be easier to get him a visa as someone with a unique style of wrestling. Either way, Nigel went back to England after, you know, spending the previous however many years in Ohio. Was working all-star shows, was training under, you know, Chick Cullen, Frank Cullen, uh, Robbie Stewart. And this is when Nigel went from one of the worst wrestlers in America to one of the best, very best wrestlers on the independents. Because when he came back, he was a different guy. Yeah, he needed that. Like, I guess he had kind of wanted to work the British style before, but he didn't have anyone to train him in it. And, you know, at this point, he's already a trained wrestler. Goes back to England. Finds a good trainer in Frank Collin. And comes back. And Doug Williams is a better worker at this point. And, of course, he's more experienced. I felt like coming out of this run, I guess because he found someone who was more of a world sport guy. I always felt like in this era, Nigel was the much better British style worker than Doug was. Uh, you have some people disagree with you on that one. I think Doug was the better and more polished overall worker. I feel like Nigel felt like he was doing a more organic version of that style. No. Mm. But interesting to see him here. Especially since I, I'm curious who was tracking the all-star results that since put them into cage match and stuff, because you remember probably even better than I do, it was impossible to get a hold of all-star results back in the day. Um, it had to some time period. I was able to get them. Well, you'd almost uh, never yeah. get the holiday camp shows, though. You could get some of the regular shows, but not the holiday camp shows. Yeah. All right, Lucha time, and let's go to Triple R. And they had TV on February 28th. At Ignacio Miguel Hidalgo in Puebla, we have Pegaso over Policeman in your opener. Uh, locals, the Puebla guys, they've been working in Puebla, but they're working here too. All right, um, Mini Abismo Negro, Mini Psicosis, and Rocky Morvin over La Parquica, Mascarilla Sagrada, and Otigoncito. Mascarita Maligna, hiding as a fan of the crowd, shut the rail to attack uh, Sagrada and help the Ruros. They have. Uh, Los Vatos Locos. Uh, Espiritu, Nigma, Picudo, and Silvercat. Over Los Barrio Boys. Alan, Billy Boy, Desnes, and Oscar Sevilla. Who's not a Barrio Boy, but an affiliate member. Uh, as a friend. Picudo, Blue Fire, and Oscar's face on a moonsault attempt. And the Vatos Locos all covered him for the win. Uh, Rob Bahari, dear friend of the show, tweeted a picture of Billy Boy from over the weekend. He now looks like he ate every member of the Barrio Boys. Yeah, good he has, he's gained a lot of weight. But hey, at least he's alive. <laughs> so there you go. Alright, uh, and that Marvin is gotta be pushing like 16, 17 now. So think about that, folks. Maybe even 18. His son he had with Fabio Apache. Um, La Shola, Miss Jennifer and Tiffany defeated Cynthia Moreno, Fabio Apache, and Lady Apache by disqualification. City had a couple of pins that weren't really counted right because of Io de Terates and Copete Salazar, the referees, having their issues. She ended up unmasking Chola for the win. Lady Apache called an electro shot to the ring after the match, and they agreed to hold their winning at Rey de Reyes. Yay. Oh, yeah. 
Ah, uh, yes. I do think, by the way, I think you're guessing a little high on Marvin the baby's age, because he, he's like a baby baby when they start using him in angles, and that's like 06, 07. Uh, 16, 16, 17. So, well, no, he wouldn't be 17 yet. He'd be, it, Jose, 2022 Jose. just started. Well, Jose, Jose was basically speculating he was about 16, 17, so. I may be remembering wrong and he was already a toddler, but no, he would probably I mean, be he like was 15, not 16 a baby. now. He was not a baby baby. When everyone was calling him Marvin the baby? Okay. Yeah, yeah, but he was a child, but he was a like a newborn. Okay. I remember him so, being like not a toddler yet, though, so. I don't know. Yeah, he, he was he was young, let's put it that way. But anyway, El Brazo, Monster, and Parata Morgan defeated Alebrije, La Parca Jr., and Mascara Sagrada, the current version at this point in time, uh, where uh, La Parca turned Parata's mask around so his good eye was covered. Uh, and a blinded Parata fouled Brazo, Monster, and Shucky. The uh, Technicos drop kit Pirata, but Mihe's drop kit was called a low blow for disqualification. Yes, because he's a many. So, of course, it was a low blow. All right, uh, and then we have uh, El Dandi beating Io de Paraguayo to retain the Mexican National Heavyweight title. Heavy Metal as Dandy second, and Zoro as Pero second ended up getting involved. Dandy got Zoro's cane and took out Pero. Then a referee Pepe Casas from behind. Yeah, the Tarantas walked out mostly to laugh at Pepe Casas, getting hurt, but also to count the pin when Dandy fought Pero. Metal fought with Dandy after the match, angry about Dandy attacking his father. And then our main event, Hombres and Nombre. Yes, Rayman here in AAA. Team with Latin Lover and Zorro to be Heavy Metal, Hector Garza, and Mr. Aguila. Or Dandy attacked Metal, setting him up for the Hombres and Nombre pinfall. So yes, this is a Triple A two thousand and three, uh, and Ombre Sedabre left uh, CMLL under uh, difficult issues there with his uncle. Goes Triple A and is expected to be you know a big time main event guy possibly, and he gets some main events early and then he's gone. But still, there's some fun stuff on this stuff. I I, I enjoy watching this era Triple A. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It would be even better a few years later, but at this point, it it's you know what triple A is, and you are looking for it to excel as much as it can within that framework. Kind of like WWE, but not exactly. Yeah. CMLL, the greatest trio in years of pro wrestling. Let's get at us that Vienna's is temporarily finished in Mexico City. As Tarz that boy was fired. Allegedly for the dreaded personal demons issues. The threesome of Ultimo Guerrero, Rebo Cunero, and Tarzan Boya carried the company's main events for the past couple of years. To make up for the loss in a shocker. Shocker! The company's top technico was turned Urudo on February 28th. On Ben Pedro on a match with a team with Rayo de Alisco Jr. against Tarzan Boy, who was then fired. Pero and Emilio Chavez Jr. This changes the Vampiro Tarzan Boy program to Vampiro and Shocker. Scheduled to culminate on April 4th in a Caballero Coach Caballero match. Los Infiernos would still team outside Mexico City and work in the for other promoters. I hated the shocker, shocker turn. It it was not the time for that. At all. Hated it. Bad decision. 
I mean, it's it's like yeah. you're 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 doing a you're doing a move you're doing a, a move here just because of this you know situation with Tarzan boy. Sit back and think about you know how this is going to affect your promotion and everything. And it had an effect on them for a while. You know, luckily for them, you know they bounce back when Perito comes in, and then the, the rise of Mystico the, the next year. But uh, yeah, this this wasn't a good decision by any means. No, now I forget where did Mascara Mahika stand and everything. He's in Los Guapos by this point, right? He's gone. Okay, so he's he's way gone. Okay, so they're they were the only three Guerreros del Infierno. How long was Mascara Mahika in that group then? It wasn't mm, long, right? Oh no, I forget. No. But what was the reason that he split? I forget. He joined Shocker. <laughs> I forget, was there even a catalyst for it? Like, or was it just like, oh, he's unmasked, he's a handsome guy with blonde hair, he should be in Los Guapos? He was part of the, yeah, the Guapos University thing, you know? Right. But I don't remember, was there an actual Technico turn? Uh, not really. That's what, I, okay. That's what I was trying to remember, because it felt like there wasn't, but I wasn't sure. Okay. Not not to no, let's put it that way. Right, he just they kind of, happen. he just kind of inched towards Shocker over time. Yes. Because how handsome he was. Yes. Akira Hokuto's first husband. And, hey, God, Tarzan Boy is one of those guys. Tarzan Boy, Mission Niebla. Wait, isn't he the second husband? Or did she not marry Brazo? De Oro, or whoever it was. Uh, I don't think she No, wait, that's him. Lady Apache. I'm sorry. I don't know yeah, why so I always say, get where that mixed are you, up. Where are you going, huh? I don't know what <laughs> I was thinking there. I don't know why I always but get that mixed up. But anyway, um, yeah, Tarzan Boy, Mission Diablo. I mean, these, some of these guys, man, this era just had a shocker, too. Had, had their personal issues just really affect them. Yes. Affect their careers. Sad. All right, I'm going to make over February 28th. Poror and Super Commando over Alacrande Drango and Explosivo. Loco Max, Mr. Mexico, and Nitro over Sico de Loco Jr., Solar, and Starman. Everno, Fazgarera, and Mephisto over Felino, Ricky Marvin, and Virus. Emilio Chavez Jr., Peroff, and Tarzan Boy over Royal Disco Jr., Shocker, and Vampiro. And then our main event, Black Tiger. Silver King, Dr. Wanda Jr., and Universo Dos Mil over Atlantis, Black Warrior, and Mr. Niebla. So uh, there's your Mexico show two days earlier, and Rena Lopez Mateos on a spot show. Ultimo Guerrero won the CMLL Heavyweight title from Shocker. So you get a title change on a, on a spot show there. So. Yeah. Um, CMLL. Quick, quick question before we move on. I forget if I've asked this before. Is there any particular reason why so few of the IWRG guys seem to get opportunities at Arena Mexico that it seems like it was mainly just Mr. Mexico and Starman? And that was from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, they just I, I, they just probably didn't see them as being, I don't know, being out of that stature. I don't know what to tell you. But that also makes you wonder how they picked the guys they did. Or, well... Mr. Mexico was probably just the Niebla feud to do Niebla versus Niebla. But he stays. At start. At the fir- at the beginning, I mean, yeah. Whereas Starman, I mean, he was good, but 
why do you bring in a Starman and then never try a Zonic or an Ultimo Vampiro or a Black Dragon or anyone like that? They got their own guys. You know, there's so many fucking well, trainers. Well, they have the school, yeah. Yeah, so many fucking trainees at that school. You know, they got to use their guys, too. Yeah, it's just but weird. Anyway. Like, you have this prominent, large indie in the Mexico City area, and occasionally you do stuff with their guys. Yeah, like I said, they got their own guys they can use. Yeah. So that's that. All right, speaking of IWRG, February 23rd, Arena Nakapan, we have Eric Draven in Sereño de Lombete over Akuma and Meteoro. Party Medico and Zoni Dos Mil over Anja de Tijuana and Full Contact. Avisman, Super Yens, and Virgo defeated Jose Luis Feliciano, Feliciano Shuagaro, and Ino de Tejano by disqualification. Bombero and Fanal, Dr. Cerebro, and Ino de Diablo over Coco Blanco, Coco Rojo, Coco Verde by disqualification. And then Maniaco, Official, and Rambo of Mascara Sagrada, Original, Mega, and Ultimo Vampiro. So there's your IWRG show for the week. And Ultimo Vampiro also been one of the Super Mangas. Don't ask me about all this gimmicks, not WRG. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's so many people plays gimmicks there. It's, it's confusing. All right, Monterey. The, the battle of Sunday in Monterey. Uh, Rina Colosseo, Monterey on 23rd. La Duchesiera and Princess Yara over Gatubella and Serpente Savaje. Cats, the, the luchador, not the musical. And Crazy Rock over Bengali and Hawk Montes. Los Cafanes Raqueros, 1 and 2, and Jungle Nigger Jr. over... Alani Cristone and Ricky Marvin. That sounds like a hoot. Arriba Guerrero over Damian Cesar Mysterio 2. Mysterioso 2, excuse me. And our main event, Brasa de Plata, L.A. Park and Shocker over Dr. Wagner Jr., Nicho El Millionario, and Sergio Romo Jr. One of these things is not like the other. So there's your Coliseo show. Now, the uh, Solidaridad, the AAA spot show. We have Black Soul. Oh, and Shimako Ortiz teaming with Titanic over Kukuliso, Dark Side, and Falcon Kid. Armageddon over Shimako Rivera. Lady Apache and Polystar over La Chacalde and Tiffany. Shuki, El Brazo, Monster, and Pocho Jr. over Quihe, Alabrije, Mascara Segura Jr. and Tigre Universitario. Hector and Manje Negro Jr. over Delivio Negro 2 and Mongo Chino. And then our main event, Headhunter A, Jason the Terrible, and Jerry Estrada over Deluvio Negro 1, Ambres and Nombre, and La Parca Jr. Any thoughts, Vix, on the Mo- Battle of Monterey for our week? Eh, not really. Um, anything particularly notable here? Nah, you know, Garozo and Frierno versus uh, Damian and Mysterioso 2 is kind of interesting. Um, you know, Caifanes Roqueros in a trios match with the Stones and Ricky Marvin is pretty pretty compelling on paper, too, but nothing super spectacular. And the, the AAA show looks like a AAA Monterey show of the era. Yeah. So. All right, Tijuana. Ray Mysterio Sr. beat The Keys in a copy of Coach Gabriel match on February 28th. And about the guys who have been around that city forever. Rest of the show on the Promotion Moro show. Nocturno over Condor. Baby Cobra and Thunder Mask over Sangre India and Wama. Not Wawa, but Wama. Mortiz, Mr. Tempest, and Toronto Negro over Extreme Tiger, Prince Bearandu, and TJ Boy. Not TT Boy. 
I was going to make a joke about how big a fan you were of TJ Boy if you didn't make a joke about him and TJ Boy. Blue Panther, Depredador, and Psychosis, Nicho, over Brosa de Plata, Negro Casas, and Venom Black. And then Ray Senior over the Keys to win his hair. So, Tijuana, interesting show. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how this drew. You know, old guys, but still big names with hair on the line. You know, big names for the area. Feuded there forever. Mm-hmm. To show you how old the Keys is, he worked Mike, uh, Mike LaBelle in 1982. Worked, worked L.A. So there you go. I, Puerto Rico. I, W.A. Puerto Rico. When Ray Gonzalez did his first interview as himself after unmasking as Ray Phoenix, he came out with a photo of Invader 1, feeling rumors that Invader would come in. Some months back, Invader 1, 57, his long career with WC ended on a bad note, after an argument with Carlos Colon over the pushing of his children, had opened talks with IWA about coming back to do a retirement the right way, but then got mad and pulled out because people knew about it. Also debuting in IWA was a new wrestler called Nord, who was not John Nord, but Joe Heiklin, a.k.a. Joe E. Legend. And it was basically Joe E. Legend doing a John Nord gimmick. Yes. So the March 1st show in Bayamon drew 3,000 fans as Ray Gonzalez beat Abyss with a figure four to stay in the company. Apollo was injured on the show from a powerbomb when he landed on a chain. Dave's presuming the angle was created to cover for an injury. Well, the injury was legit. He's out four to eight weeks. Full results. Anarchy in Chicano over El Paparazzi and Stefano. Noriega over Maniac. Lobo over Shanghai. Urika Castillo invented the bodyguard over Slash Venom and Tojo Sensei. IWA Puerto Rico Intercontinental title best two out of three falls match. Glamour Boy Shane retained over Ricky Banderas by disqualification. Apollo over Nord with Angel. And then Rey Gonzalez over Abyss. Sabia Vega in its corner. Yes, Ray Gonzalez now as Mr. Ratings in IWA. Yep. No longer Ray Phoenix. Say that again? No longer as Ray Phoenix. No, he finally gets to be himself, as opposed to being the original Ray Phoenix. Um, and the uh, Invader stuff ends up being that if I remember right from how Dave explains it, I forget if it's at the time or in his Victor Quinones uh, obituary, that business was not great. Um, and Victor felt like, and Victor, for his faults, apparently was very broken up about whether or not knowing that Invader would help pop business and how many people's jobs were relying on IWA existing if he felt like he had to bring him in, despite the fact that he was close with Brody, Bruiser Brody and all that. But he brings him in, and they do an angle where Savio Vega stabs him. <laughs> with a fork. Yeah. But in the chest. And they shoot it like yeah. he's supposed to look, like he's seriously stabbed. Not great. <laughs> shot, are you shocked by that? In a little bit, because the... Because Invader wasn't in on the uh, on what happened with the Onita angle. Yeah, but hey, I know it's wrestling. <laughs> All right, um, WWC. They drew a strong crowd, two thousand for their big show of the week on March the first, and Orokovus for a cage battle royal won by Thunder. Not the TV show, but the wrestler. 
and with no outside talent. They did a gross angle in WC where the heels attacked Enrico Suave and held his wife. The heels in the angle were Pablo Marquez, El Bronco, and Tommy Diablo. They showed Bronco urinating in a cup, then spitting tobacco juice in the cup. Whereas they held the wife, they told Suave he had to drink the cup or they shave his wife's head. He tried to drink it, but spit it out. The angle was considered so over the top that Victor Jovica was forced to go on television and apologize for it the next week, saying he was sorry and that nothing like that would ever air on WCTV again. Think about that, folks. They did an angle that was so revolting in Puerto Rico that they had to apologize for it. Holy shit. That's different. Wow. They don't like hot piss in Puerto Rico. <laughs> I mean, good. Uh, I, 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 I want Bar- I gotta get in touch with Barico about this. <laughs> that's insane. If they they uh they did that. that. That's crazy. Even though we know I mean I know it wasn't real. But still. Well the tobacco juice might have been real, depending on what kind of camera work and takes they did here. Yeah. Um but what the hell? But you know what? Also not surprising because last well, was that last year or was that twenty twenty? What was the angle that it seemed like Fox got mad about with WWE on SmackDown during the you know, lockdown shows? The the urine throwing. Yeah. But anyway. Puerto Rico. Alright, let's go to the indie scene now. Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling. Yeah, still going. In Cleveland, Tennessee, on March the 1st, in front of 400 fans, we had a three-way match. Damian Dynamite over Loverboy Lee Thomas and the Reverend. Big Henry Haas over John Holcomb. Larry Zabisco over Scott Ross. Wasn't that a tough enough guy? I think he might have been. Bambi over Desire. Kim Nielsen. Kim Nielsen yeah. Of the April Hunter match fame. Sonny Siaki, Kim Nielsen's... Uh, Bo defeated Jorge Estrada in your Flying Elvis's offer match. Glacier over Jason Sugarman. And in our main event, Dusty Rhodes over David Flair by disqualification. And we're probably working under the assumption that one of the referees is young Cody Garrett Runnels. Uh probably, yes. Speaking of which. Cody Rhodes, Cody Runnels, Cody Rose, Dusty's son, who was a high school junior, did win the Georgia State High School Championship at 189 pounds over the weekend, finishing the season with a 48-0 record. After winning, he hugged both his father and Diamond Dallas Page. Cody was a he was a big deal in the high school scene here as an amateur wrestler. Mm-hmm. I mean, considering who his father was for the fact that he was legit. I mean, Cody was le- very legitimate as an amateur wrestler. I mean, and that's the thing. Because he doesn't, he doesn't use that in his pro wrestling work. But Cody could, uh, he, he, I wouldn't mess with him. He could, he could, he could fuck you up. He knows what he's doing. So yeah, interesting re- reading this. So going back 19 years, especially uh, Cody in the news, because it could be any day now. So we'll see what happens there. All right, NWA Wildside. We have. Uh, the Friday and Saturday show. Normally, I don't put the Friday show in here, but there's some interesting names working in the show, including the very first name I'm going to read. If you see Arena on February 28th, Bo James of Robbie Cassidy. So, Bo worked in Cornelia, folks. Shaka over Don Juan. 
Shadow Jackson and Brandon Knight over Cruiser Lewis and Kevin Harden. Hasta Fernandez over Max Mayhem. Easy Money over Alice Winters. Manchild and Kid Cool over Michael Anthony and Vincent I. Payne. Todd Sexton over Masada. In our three-way handicap match, Rudy Boy Gonzalez beat Jeff Lewis, Jason Blackman, and Jeremy V. So you get your San Antonio crew here. Now the Saturday Night Show, March the 1st, we have Murder 1 over Jeff Lewis. Dagon Briggs and Mr. Delicious J.C. North over the Elite Swingers Incorporated, Michael Adrian, Michael Judas, and Scott Eastmove. Wild Side Junior Heavyweight title, Salvatore Renaro beat Slim J to win the title. Hostel Fernandez and Jason Blackman over B.A.D. and Masada. In the TV title, Rain Man retained over Tony Mamaluke. Chad and Jason Dobbins over Brandon Knight and Fassetti. Jimmy Ray over Todd Sexton. Jeremy V, Josh Daniels, and Kid Cool over Damian Adams, Don Juan, and Rob Echoes. A triple threat match, Jay Freeze won over Azrael and Scotty Wren. And then, while Saveway title match, Iceberg retained his title, go to no contest with Jason Cross. Is there a more indie worlds colliding match than Jeremy V, Josh Daniels, and Seth DeLay versus Damian Adams, Don Juan, and Rob Echoes? <laughs> Look at all the various indie indie areas that's on this weekend of shows. We got New England. We got New Jersey. We got we got South South Texas. Yeah. No, I got Dagon Briggs on this show. Yeah, I mean Matt slash JC, I believe, is living in Louisiana at the time, right? Yeah, possibly. Of course, all the local guys. So yeah. A lot of interesting names here in Wildside here in uh, 2003. Mm-hmm. So there's that. IPW Hardcore, Ron Nemi's promotion. They ran at the Leoman Discovery School in St. Petersburg on February 28th. You have a Texas Tornado match. Vicious and Delicious, not Buff and Scott, Norton, Axis and Python over the Vandals, Ricky and Tommy. IPW Heavyweight title, Rod Steele retained over comic book guy Anderson. Fidel Sierra over... Rastaman, Justice over Drill Clark in a submission match. Lex Lovett won a three-way false career match over Antonio Banks and Steve Madison. Naptali uh, retained his IPW Florida heavyweight and NBA Florida X Division titles, beating Pretty Fly. Pat Powers retained his IPW TV title lumberjack match with Pat McGroin. I'm sure Bruce Hart was loving that name. Uh... There was a reverse battle royal for the IPW Hardcore title won by Rossum. <laughs> and then we had an eight-man elimination match where the Alliance of Defiance, Agent Steele, Mike Sullivan, Roderick Strong, and Scoot Andrews defeated Billy Fies, Buck Quartermain, David Babylon, and Cedric Strong. They had SoCal Val in their corner. Yes, and the Alliance of Defiance had Tiffany, whoever that is. Um, So... Had I just forgotten who Rastaman's original identity was before recently when some when I saw Eric Stevens bring it up, or was this a like a widely known thing? Well, tell about what you're talking about. It's Leroy Howard. Yep, yep. Rastaman and Leroy Howard were one and the same. Correct. Yes. So, and he's I think the head trainer at the school at this time. Mm-hmm. IWA Mid South. Clarksville, Indiana on March the 1st. Number one contender match for the mid South Lightweight title. Adam Gooch over Terrett the Great. Steve Stone over Lamangelo. 
of Muslims in training, yes. Or Angelo over Roland Hard, food stamp champ. Mark Wolf over Simon Says. Danny Daniels over JC Bailey. And then a Lumberjack Light Tubes death match, Adam Gooch over Corporal Robinson. I don't definitely, remember if I ever saw this not one. one name, yeah, definitely not one the name were shows. This would have been a show I probably wouldn't have bought. And this is definitely not a shot by Smart Mark show. Yeah. Well, also, this is, I want to say, a few months before they start sending the non-Smart Mark shows to Smart Mark, like, quickly and regularly. Like, mm-hmm. they used to show up in big batches months later. I want to say it's around, like, April or May is when they start to show up within a couple weeks of when they happen. Yeah. Something like that. So by the time I was ordering, you know, so many IWA tapes, which I did during that year, you know, ordered a lot, traded for others. I don't think if I got this show, I don't remember watching it. Although yeah, pretty decent show on paper. Adam Gooch, Tarek the Great looks particularly interesting. Also, I wonder if he was supposed to be working double duty, but him and Corp is interesting as well. But kind of pretty nondescript show. Danny Daniels, J.C. Bailey also could be pretty good. But still very much a uh, who is within a three-hour drive kind of show. Yeah. All Access Wrestling. They ran in Lafayette, Louisiana on February 23rd in front of 800 fans. Where We had a, uh, it's a TV taping. We had David Young over AJ Styles. Kevin Northcutt over Eddie Atlas. Norman Smiley over Sassy Vegas. Okay. Sonny Siaki over Cassie O'Reilly. AJ Styles beat David Young in a chairs match. Then we got Dr. F. Steve Williams over Rick Steiner. Joey C. over Rod Price. Joe Kane, not the quarterback from the program, over Jerry Lynn. And then AJ Styles over David Young in their third match of the night. Best of three. Uh-huh. And I'm sure none of them were good because it's not like they had worked together as a million times or anything. Yeah, I just watched uh, AJ Styles and David Young from the first Wild Side TV from January of 2002. Uh, definitely be talking about that on the next Exile, which was clipped, and I'm very pissed. So I'm going to be talking about that too. All right, uh, XPW. XPW's three year exclusive lease on Viking Hall in Philadelphia ended this week, less than two months into the lease. <laughs> XPW was paying $8,000 a month for the lease. But with the company's apparent financial problems, which included losing TV in Philadelphia for not paying their bills, their TV bills, canceling the last house show, and several wrestlers looking for work elsewhere, believing it's going down, they were booted out. Reportedly, they also violated the lease by holding concerts prior to the last two shows. CCW's moving back up to the CCW arena, from their CCW arena to the building on March the 8th. 3PW is staying at the Electric Factory, which, from those who attend the show, is a far better location. $8,000 a month? And that it was a complete exclusive, it was not just a wrestling exclusive. Yes. Although it seems like the owners thought it was a wrestling exclusive. $8,000 a month? For a place that they are running how often? Maybe once a month? At most? What the hell? $8,000 a month. That just blows my mind. Now, they did run shows on February 20th and March the 1st at their new location called the X Park in Los Angeles, which included a lot of major names. They drew 450 fans first night, 550 the second. First night was headlined by Shane Douglas over Just Incredible to retain the SPW title. 
We had a, a rematch from the second night, which saw Justin beat uh, Shane by DQ. X-Pac, built under that name, beat Chaos to win the TV title the first night. And the second night simply was called X. And he retained it by pitting Juventud Guerrero. And then Jerry Lynn went over Juventud, was said to be the show still on the first night. And Super Crazy, who advanced in the European title tournament with a win over Chris Candido, hits the XPW European title. Raven, Tracy Smothers, Johnny Storm, and others worked the show. Mark Madden was saying he never agreed to announce on their Pittsburgh show, even though the company announced he would. Because why is XPW running Pittsburgh picks? Because of Shane Douglas. <laughs> All right. Um, let's read the results here from February 28th. North Hills X Park in Los Angeles, California, in front of 600 fans. Bobby Quantz and Jardy France over Quicksilver and Scorpio Sky. Super Crazy over Chris Candido. Vic Grimes over Raven. Chris Hamaker and Tracy Smothers over Demi and Sace and Halloween. Deathmatch for XBW King on Deathmatch title. Supreme retained over Justice Payne. Johnny Storm over Salem. SPW tag titles. Oh, you'll love this. Matt and Josh. Vic. Matt Cross and Josh Prohibition. Retained, and they're, and they're like... Very young in the business here. Retained over Angel and Sharp Boy. And that's a- that's hardcore homo Angel. That nice hardcore homo Angel. Also, you neglected yes. to mention who Salem is. Who Salem? Crowbar. Yes. Um, Jerry Lynn over to Goretta. X won the TV top of Chaos. And then Shane retained the TV, uh, heavy top of heavy, heavy top, Just Incredible. Then the next night, March the 1st, at the X Park. SPW Tag Titles, Euthanasia, which is Matt and Josh's name, retained over Team Futura, Bobby Quance and Jardy France. Vic Grimes over Salem with Alter Boy Luke. Vic which Grimes had Lucy Luke. is this, though? It's Daphne. It is Daphne as Lucy Fur. Okay. Johnny Storm over Alter Boy Luke. Angel and Sharp Boy over the Aerial Express, Quicksilver and Scorpio Sky. Second round match in the European title tournament, Jerry Lynn over Super Crazy. Justice Payne over Chris Candido with Tammy Lynn Sitch. That's crazy. Uh, two out of three falls match Southern Comfort. Chris Hamrick and Tracy Smothers over Mexico's Most Wanted. Damian says they said Halloween. Extra Tainted TV title over Huta Guerrero. Just Credible over Shane by DQ. And then Supreme retained the King of Death matches Todd in the Barbara match over Ian Rotten. I mean, these are interesting shows. XBW had like a little buzz at the time for uh, having some names on these shows like they have. Yeah, I mean, I was watching some of the TV at the time, and they had gotten rid of most of the bullshit. They had a lot of good talent. The good talent was not underperforming in the matches as they may have before. They're literally about to shut down. That Pittsburgh show that comes up, I think, on the 8th is the last show before the reunion shows. And it is, of course, at the Golden Dove in Monaco, Pennsylvania. But... Shane was putting together good shows here. Yeah. Although that last ECW Arena show was pathetic. Do you remember what I'm talking about with this? Yeah. There are maybe like 200 people there. Yeah. They had just stopped drawing. But that was also... So here's the thing that makes this just extra insane. Even though, by all appearances, XPW is about to go down the drain, in January they announced that they are starting a developmental circuit. That will consist of IWA Mid-South, Heritage Wrestling in Pennsylvania, and what was the third? 
Oh, God, I can't remember. Was it All Access, maybe? Possible. There was a third. I don't remember what it was. And this didn't really go anywhere past Douglas was supposed to work the IWA 300th show, but had travel issues. And Hero works that last arena show against Salem as IWA champion. And that's about it. Yeah. Very weird. Very, very, very weird. And the X-Park stuff looked cool on TV. You know, it was kind of a small, plainish building. You could tell that, I'm guessing it was like an indoor skate park or something. But, you know, worked for what they were trying to do. You know, and they had also been bringing in some of the UK guys semi-regularly, like Johnny Storm and Jody Fleisch and uh, Zebra Kid. So they had been putting together interesting shows. I just, I don't really understand spending that much on the ACW arena. So they had run, they ran February 14th, they ran January 18th. They ran January 17th, they run December 21st. So they were trying to run once a month, but they're paying $8,000 to rent the not-yet-renovated version of the ECW arena. As an I'm curious to know how much everyone else was paying at the time just for a regular show. I'm sure it's much less than 8000 I don't know, man. That's just, that's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, but this is, this is pretty much the end. Well... Speaking of great, well, speaking of crazy, the tour said SPW is quietly telling some wrestlers they will debut on direct TV pay per view in June. Company officials claim they plan to air pre taped shows or save them an estimated 50 grand in production expenses compared to if they went live. The store was met with some skepticism when it was told to cable television analysts, although they, they do admit that direct TV is looking for as much exclusive programming as possible. Still, as one cable analyst asked, direct TV already has WNTNA, so how much wrestling they think viewers will support? The promotion next show, March the 8th in Pittsburgh. Professor of the show is said to be roughly 1200 as of last week, thanks in large part to the advertising arranged by XPW booker Shane Douglas. I'm shocked. Bingo! Bingo! <laughs> Nothing about Dr. Markeen and helping with the promotion as well, though. I mean, that Joker, he knew how to, he knew how to play his area. Mm-hmm. Man. Think about how... how how soon he got to ECW shows that drew 4,000 fans before they drew close to that anywhere else. Yeah. Got, I mean, shame it, man. He, I mean, shame it, man. Shane Douglas, he definitely, uh, he definitely knew what he was doing when it came to, uh, spot town promoting. Shane Douglas, however, I mean, excuse me, Shane McMahon, however, did not. <laughs> no. And let's close with this note in this section. If you recall the group in England that was going to start a promotion called Russell Express that was set debut in late 2001 with Sonny Uno and Jimmy Hart working on the U.S. and putting everything together, it ended up in a British court promoter Ryan Houston being found guilty on February 24th and 11 counts of obtaining a money transfer by deception, as well as forgery counts in Lancaster Crown Court. Wait, why wasn't this part of Eurasia? Well, it's because it's... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, they, I mean, they were a U.K.-based promotion, I guess, but they were going to be a national they were supposed to be theoretically a startup that would yeah that would run elsewhere yes it's it's potpourri basically uh david whitby filed charges against houston 21 who also wrote all sorts of internet articles plugging his shows which never gonna take place under the name of cool rye whitby said he borrowed money from his invalid relative invalid relatives excuse me invalid relatives from his invalid relatives to get the Houston to start a company. Oh, it's like it's like on Bobby's World when they call him Bobby Generic. <laughs> it's generic. Whippy bar thirty thousand pounds, possibly forty seven 
$1,400 to invest in Houston's wrestling promotion. Houston later hit him up for more money because a wrestler needed it to fly to the U.S. to negotiate with Owen Hart. Houston then told Whippy he'd be offered a job working for Hart full-time in the United States. That's why it's involved here, because we got all this U.S. stuff. Whippy then told Houston to use his credit card for airline tickets to the U.S. in September 2001. Whippy found his car was used not only for tickets, but also for hotels as well as the purchase of designer business suits. Houston also allegedly wrote a letter authorizing himself to take 3,000 more pounds, 4740, off Whippy's Visa card, allegedly forging Whippy's signature. The entire show ended up unraveling at the time, with Hart claiming that due to the 9-11 tragedies, the wrestlers weren't going to fly to England at that time. Houston was described as by prosecutor Chris Bethel as a wrestling fanatic who was way over his head and trying to put together a major show. He said, It's clear Houston's incompetence as a businessman has ultimately led to his committing acts of dishonesty. There's no doubt he was passionate about the world of wrestling. It was an enterprise in which he was way out of his league and was effectively doomed from the start. Bethel also ripped Whippy for taking the word of a 19-year-old, Houston's age at the time, living in a fantasy world. Houston was released with no bail after the trial and faced sentencing on March the 28th. He was released on bail, I guess. Said no bail, but... Yeah. Um, as for David Whitby, I've got three words. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it sucks for him, but yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, this is just... It's also interesting to think about how both uh, Main Event Championship Wrestling and Wrestle Express ended in prison for the crimes. Yeah. Um, not super fed as far as we know, but we don't know if there are any overt crimes with super fed, but, uh, what do we, and, and this XPW is closing too. So what a way for all these startups to end, huh? Yeah. And let's close out with everyone's favorite total nonstop action. No. And at this point it's still NWA total nonstop action too. Yes. Let's go to the pro wrestling torch. TNF officials are growing increasingly frustrated with the way cable companies are treating the product as second rate compared to other wrestling preview events. Because TNA is priced at $9.95, a number of cable company officials have been overlooking it in favor of other pay-per-views, such as the recent World Wrestling All-Stars pay-per-view, which was priced at $19.95. Apparently, these cable companies don't realize that TNA is weekly programming, and they're simply looking at the amount being charged and they decided which events to dedicate commercial time to. Every day, this thing survives a step closer to this working because the cable companies have to catch up eventually, one TNA official said. Meanwhile, the companies were satisfied with the way DirecTV is in marketing events. One source for the cable satellite industry knowledge explained that because DirecTV offers so many pay-per-view options compared to analog cable providers, viewers are given more options as to when they can show when they can watch the show, whereas most cable affiliates are only offering the live version shown in demand, the main pay-per-view channel. The Harvard source noted that cable is slowly catching up because of digital cable, which offers roughly the same number of pay-per-view channels as satellite. Bex, any thoughts on uh, what's going on here? Well, they're not on Cablevision yet. I don't think that's till around June. Um, are they on Dish Network yet? I don't know. I have Direct TV, so I wouldn't know. I'm I don't remember Dish... when exactly that happened, but there are a lot of holes in their coverage still. So this tracks. Um, interesting comment from that TNA insider, though. Oh, eventually, they'll catch up. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, eventually. Yeah. I, 
Here's what I always found super strange about those weekly pay-per-views. I don't know whose fault this is, but the fact that they never did a buy all four in advance, pay, you know, 35 or 30 bucks thing. I know it. I would have done that. I would have jumped on that. Absolutely. I always found that very strange. Like, yeah. it's the obvious thing to do if you're doing weekly pay-per-views. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the February 26th pay-per-view. which had a 31 thumbs up, 17 thumbs down, 5 in the middle on the observer poll. Not bad. Positive. Best match was Juventud Guerrero against Jerry Lynn with 47 votes. Worst match was, get this, folks, Vader and Dusty Rhodes against the Harris Twins with 30. And Raven and Julio Donato with 18. Vader and Dusty Rhodes against the Harris Twins. Sure. That is a match. All right. So not really a ton of news. They'll be going to a factions type direction on WF in 1997. There are just the disgruntled sons of wrestling legends. Brian Lawler, Eric Watts, and David Flair. Whose gimmicks will be to talk about how horrible their fathers were. There is the ex-ECW crew. Sandman, Simon Diamond, and Johnny Swinger. And the positive about this, it's easy to get fans chain ECW if they think there's a it's a group, even if they don't have a good match. Although, once WWE by its name, they'll get in trouble if they call them anything close to that. And then Russo's SEX, the Bay Faces, Conan's crew of Mexican wrestlers, whoever they can find, who appear to be the talented job recruiters like a WCW. Shocking. Shocking. They were trying to get Psychosis in a match with Jerry Lynn, but he's got paperwork problems. Jimmy Yang, let's be done, as he was scheduled to face Raven on this show. Just for Showtime refused to sign a one-night contract, believed to be because of a no-compete provision in the contract, and was told by management to go home. Yang had a previous contract with the company that had just expired. With the old dude who happened to be there, who nobody in the building knew, was putting the match with Raven. It wasn't so much a bad match as much as the crowd was dead for it. Well, hey, this made, this was the best thing to have with Julio De Niro, wasn't it? Yes. Because <laughs> he gets with Raven. And CM Punk. Eventually CM Punk, yes. Yes. Main event on the show was Vader and Dusty Rhodes over the Harris Twins by DQ in 541. Rhodes juiced and sold, setting Vader up for the hot tag. Rhodes, who is 57, is physically broken down, moves very slow. That's been hidden in previous bouts as he just tags in for the finish. He's still the most over wrestler in the building, except for maybe Jeff Jarrett. But they build the whole show around Jarrett, and he's a hometown boy. It made no sense to put the two legends together and not give them a pinfall. But the Harrises are just friends, and the feeling was since they just lost to America's Most Wanted the previous week, they didn't want them losing by pinfall two straight weeks. I'm right now doing my hand-wanking motion. You can't see me. But, wow, a bunch of bullshit that is. Talk about politicking. Oh, my God. We can't job to Vader and Dusty Rhodes. Maybe Ron and Don thought Dusty was too black. <laughs> if Vader would have been younger and more he and healthier, they would have jobbed to him. He'd beat the <laughs> shit out of him. <laughs> so to make up for the DQ, they had Dusty whip Desire with a belt after Sonny Siaki ran to his elbow. Nikita Koloff also appeared and took an elbow from Dusty. So he took his first bump in something like 12 years. They did another trivia that Koloff's last pro match was against Vader, where he suffered a hurdy at the match. 
collected all of his lords in London and told disability policy. It legally changed his name to Nikita Koloff and has worked in the religion business ever since. The nice religion way. business. <laughs> it's a nice way of putting it. Nikita's real deal. He is, yes. He is real deal. So he's not doing it for show. No, it's uh, not. A, it's not a gimmick for him, even if he decided to change. Well, also, he had already changed his real name to Nikita Koloff anyway. Exactly. Yeah. He was just exclusively going by it now, as a, because his kids' yeah. last names. This kid's last name is Koloff. Yes. And they're in their twenties. What's the oldest daughter's name? Renee, I think. Well, you got from when uh, they did Col- the TV show. I think Renee and Colby. Colby, Colby Koloff. With K K O L B Y. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Hoovy, from Man Ring's standpoint, blew away everyone on the show, doing a third and three-quarter star match with Jerry Lynn, which Lynn went over in. Now, Wayne notes a few heads turned backstage when Nikita took that bump, although Nikita took only a symbol for Dusty Rose by Gelbo. Some were surprised to see him go that far because it's believed that he is still making money from his Lords of London insurance settlement as opposed to in his career. Well, I mean, it's Dusty, so that's one thing. So... I don't think it's that big of a deal, Bix. I mean, you know more the Lloyd Lloyd's thing and how that works. I mean, it ain't like he was out there having a fucking match. Yeah, it's a risk, though. I mean, probably no one's going to see it, but it's a risk. Also, this is not in order at all. No, this is Dave just doing Dave things. Yes, I did pull up the Dave website report, though, which the headline of which is NWA TNA pay-per-view report with Watts, Flair, and Lawler. Parenthesis, only it was their sons. <laughs> yeah. And these are actually usually the funnier versions of the TNA pay-per-view reports in this era than the, what ends up in the Observer. There's a scheduled tag title match with Triple X against uh, Harris and Storm didn't take place because they didn't have two members of the team available. Chris Daniels is in Louisville at the OVW camp. <laughs> While Loki was in Japan for zero one, notice that that would just slid in there. Uh, either Skipper was there and worked a dark match in the building. They just announced Triple S wasn't there, and they had thirty days to defend their belts. The company is clearly getting upset about all the undercard guys who have Japanese deals because it makes it difficult to book storylines around their commitments. Paul London, for example, he just let them know during the past week he was leaving for three weeks. What's different now is compared to the old days of Japanese wrestling, where all the top stars went, is that the companies don't plan things out in advance. America disease doing everything in the last minute has changed the way they do business. A decision either has been made or is close to being made that they are going to force everyone to make a choice. If they do, there would be a good chance of losing Loki, who has already chose Japan the last time they want him to make a choice. And that's what happens. And if if you don't want it to disrupt storylines, then pay them more. There's that, but let I mean book in advance. That too. Did he put all the news in the middle of stuff from the show? Yes. This is how it, <laughs> this is how it's aligned. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So what is the last part from the pay-per-view? <laughs> so I can I'm see not done. Vision? Well, I'm not done yet. I know, but I'm trying to figure out what I should be adding from the web version. <laughs> well, don't add anything. The schedule plan for March the 5th was Kid Cash gets Amazing Red. And they want to announce it. It may happen, but they try for a few days to get a hold of Red to confirm it. He never returned their phone calls. He's in Japan! <laughs> we just talked well, about that. Well, wait a second, though. Elix Skipper, though, is not in Japan anymore. But it says they were trying to call him. So they probably tried to call him while he was in Japan. I guess. Although, Red having communication issues with people in this era was not uncommon. No, no. 
They're also trying to get Scott Hall to return. Hall never came back after Sean Waltman quit. He doesn't return. Michael Manos and Donovan Morgan are looking at coming in during May. That didn't happen, as far as I remember. All right, back to the pay-per-view, Bix. <laughs> they did another one of those debate deals with Mike Sanders and Glenn Gilberti against Mike Tanay in a handicap match. Apparently on the rides home, Sanders, Gilberti, Raven, and Vince Russo. Oh, what a car ride that must be. Um, Gilberti had asked for the chance. He didn't bring his game a game with him, as his only point was to claim that the reason wrestling has lost so many fans from his peak is because Vince Russo hasn't been writing wrestling. Tanay countered, saying that many would say the reason they lost all those viewers is because he was writing wrestling. Gilberti kept saying nobody wants to see a wrestling show, and that's why business is dead. Both credited Russo with TNA's ratings being up, which nobody even knows because they haven't even gotten accurate reports from June of last year. Although there's evidence it's up from when it bought him out, but nowhere near close to when it was when it start. Tanay said the conflict has helped, but it was a conflict and not Russo's changes in the show. Ended up going nowhere fast. Apparently the version of air was the fifth take. And this time they kept doing it over because Tanay carved them up too bad in the first take. They closed the gap until it's fairly even by take five. That's amazing. It was even until Sanders and Gaberti tried to claim David Arquette as world champion was a good idea. That's pretty much the statement that proves they have no clue. This is a result of a record low rating and a record low buy rate and made the company a laughing stock and never recovered from. Nevertheless, on the ride home, Sanders was bragging the Russo, Raven, and Gilberti. He totally smoked Tanae and put him in his place. This it aired, everybody. This aired. I mean, th- <laughs> oh my God. Um, Jesus. What, hey, what do you even say to that? Other than also. This is on the show. Wrestling's a shoot. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's insane. It's totally insane. All right. Uh, Russo was in the impression that J.J. Dillon was done. Yeah. I'm sure he probably was. Uh, Russo's son, Will, did a tape promo similar to the David Flair deal saying his father was never home. They said Will delivered a good promo. <laughs> Um, actual results, real quick. Um, as far as the actual matches, Kid Cash retained the X title over Jason Cross. Brian Lee and Slash of the New Church beat Simon and Swinger. Chris Harris and James Storm, America's Most Wanted, beat the Hot Shots, Cassie O'Reilly and Jay Stevens. Raven beat Julio De Niro. Jerry Lynn beat Juventud Guerrero. St- AJ Styles beat Sandman. And Vader and Dusty beat the Harrises by DQ. It's yeah. a very 2003 TNA show. Yes. BG uh, James BG James took a pay cut from $2,000 per show to 1000 because the company wasn't doing well. So that probably played a part in his walking out shortly after they turned down his father's request for a $50 a week raise. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, also, just skimming through this to see if there are any Dave highlights. Conan did a promo and introduced Juventud Guerrero as an authentic luchador. He pinched Goldilocks's butt, and she yelled at him in Spanish. Not surprised that Hoobie would do that. Um, I hope that was planned and discussed. Would it surprise you if it wasn't? No. All right, Torch. Sandman has refrained from drinking backstage during shows. However, observers say he is slowly starting to appear more comfortable in his new surroundings, as he has gotten louder each week he's been backstage. Sandman kissing the TNA dancer was scripted, oh, and there are new plans for him to kiss additional women, even some in the crowd. 
Sandman was said to be happy with this idea, as he he feels it will add a new layer to his character. Well, he is one of the great untapped minds in the wrestling business, according to John Collins. <laughs> he was even predicting he could kiss legit fans as opposed to plants and sweep them off their feet in Rick Rude style. <laughs> good night, everybody. It's been a good between the sheets. <laughs> This drew a few high rolls from Dusty Rhodes and Vader, who overheard him talking about his new gimmick in the locker room. Oh, I wish I could see that. That should be televised, not the bullshit that was. For what it's worth, Sam M. told other wrestlers that Paul Heyman contacted former ECW owner Todd Gordon last week and expressed concern over his job security at WWE. <laughs> like the lawyers aren't telling him to stay far away from Todd Gordon until the bankruptcy settled. Oh, and maybe Todd God. told Hack that, but I kind of <laughs> doubt it's true. Oh my God! Uh, wow! That the I did not expect any of that to be there. That was something. <laughs> um, wow! Ah. <laughs> uh. For an estimated look at how the company is doing, the weekly expenses have been cut down to eighty grand a week on the shows. If they're doing seven to ten thousand buys, be it nice, they're taking in forty grand a week. Plus, let's be nice and add another sixteen thousand per month coming from Australia and a few thousand flat gates. So weekly losses are probably range from thirty to forty-five grand a week. The key thing is that contraction within demand. If they don't continue through June and fulfill their one-year deal, they will be thought thirteen weeks of payment, which is probably in the five hundred thousand dollar range. Now they would likely lose more than if they were to shut down today if things don't change. But once they get to the March 12th show, it becomes in their financial best interest to at least continue through June because they'd be losing more by shutting down. This is also one of the reasons that they even convinced Panda to step in in the first place is that like, we're screwed no matter what. We're screwed worse if we don't keep going. Yeah. Which... <sighs> fucking demand for making such a predatory deal though oh yeah they they screwed him heavily i mean especially like yeah you're still in the greater power position but you're also desperate for content with ecw and uh wcw gone Mm -hmm. and ufc has only just gotten back on full cable coverage and isn't running monthly yet you know when is when TNA starts, or even at this point. So it would have been an in demand's best interest to not be as ridiculous with this deal. Did I say New Japan and not in demand? <laughs> Maybe you did. Maybe you but did. I don't you know what I'm saying though. Like it's it's a little weird. It does. You know what? Even though we've repeatedly shown how Paul Heyman's claims about how much in-demand owed him appear to be bullshit, uh, I do kind of buy that he had a call with in-demand where one of them said, we'll just let you go bankrupt before we ever send you any of the money we owe you. Yeah. Like, the way they're dealing with Impact, TNA, whatever here, like, that that strikes me as a company where someone would say that to someone like Paul. Mm-hmm. Alright, AJ Styles and Raven are doing a gimmick where they're both in the Russo camp but at odds with each other over who's number one man in the camp, but also always help each other win their matches. With Styles joining Russo, it seems to eliminate Larry Zabisco's role. His name was never mentioned on the show. Also disappearing in their mention was J.J. Dillon, who just two weeks ago was given a huge intro as they had the NWA, and Percy Pringle, who hasn't been back in weeks and never mentioned. 
Yes, this is the era of TNA where just random ass people were just showing up there for like two weeks and leaving. Yes, especially authority figures. Mm-hmm. Sean Devari, who worked a dark match on February 26th, his nephew, a former wrestler, Adnan LKC. She Adnan. John Adnon. No, he's and not. Cl- <laughs> <laughs> Dave thinks he is, I guess. Well, okay, what? Because they're both Middle Eastern guys from the Twin Cities? They all look alike, bitch. No, but seriously, the Sean Devari is of Iranian, Iranian descent, right? Uh, yes. Adnan LKC uh, is Iraqi. And yes. Yes. Hold on, let me Google this just in case, and he doesn't talk. Well, here's the other thing, too. If Sean Devari was genuinely of Iraqi heritage, they would have played it up during the Hassan stuff. Mm-hmm. Let me double check, though. You're right. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I want to make absolutely sure. And on... Okay, see, let's see. Uh, let's see if I click on his wiki. A-D-N-A-N... He was, well, okay, it lists Adnan as one of his trainers, but it cites his cage match. Uh, is there anything other than it listing as his... Okay, an old MLW profile for him. Which MLW was he in? Um, mentions he was guided early on by Adnan. Okay, so, okay if they were rela- related, it would have been mentioned this there, is pro- I think. This is probably Dave getting wrong information people are assuming because they're both middle of middle eastern descent oh they gotta be related oh i found an article this is copied and pasted from so okay minneapolis star tribune article from october 01 um this is towards the end of the article like if this is well no this is actually the end of the article on saturday night the sheiks old and young will be cast as villains but the old sheik wants people to know they're not such bad guys and remember this is right after 9 11 he wants people to hear a message about true Muslims being peace lovers, and he wants people to know that the rookie sheik, Sean Devari, did the graphics at no charge uh, for the program that will be sold at the charity event. Maybe for one night we can be heroes, a kind and gentle sheik said. So they would have said if it was his nephew. Yeah. So this is presumably someone who knew that he was a protege of Adnan. Um Okay, and then, yeah, okay, review of, of Davari's shoot interview that says Adnan took a liking to him and helped him out a lot. Okay, so yeah, they're not related. Of course not. I, I mean, once from Iran, once from Iraq. I, I, I figured it's possible that should maybe... Be enough. One, no, but I figured it's possible maybe one of his parents was of mixed heritage or something. I don't uh, know. I wanted to make absolutely sure. I had the right instinct, but... Anyway. Anyway, that's... That, I mean... I, I would think Dave would have figured this out on his own, though, after the WWE stuff, if you hadn't heard otherwise. But anyway, let's let's close this up. What WWE stuff? That he wasn't billed as a Rocky. If he, Biggs, you would think they this would. is before he was in WWE. That's what I said. I said one would hope he learned by that point or figured it out. That's what I said. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Yes. All right. The late Kurt Henning. We close up with this. His last major rib was a few weeks before his death. On the night he wrestled David Flair in the infamous pole match. He padlocked all of Goldilocks' bags together so she couldn't open them. What made it even funnier to everyone is the first person she went to for help as her best friend, or maybe second best friend in the company was, you guessed it, Kurt Henning. (laughs) Oh, Kurt. Yeah, he had just died. 
you know, not too long before our week. I think it was like a week or so earlier, because as we're recording this... February 10th. February 10th. Yeah, because I was, was going to too- say, like, I, I was seeing it, like, I had seen some of Joe Hennig's Instagram posts and tweets and stuff, yeah. so... Um, look, if you end up, you know, just exposing the joke and laughing with them before they need to leave and get all their stuff together, that's fine. It's when you make them go to extreme lengths to get the bag or leave without the bag that it's a shitty thing to do. <laughs> Kurt was Kurt. And so. he, I mean, uh, considering some of the stories we've heard, this is among his less malevolent rips. Yes. All right. Well, that is it for us this week on Between the Sheets. Next week, I'm going to try something new here. Uh, see if, I, I, because I know with the, the year we're doing. Mm hmm. I'm going to be. I'm going to say the year, and I want you to guess the main story. Okay. Next week, go between the sheets. We go back to 1992. Now don't. Now, okay, okay. Don't say it. But do you think that? Okay, okay. Type it in Skype chat. Let's do it that way. Well, okay. Well, I'm pulling up the calendar first. So this is going to be March 2nd to 8th. March 1st to the 8th, because we have an extra day. Right, because of uh, Super Brawl 2. Because we, uh, we we already did uh, Super Brawl. On so February we did 29th, on Leap Day. Yeah. 23rd to the 29th, yes. Um, so, okay, so this is the don't, first... Don't, yeah. don't look at nothing. Don't no, look I'm just looking at the calendar, that's all. Um, March 1st, the 8th. Skype, type it in Skype chat, don't say it on the air. I'm thinking... Can you I'll tell, tell me what right. country or promotion? promotion or no! Okay. No! March... Oh, type in a Skype chat, and I'll tell you if you're right or wrong. All right, you're partially right. All right, so well, is the um, second I, part the right part? Yes, you're fully right. Okay. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, uh, we go back to 1992, and we'll start in WCW. Where we have news on Jesse Devine Ventura losing his uh, announcing with the Minnesota Vikings because he's going back in the wrestling in WCW. So we had that. Dave is uh, catching WCW shows on multiple time zones. So we'll have that plus other assorted WCW news. We got All Japan running the big Budokan Hall show. So we'll talk about that featuring a, a world tag title change and uh, quite the list of foreigners on this tour. New Japan runs their uh, 20th anniversary show at Yokohama Arena. So we'll talk about that. Some big names on that show. We got Universal Lucha Libre. We got all kinds of uh, Japanese stuff to talk about. Some good good uh, groups of talent on these shows. We got Lucha, CMLL, including a possible big CMLL super show with an American wrestling promotion that's being talked about. UWA has got some big matches going on there. Plus, they got some uh, TV issues to talk about. We got an issue in Tijuana with Conan. We got some indie stuff to talk about, including a new wrestling promotion debuting in Georgia. We got one of the very little Smoky Mountain wrestling TV shows uh, featuring Rip Rogers doing his Hindu squats. Now, is that taped in 92 or is that from the pilot to 91? It's taped in 92. Okay, you know what? I think that might be the first show of the 92 tapings. It's the first taping, yes. The first taping after the pilot, yes. Yes. 
course, we have a little USWA, other than not the television, because it's done on, on YouTube. Well, I may be able to help with that. Well, I got it, but but again, um, it's not on YouTube. All right, uh, Global, when they take TV during our week, let's talk about that. We got an update on uh, some Minnesota stuff, Pacific Northwest, but the bulk of our show next week, and Bix guessed this correctly, is the World Wrestling Federation, where there's a lot going on. Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin hand in their resignations. So we'll have that. We got Phil Mushnick. Now, Phil Mushnick, this took place before our week. I think that was the 28th or maybe? 26th. But I went back and looked at the notes for the previous show we did, which was show like 32. Long time ago. Yes. We, We didn't cover that as in depth back then as we do stuff now no because so also i also had a lot well also I have, there's a lot more stuff i have that i didn't have well before. well we didn't well i just didn't put in the notes back then. i did more a concise summary but we have more stuff from dave about that so we have phil mushnick in that we're talking about lawsuits and all this all this stuff's getting ready to happen dave's uh thoughts on how this is going to affect the wrestling industry uh, Billy Jack Haynes talks to Dave and tells him a lot of shit that's going on, including the infamous phone call to his father. So we'll have that. We got uh, all kinds of stuff as the shit is about to hit the fucking fan. And uh, yeah, we got news on that. Plus, we got news on uh, what's going on with Hulk Hogan. You know, what's his status in the company? And how is all these uh, controversies going to play into that? We got LOD to talk about. We got Murray Hodgson's lawsuit to talk about. We got Dr. Mauro Di Pasquale to talk about. And hell, we got stuff from television to talk about, including uh, a new uh, theme song makes its debut. Psycho Sid has quite the promo on television. And so much more next week on Between the Sheets, including Ric Flair cutting maybe the best promo he ever cut in the World Wrestling Federation in that era. So... Next week is going to be a show. It's going to be a David Bixon span experience next week on Between the Sheets. And there will be no guests for that reason. So there you go. Granularity. The WWS section is going to be crazy. And uh, So how many pages I, of notes do we have and how big is the WWF section? 28 pages of notes, 15 pages of WWF. And that's also knowing that there's probably stuff I should check from other newsletters too that probably, may not have so, but, but 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 what I'm thinking about is, and I'll go ahead and say it now. Yeah. Um, this may be the time. Well, I'll save it off there. I'll do it off the air. I don't want to do it on the air. Okay. And right, also, so, I'm looking, and uh, between the 26th and our week, there are four relevant Mushnick columns too. Well, Dave's got chunks of them in here, so we got we'll, that. We'll but see. He, yes. But 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 also well we'll talk off the air because I don't want to go too in depth on it right now. But anyway, all right. Well, that's it for us this week. We want to thank Tyler for being with us on part one of the show and requesting this week. So we appreciate him for putting in the fifty dollars for that. Bix, thank you as always. You're rock the show. This is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon special episode number 25. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host David Bix's band. And Bix, it's time to once again go back to the lovely city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and talk about an indie wrestling promotion. But this time, we're talking about a completely different indie wrestling promotion. Yes, we're talking about a Philadelphia-based indie wrestling promotion that employs the likes of Gabe Sapolsky, Rob, wait, what? <laughs> yes, but in a new era. Yes. As yes, yes, it's time to go back to the 2000s, 2002, and Ring of Honor, 20 years. Man, it's hard to believe that it's been that long, but here we are, 20 years since the birth of Ring of Honor. And, uh, yeah, debuted in 2002, but the seeds have been planted for this going all the way back for almost a full calendar year to the death of ECW. And we're going to get into that right now as we begin the show. All right, let's move on now as we go to the week of October 29th. Observer covered the 11th, 11th, 5th. There's ever an exact opposite of the first World Wrestling All-Stars pay-per-view. It would have been the two-day All-Pro Wrestling King of the Indies show on October 26th, 27th in Vallejo, California. Roland Alexander, the vilified small-time promoter and wrestling school owner in the Beyond the Mat movie, brought in 16 independent wrestlers of all sides and styles for a tournament to showcase the art of pro wrestling while inviting many luminaries from the past to attend. The results were both good, bad, happy, and sad. From a business standpoint, running two straight nights, these days in the same building is a risk. And doing so without mentioning names even more difficult. The shows drew about 275 the first night, 375 the second night. APW is often drawn 500 fans to the same building for its monthly shows with far less local publicity. The flip side, as mentioned by several wrestlers, is that it was probably the best possible audience during 75 fans due to style wrestling for. It was largely a combination of several different Japanese styles of in ring work. The shows had little in the way of bay faces and heels, no run ins, managers, valets, little brawling. And the crowd died the few times people went out of the ring. And all clean finishes, most via submission. Most matches also ended with the participants hugging in the ring while fans cheered the performance. Match quality of both nights was tremendous with at least four legitimate four-star matches topped off by American Dragon against Spanky, four and a half stars. American Dragon against Doug Williams, four and a quarter stars, which both well above that level. Jardy France against AJ Styles. Styles against Christopher Daniels were at that level. And the championship match, Loki against Samoa Joe. Loki against Chris Daniels, and some other against Frank Kazarian were pretty close. All the matches the first night were good, most very good, and seven of the tournament and of the seven tournament matches, the second night, five would have been at least three and a half stars. The crowd responded largely as a Japanese crowd would, which enabled the style to get over. There were no boring chants during long periods of mat work, and the crowd was heavily into the submissions that wouldn't be understood by a mainstream audience. Most fans seemed familiar with Japanese submissions and reacted well to the UFC spots and positions employed that would go over the head of the casual fan. But the only thing, the only, the only thing that usually works in Japan that didn't was the knees on the ground from the side mount, a move banned in UFC, but over in Japan because of it being as part of Pride shows. Fans and retired wrestlers brought in were Nick Botwinkle, Kenji Shibuya, Pepper Gomez, Fritz von Goring, Red Bastine, and Dick Byer, Destroyer, along with Roller Derby legend and Calvello. She was there promoting the San Francisco premiere of the movie about her life, and they gave several matches, several matches stand ovations. While those who were there talked about it being the best show they've ever seen live, the numbers who will pay to see it are far too small for it to be anything other than the big money loser. 
Alexander is able to fund those losses through a very successful local wrestling school. But when presenting a product that would be a very close representation with a huge number of fans, particularly longtime fans, say they won't wrestle in the B, like what was mentioned last week, often that is not the kind of product they'll actually support. This attendance isn't a reflection of the style, it's a reflection of few fans today will attend anything that isn't WWF. While many people grew up watching old wrestling legends in every area of the country, few cling to them to the point they would go out of their way today to see them like their counterpart fans of sports like football, baseball, or basketball. There's a sad reality of every show that they've seen where big stars whose careers ended before 1995 abroad, 1985 are brought in. The older fans who watch them are no longer interested. The younger fans, understandably, having not seen them, have no emotional attachment or interest. All right, let's talk about this. Dave, Dave is spinning so much truth, you know, in this about about this show, as far as you know the fan the fan situation. I mean, this is the people. I mean, this is this is the type of stuff that a lot of internet wrestling fans can't grasp. Okay, some can and no, but. They don't like it, but it's true. Stuff like this is, I mean, is for niche audiences. It has a ceiling of popularity. And it can work in other places like Japan, where the fans are conditioned to, uh, you know, to understand this type of style. But even then, those groups didn't draw always huge houses. Like Battle Arts was a successful drawing promotion. You know, I mean, mo- they did their sh- random shows at Corkin or whatever, and they they did some shows in other places. But for the most part, they're wrestling, you know, in front of a fucking couple hundred people. Sometimes they're wrestling in front of less less than a hundred, and the fans are sitting on fucking mats. They don't even have chairs. And so, all of the visible fans are Yakuza. A lot of it, yes. So, I mean, that's the thing that, that, that people need to understand in in today's times even more is that a style of wrestling that's similar to this can only get over so far. You know, you're not going to be able to attract a fan base that's going to come in there and, you know, spend the money. And, and, and let me read, let me read what Dave said here again. Let me read what Dave said here. And because this, this, this sentence stands out to me so much. But when presenting a product that would be a very close represent, representation of what a huge number of fans, particularly longtime fans, say they want wrestling to be, like what was mentioned last week, until I get stuff about WWA, often that is not the kind of product they'll actually support. Mm-hmm. Meaning financially. Yes. I mean, that they'll watch it and whatever, and they may watch it, but you know, who just said they'll actually support something like this? Um, and, and, and even today, I mean, AEW has done well, you know, as far as, you know, so, you know, doing, you know, selling houses and stuff like that. But there's still a large majority of fans that doesn't really acknowledge anything that's not WWE. I mean, they won't go to indie, indie wrestling, what it classifies as indie wrestling. And AEW is not indie wrestling. That's a, that's a different beast. Right. Because it's a major professional wrestling promotion on national television. Although, as we've seen, there are at least a lot of tribal WWE fans that think anything that's not WWE is indie wrestling. Well, there's that too, but I mean, it's not indie wrestling because I mean, no. if you're on na- if you're on national if you're on a national television, like I mean, if you're on a Turner Network television, you're not indie wrestling. Sorry, 
So, uh, but but yeah, I mean, that that's the and, and you listen to Dave how he's talking about the crowd reacting and stuff, and we talk about how Dave feels about you know hardcore uh, wrestling and all that stuff. I mean, this is the type of stuff that he's into, you know, this type of style and everything. And this is what this served is that is that is that type of fan base that is into that style of wrestling. And it's also interesting to note, though, as he mentioned, that this show with all these big outside names drew less than their normal shows would do with their local guys. Which is also a little weird because they have their most notable local guys on the shows. And APW had been, as much as anyone in that area, era, era, a work-rate indie. Yeah, but there's this, I guess there's a story to be told there, though, you know, as well. Now, also, from the video at least, and this is not a sound-mixing thing because there was no commentary, um, that crowd fucking sucked. (laughs) <laughs> yes uh expose the crowd here Bix. okay so dave is right. I, have, I have not i have not watched this in a long time neither so have i, I but i remember it vividly yeah i remember stuff but i don't remember probably as good as you do okay yes they're well behaved they're into they're clearly interested but I don't know how this happens collectively to three to four hundred people. They were basically cosplaying what their idea of Japanese fans was. That it's, I'm 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 glad that you mentioned that. I think we have we have had that so much in the independent wrestling fans in the last twenty years, stemming off stuff like this. There. I, and, <laughs> I see it a lot. There are there are a lot of fans and shows that I've gone to personally mm-hmm. where, I mean, it's like there's no real emotional investment. It's like you're reacting like you're supposed to react. I this wouldn't is what even you're say that, to. though, for this. This is... Or you're pretending is... to be like... You're pretending to be like what you see on TV or see on tape. And that's like that on WWE shows, too. I mean, it's not just indie... I mean, they, but you, people they see, still but they react see. organically and get into matches. What happened here was that they were really quiet, for pretty much through the whole two days, except for applause at a you know, and like really peeking at some of the bigger moments on you know in the finals and stuff. Yeah, but it still goes to the larger point that I have is that. Yeah. You have a lot of fans and crowds that they're they're acting, they, doing like the, what they think they're supposed how they're supposed to react. You know, from watching wrestling over the years. Yes. You know? I would say this happened the most and over the longest period of time with the influence that ECW TV had on indie crowd. Oh God. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Now Absolutely. Thankfully, ROH crowds do not end up like this. No. Um, but the other consequence, which I guess I might as well mention here, because it's so quiet, (laughs) do you know where I'm going with this? I think so. Okay. During the finals against Danielson, Loki has his shoulder bandaged. I don't believe he had it bandaged at any point up until then in the tournament. No one acknowledges the injury, really. 
I think Danielson did a couple arm spots to set up his finisher, but he, it's not like he worked the shoulder consistently in the match. And then, <laughs> former Pro Wrestling Torch columnist John D. Williams at one point calls out loud enough that you can clearly hear it on the video. Hey, Loki, <laughs> how about that bad arm? <laughs> Which got distorted into sell the arm, which yes, is not yell, but became yeah. kind of the early internet wrestling forum meme about it. But no, he says, hey, Loki, how about that bad arm? Which I like, John, but come on. But that's what smart fans did. Yes. But see, here's the thing. When they did that, they did that. It shows where there's more fan reaction. On a yes. WCW show. Well, Here, and, that becomes way more audible. Well, it also is a little hypocritical on John's part because, you know, uh, five years earlier at the Peace Festival, you know, you can read in the torch, he tears into the other some of the other ringside fans who are yelling stuff like mixing in a high spot at Liger and Sasuke. Well, that's two of his favorites. <laughs> But uh, I guess let's get it down to the specifics of the uh, the tournament. Yes. American Dragon, the training of Shawn Michaels, who spent some time in WF developmental system before being cut, probably because he's 5'8", 185 pounds, and that doesn't fit in their system, defeated the New York-based Low-Key, that's L-O-K-I, uh-huh. a 165 pounder who has the ability in the ring to project the R of being a miniature Vanderlei Silva. Spelled with a V as well. Yes. The match went 29.50. Featured a lot of mat work, some incredible innovative moves by Loki, including the moonsault to a senton block on the floor, an inverted fisherman bust off top rope, kicks that you probably expect to see in a high-level Japanese match. It was the fourth match in two days for both wrestlers. Loki became an immediate favorite of the crowd that had never seen him before live because of his ability to project intensity in the ring and to be able to work shoot style and make it not only interesting to watch, it actually looked realistic. His offense was so explosive, and his quickness on the ground was so impressive that even giving up probably 90 pounds to Samoa Joe of UPW slash zero one, he was able to beat him in a fashion within a Japanese context where it didn't look ridiculous. He also has some unique agility and flexibility that allows him to do things rarely if ever seen in the context of doing a pro wrestling match. The level of match at the match shocked the older wrestlers who were expecting something more akin to local wrestlers copying the WWF instead. They saw the unknown light Doug from England, Doug Williams, 1992 National Judo Champion, 158 pounds, maybe the most underrated performer in this industry. Then invited comparisons with a legend from their era, Billy Robinson. He may have had the best match on the weekend with American Dragon. Had people known just how good Williams was, he would have been booked at least into the semifinals. Dragon tore the house down three times, including the championship match, the Williams match, which ended up with him having a bloody nose from some brutal forearms and the parent tendon problem in his knee, which he worked with the last two matches on. And the first round match was Spanky, another native of Washington, who he started his career with both as both migrated to San Antonio more than two years ago to be the star people to Shaw Michaels. Christopher Daniels, who already has the reputation of being the best independent worker in the country, showed versatility in working with a lucha stylist, Super Dragon, followed by Georgia wrestler AJ Styles and Low Key. Styles, who, like Daniels, had just signed with WCW when the company went under, garnered standing ovations after his match with Daniels, as well as an earlier match against Jardy France. Also, as talented as all the performers involved are, most have little chance at WF. While most do well in Japan, Japanese promotions aren't nearly as interested in talented 165-pounders, 
Even with a cross of a, between a Bruce Lee and Vanille Silva are alike low-key, as much as a 275 powerhouse like Bison Smith, who suffered what appeared to be a serious knee injury when he flipped himself into the ring and a knee he injured on his last Noah tour went out. And boy is appeared to be doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. Yes. Because this uh, was an injury he faked because of the heat that's increasing between the old guard of APW and Roland at the time. Yes. Low-key style and size, plus shoot fighter gimmick all wrong with WF anyway, but he has potential as a badass underdog marketed for younger kids to relate to. Despite his great in-ring, great ring and interview ability, the latter is not as well known, Daniels is considered too small for WF. The Santa had that saw much smaller Spanky, who's only 165 pounds, but they're very, very charismatic and dragon cut, while much larger and less talented men remain in the system for better or worse. Williams would be a small heavyweight in Japan, but likely could stick with any promotion there that gives him his first break just because of his in-ring being that good. Yes. All right. So first things first, we should say what we should have said already. Um, This is here because Gabe, Sapolsky, and others have credited watching the King of Indies tape to being the moment they realized they really could start their own promotion. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious. When you read how this show went, what Ring of Honor would eventually look like. And also, look, I used to be skeptical of it until Gabe and others started saying it publicly when it was more just secondhand lore. What I think it means is that he sees he has 16 guys plus the guys in the non-tournament matches and realizes that between them and the Northeast guys they've been seeing that aren't even booked here, they easily have enough for a career. Mm-hmm. And also, since not everyone even got mentioned here, here are the names. I don't have the brackets in front of me right now. But your field of 16 this is in alphabetical order because I pulled it up on Cage Match. So American Dragon, Adam Pierce, AJ Styles, Bison Smith, Christopher Daniels, Donovan Morgan, Doug Williams, Frankie Kazarian, Jardy France, Loki, Samoa Joe, Scoot Andrews, Spanky, Super Dragon, Tony Jones, Vinny Massaro. So, yeah, there is, an, you know, still a no-cow flavor in that tournament, but still, absolutely, yeah. I mean, some heavy hitters from all over the country on this show. Yes, and Morgan and Modest work ROH early. Yeah. You know, so that's absolutely worth mentioning as well. Um, And I think that the big thing that doesn't get talked about enough with this is, who the hell knows where exactly Danielson's career goes without all this? Without this tournament, because you know he got well. A lot. He already had he, well. He already had ECWA. Well, here's the thing that with that he had gotten a lot of attention from his Super Eight performances, where Loki won, but Dragon was probably the tournament MVP, and he's being flown in regularly by Jim Kettner for those shows. But other than that, it's, you know, because he got he was under WWE contract at the time of the Super Eight, and then got released. You know, he's pretty much just trying to go back to school at home in Washington and occasionally work ECCW shows. Like, you know, like, so I think MCW ends in June or July, letting them finish out their contracts. And it doesn't seem like there's much MCW results around. So if we just go for after that, like he has one match in July, two matches in August, three in September. Five in October, because of the tournament. Then six in November, two in December. 
he was this was as halfway in halfway out as he's ever been in his career and you know not talked about here because i didn't put it in because it wasn't really relevant to the roh side of things there ends up being all this fallout because i'm actually surprised this part wasn't in the initial observer coverage originally morgan was going to win the tournament because the idea was to sell apw but then mm-hmm. Bachwinkle, Bestine, and I think maybe some of the other legends, but I think it was especially Bachwinkle was the main one who made the comment, told Roland something to the effect of, if you do not put American Dragon over in this tournament, you don't know what you're doing. I'm sure Donovan Morgan didn't hold a grudge about that. <laughs> no, it's not like he and Modest and everyone else left several weeks later to start their own school and promotion or anything. Mm-hmm. Um. And also, to help justify it, he give, Roland gives Danielson the trainer job at the school. Mm-hmm. Which, clearly, there's other stuff going on for him to do that, but turned out probably better than anyone could have expected, because Brian Danielson has been very good at training people since pretty much the beginning. Yeah. You know, some guys are just good at it. You know? Our friend Dominic Greeny was not wrestling long when he had... To take over the AIW school when, you know, Johnny Gargano, Gargano, Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae moved to Orlando. But he's a good mm-hmm. teacher. He had previous coaching experience, knew enough about wrestling, and it worked. You know? Yeah. At the, you know, Keith Hart school. Who trained uh, Just Incredible? Rookie Lance Storm. Yeah. Who would go on to be a really good trainer. Some people, you know... Uh, Someone who studies stuff and is maybe feels they have to work more at it is always going to be a better coach. And though Lance is, you know, incredibly gifted athletically, naturally, he clearly always had that mindset. And Danielson obviously did, too. So, like, you watch, like, the people he trains early on. I don't know how much of the video is out there anymore. But it was, you know, up back in the day with APW doing their, you know, click movie downloads for free. Those guys, he was trained. Like, the people who were already there got better. You know, like your Larry Blackwell types. And you also had people like James Choi and Bobby Quantz and people like that who were so much better than their level of experience. And nothing gets Modest and Morgan their guys were not getting good as quickly as Danielson's guys were. Yeah. So this is a big change for his career. Cause like he, he moves to California. He gets to, you know, it's, you know, he's living above the school in the garage, but he's fine with that. And this puts him on the path that eventually takes him to LA for the Yonoki dojo and all that. And, you know, pretty much sets up the rest of his career. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, everything that happened on this show was a direct influence on Ring of Honor being formed. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.